Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Jandruff with Telus. This is being recorded live and broadcast live as well. On March 6th, 2019, the time is 9.30 p.m. I apologize for those of you who have been waiting for the show to start. Uh, some things going on here not related to the site of the show that delayed me. So I apologize for that. I, I delayed the free roll once, and uh, you can still get in. That's the good news. I, at least I have the foresight to delay the free roll. So the free roll, you have about eight more minutes to get in. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's $100 uh, from Eric Benzamokin this week. Thank him very much once again for being generous and donating money to our free rolls. If you want to email him about a legal matter, especially uh, mediation or arbitration, uh, he, he does bankruptcies too. If you need to declare bankruptcy, if you're a degenerate who owes a lot of money, he can help you with that too. Uh Eric at eblawfirm.us, eric.eb, like Eric Benzamokin, eb, eblawfirm.us. Uh, the free roll this week, $50 for first, 25 for second, 15 for third, 10 for fourth. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen of PokerFraudAlert.com. And make sure to know the rules before you play, because if you don't follow the rules, then you will not get paid. PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase. That is the page of all the rules to win the free money. If you do win the free money, you can get it in one of various ways. I can pay you with Bitcoin. I can send you a bank transfer to any bank in the U.S. I can uh, send it to you on the Cash app. Go to cash.me to get the Cash App for free, and you can receive money for free with no fees or anything like that. Very useful. Cash.me. <clears throat> and also, uh, there's one other way I can pay you. A service that's been around for many years that people can use to send money to one another and pay for things online. You might know what I'm talking about. I can send it to you that way, too. So, you got a PME dance space druff on the forum. Text me at 775-372-8355 or email me dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, all lowercase, to claim the money you won in the free roll. If you want to call into the show, phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We also have the Mount Charleston line. It's located in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. It's an old rotary, 1970s telephone. I have call forwarding on it. It forwards to wherever I go. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, the alternate line into the show. You can text me at any time on the main show phone number, 775-372-8355. I will respond to your text, even if it's before or after the show. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you can text that number, 775-372-8355. In fact, if you've never made contact with me before, and you just want to tell me you're listening, go ahead. I, I swear you're not going to be bothering me. I enjoy hearing from listeners I haven't heard from before. It's always those that pop up and say, hey, I've been listening 6 years and never made contact before. And you can do that. You're not required to contact me, but uh, I do like hearing from people that I haven't heard from before. Just uh, It's interesting. It's interesting to hear, and then I ask a few questions, where do you hear of the show, and stuff like that. And you can tell me things you like about the show, things you dislike, things you'd like to see again. I've had some people saying that they want to see 
Chico Loco and Colonel Nigel Fabersham back. And I, I want to see them too. We've got to find premises to make these calls. But yeah, uh, I do miss those segments as well. I enjoy doing them too. I do have something I have to consider when I make those calls. Um, I, I I do play in some of these casinos. Uh, some of the people I would call, if it's individuals, I have to see them. So it's a lot easier when you're someone who's never going to make contact with any of these people or entities you're going to prank. So I have to keep that in mind, too. But you know, I try, for the most part, to just do it anyway and <laughs> worry about the consequences later. But I've, I've always got to show some restraint. I hope you understand. I'm, I also am a poker pro. The chat room. You can get into the chat room if you're listening live and chat with other people who are listening to the show. If you're listening in the archives, don't bother. There's nobody there. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones and no iPads can get in there, but you can get in as long as you can run Flash. And you can chat with the other listeners. If you have Google Chrome and can't get in, then go to the Hacker's Delight forum on PokerFraudAlert.com, and I have instructions on how to permanently enable Flash so you can get into the chat room. It's a flaw in Chrome that they have not fixed. They introduced the flaw, but they didn't fix the flaw. Typical Google. It seems like every product, I know I've mentioned this before, it seems like every good product that large companies put out, they ruin eventually. Skype, of course, is one of them, but many products are like that. Google Chrome used to be great, and with every release, they make something worse. And you can't just use an old version because it's not compatible and doesn't have enough features, and so you can't even just stick to old versions to get away from that. Uh, let's see what else we got here before the agenda. I, I think that's pretty much it. The free roll, you, you have 25 minutes of late registration. It began at 9.15, so 9.40 is when it ends. Right now it's 9.37. So you still got a few minutes. I think that's pretty much it. We'll get to the agenda. Trader Ruski can be on till about 11 tonight. We'll put him on shortly. Oh, yeah, the, the ways to listen to the show very quickly... The call to listen line, 605-313-0736, a phone number you can just call to listen to the show. doesn't require a smartphone, an internet, data plan, nothing like that. Just call up and listen, 605-313-0736. After the show's over, it'll play reruns. You can go to the main radio page if you forgot any of these numbers I gave you. They're, they're right up there, just the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert near the top of the screen. In the archives, you can listen using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. These are all apps. You can play the MP3 file directly from the radio forum on Poker Fraud Alert. Just go to the radio forum, you'll find it, and you just click on the MP3, and most devices will just play it. It doesn't need any further players or any other software to listen. And TuneIn also plays the live show, so you can use that. If you want to listen to the live show, Amazon Alexa, just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn, and that'll play the live show or the streaming reruns. If you want to hear the last show we did in the archives, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn. Just add the word podcast. Here's the agenda, then we'll get going. Aren't you guys proud of me how fast I'm getting through the agenda these days? Like through the whole intro? I've really sped it up. It's on fast forward now. Sheldon Adelson 
has made a bombshell announcement through a spokesman. Sheldon, who is quite old and has been an enemy of online poker, has announced that he has cancer. And he hasn't been at work in two months, so this could be the end of him very soon. I will tell you about that and what it will mean for the various uh, forms of anti-online poker activism that he has been engaging in over the years. A crazy ranting player at Talking Stick Resort, a casino in the Phoenix area, was creating quite a disruption there. And the disruption got worse when a man tackled him from behind and a fight broke out at that point. The whole thing was captured on video by a World Series of Poker bracelet winner. So I'll tell you who recorded it and what happened there. And I'll tell you of my own similar experience, not not in a fight. I didn't get any fights, but of, of something I witnessed, a very similar thing going on at Commerce, which I don't think I've even talked about before. It happened fairly recently, too. Last week on the show, we talked about advantage players. We talked about a situation with a listener to Poker Fraud Alert who is on Twitter as at play with an edge one. That was last week's story about how he and various other advantage players took advantage in a legal way of a slot machine on the New Jersey online casino sites and collectively won $900,000 only to have some difficulty withdrawing some of it because the casinos felt like chumps and were trying to find ways to avoid paying them. We did a pretty long segment about that. This week, a completely different segment about a disturbing story involving Advantage players. Two Advantage players have filed a lawsuit against Harris Joliet in Illinois over their false arrest in 2014. And it's it's pretty disturbing when you hear the details. So there's a second part of it that has to do with civil forfeiture, which may even shock you more. There we go. Delayed sound effect there. Click the wrong button. Speaking of being arrested in a casino, this one seems like a valid arrest. Adam Pacman Jones of the NFL was arrested for cheating at an Indiana casino. Hmm. A lot of stories this week actually about that area of the country. Illinois, Indiana. In fact, we have a third one too, which I'll get to shortly. You travel to another country to play a poker tournament. The last thing that's going to be on your mind is you're going to disappear and get killed. If you're fearing anything besides running bad in the tournament or maybe losing in the cash games on the side, maybe you'll fear some kind of accident on the way there, you know, like a plane crash or a car accident. You don't really think you're just going to disappear and be dead when you go somewhere to play a poker tournament. Well, that seems like it may have happened to an Icelandic poker pro named John Johnson. He's been missing for three weeks after attending a poker tournament in Dublin, Ireland. Talk about that disturbing story and why I feel that it's not looking good for John Johnson. The Department of Justice has decided to delay enforcement of the new Wire Act interpretation until June. I'll explain what that means. 
Carl Icahn, remember, he recently revealed that he owns 10% of Caesars, and he wants to see Caesars sold. He thinks that's the best... That's the best for investors in the company, is if Caesar sells. Uh, he still feels that way, but he got something he wanted in his ongoing battles with the existing Caesars board. He got three preferred members, probably lackeys of his in a way, added to the Caesars board. Talk more about that when we get to that segment. Someone sent me a podcast appearance by Annie Duke. And he told me it was really, really cringeworthy and I should listen. Then I forgot about it. Then today, shortly before the show, he asked if I'm going to cover it. And I said, oh, crap, I forgot about it. Sorry. I was going to table it to next week. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to play it and listen to it the first time like the rest of you. You're going to hear my genuine reactions because I haven't heard it yet. We're going to play it. I don't know if I can stand playing the whole thing, but we're going to play parts of it at least. And I'll make my commentary, which is one of my favorite things to do on the show. I have my own favorite segments of what I enjoy doing. And one of my favorite things to do is to play clips of things and mock them. Not only do I like doing it myself on this show, but I even like watching others do it on YouTube. It's just something I've always enjoyed. So we're going to do it to Annie Duke, who's definitely deserving. Harris Metropolis looks nothing like a metropolis. It looks like a lake. There's water everywhere. Unbelievable pictures of a massive flood that has obviously closed Harris Metropolis. When I say obviously, when you see the pictures, you'll see why it's closed. Uh, You would actually need a boat to get there. And if this sounds familiar, it's because a year ago, a casino also owned by Caesars, also on the Ohio River, also in the same area of the country, closed due to a flood. We did this topic almost exactly a year ago. Flashing back 30 years, if I have time, if I have time for the next two topics, the next two are topics that we can table if I uh, don't get to. Flashback 30 years, I'm going to tell you a story about breaking my first bone. First bone of my life I ever broke on a Jewish ski trip in 1989. The date was February 26, 1989. I actually meant to put this on the agenda last week because it was almost exactly the 30-year anniversary. Now we're like the 30-year and 10-day anniversary, but no matter. I'm going to tell the story of my first broken bone skiing and what it eventually led to, something I didn't expect it would lead to from uh, breaking my arm. Finally, if there's time, I'm going to give you Druff's do's and don'ts for solving customer service and billing issues. And I've talked about it before on the show, but I still get questions from people about what should I do when sets in such a spot or what should I do here. And we we even talked about one last week on the what would Druff do segment. This is not going to be about any particular incident anyone had, but uh, just general do's and don'ts for dealing with customer service problems and billing issues with companies. I see a lot of people making mistakes. A lot of smart people who just don't really know the best optimal way to do this. But I, I have a very, very good record in solving customer service and billing problems. 
a really, really good record. I mean, I, almost batting a thousand. So trust me, trust me that what I do works, and you can do it too. So that's our agenda this evening. Let me try to find Trita Rusk. We're going to have him for about a little bit more than an hour. And then he'll probably have to go. Whatever I can get out of him, I'm happy to have. You know, I'm not even bothered by the Skype ring tonight. I'm just, I'm getting used to it. Just going to relax and enjoy it. Hey, Drop. Trader Risky, thank you for joining us. So we're ready to get the show going past the agenda. And I just, I informed Calawat, by the way. Calawat was saying that we're jumping all around different nights. He never knows when to prepare for it as far as his sleep schedule. So I, I told him that, I just, I messaged him, he's probably sleeping already. But I, I said that going forward, we should be on every Wednesday, except for once in a while, we'll change it. But I, that's really my goal to stay on Wednesday. And we won't start as late as we did tonight. So something happened tonight that delayed it, but uh, not not related to anything technical. So that once in a while, something like that comes up. Anyway, we're going to get going with the Sheldon Adelson topic. And it, it took a lot of people by surprise, the announcement. So basically, here's what's happening. Sheldon Adelson is the CEO of... The Sands Corporation, Las Vegas Sands Corporation. It, it's named that because the Venetian is on the former Las Vegas Sands property. Uh, Sheldon, I believe, took ownership later. I don't think he... Uh, he definitely didn't build the Sands. But anyway, it's called the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, and they're best known for owning casinos in Vegas, the Wynn and the, not the Wynn, the, the Venetian and the Palazzo, and also in Macau, they have a property there. They also have a few others. I think they have one in Pennsylvania. Sheldon Nelson is a billionaire, and he is very, very opinionated politically, and he also has certain causes that he feels very strongly about that are not necessarily political. And unfortunately, one of the causes that is very near and dear to his heart is a hatred of online poker. And I've always believed that this is not just about business. Now, yes, he says that it's going to harm brick-and-mortar casinos and it's going to harm his own business. And he, he says things like that, and I think he believes it. But keep in mind, he could have gotten a license to provide online gambling in various states, including Nevada. So I don't think it's just about that. I think it's that he just is opposed to it. He just hates it. Could be that he's old, he just can't really get the online gambling thing. I don't know what it is. I mean, the guy's 85 years old. Keep in mind that he was already old when people started to go on the Internet. Not when the Internet was invented, and there's hardly anyone there back in the late 60s, but I'm talking about when people started using the internet when the public started using it in the mid-90s. Then he was already around 60 years old. Actually, over 60 years old. So he's been old the whole time, and it's possible he can't just he just can't relate to the internet online things very well. Whatever the reason, he's very, very anti-online poker and online gambling and has 
sunk considerable resources into fighting it. And when you have billions of dollars, you can actually wield that money as a weapon against things you don't like. Money really does buy power to some degree in this country. You can't directly buy a law, but you can use the money to influence politicians to do what you want, such as uh, campaign contributions um, and and, lobbying and other matters to where you can get politicians to do you a favor in exchange for favors you do for them. And the favor being trying to push laws that are ones that he would support, and that is to ban online gambling, including poker. So this has gone on for a while. <clears throat> this has made many poker players hate him. And this is not his only cause. Uh, for another one is Israel. He, he loves Israel. He's Jewish, but he really, really loves Israel. And even though he's a Republican, one of the main factors as to whom he supports and gives money to for uh, political campaigns has to do with how they are going to treat Israel. And if they're very, very supportive of Israel, then there's a good chance he'll give them money. If they're anti-Israel, then he will try to oppose them. If they're kind of in the middle, then he's going to kind of just ignore them. So he, he also tries to advocate for the cause of Israel. Very, very pro-Israel. So while he is a Republican, and while he typically backs Republicans, he has backed Democrats in recent times who are pro-Israel. He would back a Democrat who was very staunchly online gambling and seemed to have some influence in that. He actually seems more about personal causes and beliefs than uh, a a particular political party, even though he is more associated with the Republicans. Some wondered, how long is this going to go on? The guy's 85 years old. When is he either going to die or just get too old to keep doing this? And I thought he was one of these guys who's going to do it till he's in the ground. Well, it was recently announced that Sheldon Adelson has been diagnosed with cancer and has not been at work since December 2018. Now, you may wonder, well, why does him not being at work matter very much? He's 85 years old. This is someone who loved being at work. He, he was uh, not one who wanted to retire. So if he just hasn't been at work, he's very hands-on. He's a very hands-on owner. So if he wasn't at work, then it's looking pretty bad. He has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he's suffering issues from the side effects of the medication he's taking for it. And this is the double-edged sword that is cancer, in that these treatments are so brutal that even if you feel they're adding time to your life, the, the quality of life can be very poor if you're getting massive side effects from the whole thing. 
So it's it's a very tough choice. You can, you know, the treatments can be terrible, but then not doing anything can kill you pretty quickly, depending on the type of cancer. Given that he's 85, and given that he has missed two months of work, I have to say that his prognosis is probably not that good. That's just my guess. I don't have information on this. But uh, what little information I do have doesn't sound good for him. The condition he's in is described as dire. He was last at the Las Vegas Sands offices in late December. The reason this came out, the reason they're even bothering to reveal this to everyone, is that uh, in a court hearing, a uh, Hong Kong businessman has some kind of court case uh, against Las Vegas Sands Corporation, or I don't know who's suing who, actually. There's some case between them. It's not really important. But one of the Las Vegas Sands company attorneys said in a court hearing this week that they recently learned, quote, of the dire nature of Mr. Adelson's condition, health. And that comment was made because they were discussing bringing in Sheldon Adelson for a deposition in the case. And his attorney said, no, no, his condition is is dire. He cannot sit for a deposition. Now, you may think, well, maybe this is an excuse. Maybe he just doesn't want to do a deposition, and he's saying he he wouldn't totally make up cancer, but uh, maybe he is uh, making it sound worse than it is. But I, I don't think so. Las Vegas Sands Corporation said a week ago the following. This is shortly after the reveal in court. It was actually six days ago they, they made this announcement. Mr. Adelson is still dealing with certain side effects from the medication he's taking for the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. These side effects have restricted his availability to travel or keep regular office hours. However, they do say that they expect he will return after he completes treatment. He also suffers from a condition called peripheral neuropathy, and that affects the nervous system. Sheldon Allison is the Las Vegas Sands' largest shareholder. And he's always there for the regular, for the uh, earnings call. But he was not there for the last company's earnings call on January 23rd. At the time, they downplayed the problem by saying he's a little bit under the weather. They weren't ready to reveal the cancer yet. To show you the type of political contributions he gives, uh, he he liked Donald Trump and gave him $30 million in 2016. He also gave $100 million to the Republican Party itself for the 2018 midterm elections. So the these uh, the case, by the way, is is more than a decade old, and it has something to do with uh, the Macau 
casino they have there. The recent reinterpretation of the Wire Act was said to be the work of Adelson's cronies. And someone actually found a way to trace it back to them, even though they denied that they had any influence in the process. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, that's good. If Sheldon Adelson dies, then that will be the end of this, right? That will be the end of his obsession with certain causes, including being anti-online poker. Not so fast. While he will die, we don't know when, but maybe soon, his money will not. And it's very possible that knowing that he's not going to be around for too much longer, that he will set up a trust and hire certain people to be paid by this trust to advance the causes he cares about. So it's very possible these fights will continue on after he's dead with money he's set up to do so. He has not said that's what he's going to do, but knowing him, that's very possible. So don't don't rejoice about this thinking that online poker is not going to have its enemy anymore. It probably still will. Now what about the fact that they say that he's expecting to return to work after he completes treatment. I wouldn't too much put too much stock into that either because that's typically what they will say about a CEO who is fire, who's fighting a very serious illness or life-threatening illness. They don't like to say he's got one foot in the grave because that can make the stock tank. That can make it seem like there's uncertainty. That can make it seem like doom is on the horizon for the company. Think about Apple. Think about Steve Jobs. They tried really, really hard to downplay the seriousness of Steve Jobs' condition. Finally, someone came up with a photo of him about a year before he, not a year, about a week before he died, where he looked awful, where he really looked like he's very, very close to death. That was the only indication people had that his time was about up. But he tried almost until the end to make it seem like he was in much better condition than he was and that he was just getting treatment and he was going to be returning soon to head up Apple again. We see how that worked out. So I don't think he's going to live that much longer. Now, some people who have cancer will last a surprising long time. A lot of times it depends on the cancer. You might wonder about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Well, it's actually one of the Um, actually, I'm looking at Hodgkin's. Hold on. Non, non-Hodgkin's. The Hodgkin's one... 
I had up the Hodgkin's one, but I want, I'm looking at the non-Hodgkin's. The, the, the non-Hodgkin's lymph, lymphoma. It actually has a good survival rate, too. Okay, so these have a pretty good survival rate. He may actually, he may actually stick around. I didn't know until right now that it was that good. It says here that the five-year survival rate, that is for people who, people live who are still alive five years after being diagnosed, is 90%. For non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now he's 85 years old, so that's going to make it tougher. But still, 90% is an excellent five-year survival rate. There are some really bad cancers where once you get diagnosed with a late stage of it, you're screwed. Pancreatic cancer is a very bad one. All stages of pancreatic cancer combined, if you just kind of add them together, the one-year survival rate is 20%, and the five-year is 7%. So if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you've, you've, there's about an 80% chance you're going to be dead within a year. Pretty bad. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, <laughs> so the 90% live five years. So... I'm starting to take back what I said there. Maybe it is more side effects in the treatment that's keeping him away than the cancer itself. Maybe Sheldon Allison's like a, he'll be like a guy who just never dies. Maybe he'll be here in like 30 years at 100, 115 years old. By the way, in case you're wondering, what is the oldest a man has ever lived? The answer is 116. No male has ever made it to 117 years old on this earth. Never. Women have. The oldest person ever lived to 122, a French woman. She's the only one ever to live past 120. But no male has ever made it to 117. Every single male has died before 117. So while nobody knows their date of death, just calculate out to your 117th birthday and know you're going to be dead before that date, probably. Medicine will improve, but one thing there has not been much improvement on over the years is the maximum human lifespan. The average human lifespan has improved. The maximum has not. It's, it's been very tough to raise that. There's more people living past 100 than ever, but not, no one's breaking the record. And there are some theories that no matter what you do, the human body is just not made to live 120 years. So, Adelson. I don't know how much longer he's got. Your best chance for living a long time is if you're a short and thin female. You know, I'm going to take this call here. Trader's Risky, I'll connect you back on. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, Druff. Yeah, who's this? 
Hey, this is the Shushan Box. Uh, New Shushan. York Mark, the World Series of Poker Dealer. Oh. I met you a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So what's I going on? I heard you talking about that people that live a long time. Yeah. And you never believe what I was talking about with a guy today. What? The, we were talking about, there's a lot of people, we were talking specifically about some friend of his that comes from a ranch outside of Mexico City, and a, that a lot of people are born without birth certificates, that they're just tracking people that could be tracked with birth certificates, but people from like our grandfather's hometown in Italy in the Mediterranean, and, and specifically the Mexican guy in the ranch, his mother's still alive. He claims that she's 118, and he claims his father was older than her, and he's been dead a while, but he lived to 125. You know what happens? I know it sounds like they're blowing smoke, but hearing you talk about it gives more credibility to that people really live that old, and plus they got the birth certificates, and it's, you know, uh, it's a fact. Well, I'll tell you. about the French woman. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, actually, I don't believe it th- that these guys actually live that long, because... Uh, there's been a lot of unverified claims of people living really long time. There's been people who've made claims that they lived uh, to 150. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 these can never be. Village, there's a guy who says he's 130, but the old lady says no, he's only 98. Yeah, so so that, that's the problem. Is the, but he's got no birth certificate, so. But she, they know him all his life, so he's yeah. 98, but he claims to be. That, that's the problem is they, they right. can't they can't they can't verify these things. You think with all the people in the world, with with the billions of people, that there would be if there really were people who were living past 120, other than this one woman, you'd think we'd have more verified cases of it. Most people would be verifiable. So if there's a small percentage of people who don't have birth certificates and you can't verify, and they happen to be the ones claiming to live super long, that's very suspicious. So it's just that we have such a, a large sample space with this many billion people on the, on the planet, then if it really was... Right. If they really... If especially it, if they claim it. If they claim it, I don't believe them. I yeah, believe I don't either. the ones that nobody ever... They never claimed it, that other people pointing at them and saying, I come from a town... I, I would tend to believe it more from the people that never say a peep because they don't know that they even they don't know about society. They don't know about TV, radio, still in a lot of places. And I, I believe there's people that it might be in their early 100s that aren't verified. Yeah. But I don't hear. I think like you, the people that would scream it out, they're just looking for attention, and plus they they're too exposed to society to even be involved to know that they're. Uh, there's something special. Yeah, but but here, the guy, I, he was saying that the guy ate just peanuts and all, and only things that he grew on his ranch. So he was never exposed to uh, pesticides. Like right now, I'm fighting. Uh, I don't know if you know it, rough, but I had a good chance at the World Series last year. I was working with what I thought they had pneumonia. They found out I had lung cancer. And, oh, wow. Uh, they, they, I was a 30% chance not to come out of surgery at Thanksgiving. Wow. So I'm just glad to be here. Wow, that's, really, that's really bad. Let me, let me ask you about that. I'm going through the chemo, but I, I believe that the, the diets, the, the help that the older generations, people that weren't exposed to pesticides or everything, carbs, sugars that aren't everything killing us, I believe they had a better chance, like Mediterranean people in Italy, well, hold on. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question. In Mexico, I believe that it could happen. Let me, let me ask you a question here. 
Uh, about this surgery, that that's that's really getting my interest here. So you you got you entered a surgery where they put you under, and you knew there was a seventy percent chance you would not wake up. No, no, thank God. That was the joke I made with the surgeon when oh, he first uh, diagnosed. When he first, oh, I thought, I thought, I thought, joke around. I thought you I said it was. Really- I was thirty seventy. I was uh, no, I was like a pair of pocket tens. The guy told me. Or pocket no, but were you really thirty percent chance not to come out? Seventy percent chance to survive. So that's what I'm. Oh. So I told them, Doc, that's better than seventy thirty, and he didn't find it too funny. He says you're joking about your life, and I said, But Doc, I don't want to. You know, I got to keep things light because I don't want to. But, know but that's, that's what I'm asking details. though. So you, so you you really so you really went down like they put you under, and you knew there was a seventy percent chance that you would die. No, dude, it was a thirty percent chance well, okay. I would pass. Okay, well that's still, that's still pretty bad. Yeah, like uh, to be honest, if I went under for surgery and there is a zero point five percent chance I would die, it would freak me out because that's that's still too high for your life. It's good. It's good to be in a spot in poker where you have a ninety nine point five percent chance of winning. But uh, that's the same thing. The surgery, rough. My head. Well, I ain't got no hair left, but it's standing on the top of my head because that's exactly what. The doctor said that I made a joke right sitting at the table when he told me I was 30, 70. And he goes, we really don't want to do it if we don't have to. And, uh, then I told him, Doc, it's better than 70, 30. He said the exact same words almost you did. He said, if I only had a 1% chance, I would be more concerned than you are. So I think you should take this more serious. But it turned out this guy was, he was a blessing, an angel. He had some balls because I found out later that his doctors that were in him with there, that they were going to, they told him to sew me back up, send me home because it was more intricate than they thought. And so he told me that was the, and he's a heart transplant surgeon on top of it. He's a, he's a, this guy's the real deal. And he told me, Mark, you were the toughest case I ever had. And he says, I had to step back three times to catch a breath and go back in it. And he said, some reason I like you. And you know, rough. With my voice and the way I look, people, when I say hello or try to help an old lady across the street, they think I'm trying to mug them. Or if I just tell you hello, how you doing, you think I'm angry at you. And uh, so this guy, he took a liking to me. I guess it was because before the surgery, he seen that I'm at peace with everything and I'm down with whatever he says. So he didn't even want to do surgery at first. He thought he could do some chemo. But then he seen it, and all of a sudden, I felt something wrong, because he said, we're going to go next week for surgery. And I said, holy shit, already? All right? So, so are you... Are you uh, Thanks- this was over Thanksgiving, and I couldn't believe it. He came to see me on Thanksgiving. I, I've got some this questions for you. It was unbelievable. So I guess I was more than 30, because the other doctor would have sewed me up, he told me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. here. want to sew you up and send you home. No, I'm glad it worked out. So now, um, how old are you? I'm f- I, well, I was diagnosed on the on the Day of Atonement. I was 55. Then I turned 56 Halloween. Yeah, see, that's that's. So I was 55 when I got diagnosed, and believe me, it was a shock because I quit smoking cigarettes 20 years ago. Oh wow! And uh, that was gonna be I my next question. I never ate meat my whole life. I don't know. I thought I was. I thought I would have died of a heart attack before I got cancer. Put yeah. it that way. So, so where's the stand right you now? Is, 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 how do you look right now? What's what are your? Uh... Now I'm, I gained some weight back. He says my blood work is good. I've done two rounds of chemo. I got to do two more, two more rounds every three weeks. I go. So, do you think there's a good chance you're going? Does it seem like a good chance you're going to live like a, you know another twenty years or so? He didn't say that. I didn't ask him. He, 
they told me, they said that people like you could get cleaned up, you could live another 20, 30 years. But he says, uh, the only thing is, we know that he, the surgeon knew once he'd done the surgery, he says, you know, there's going to be some particles left and that uh, you got to hit it with the chemo now. He said, I needed to get in there because it was more serious than they thought. So I, yeah, I didn't well, know. I asked you I bad. Have, that's, that's... I had one of them helped medical power of attorney, a lady to help me, because I didn't want to know anything except my next appointment. So I would step out of the room. But before the surgery, I guess he had to tell me I was only a 30% and that, uh, you know, he had to tell me that up front. And he told me not to joke about it, to really t think about it. And I gave him my answer right then. I said, I ain't even got a doubt. 30, 70, let's do this. Yeah, well, I'm, gl he, I'm glad it worked out. in my life because I don't think I could have got... It was a six-hour surgery, yeah. and I don't think I could have got through it if, if I would have had chemos first. Now, now you've, you've, so I think the surgery's smart. He gave me a shot anyway, Druff, you know what I mean? Yeah, now you've... you've, you've he gave uh, me a shot. I, I've got a question I for you. I bad the whole World Series of Poke. I'm usually... I never EO. I never miss a day. And I passed out in the parking lot July 4th, and I asked out after 12 hours. They thought I just wanted to get off for the holiday. Yeah, and they nice. know, and and then well, I, and my girlfriend forced me when I got laid off, forced me that week to go to the doctor. He said you've been working with pneumonia for two months. That's amazing. And so trying to fix the pneumonia is when they found out I had the right lung cancer, and I only and I only had to take care for lung. That's amazing. So let me and, ask you something separate. I'm going to ask you a separate question. So so uh, how many times do you think you've dealt to me at the World Series? Oh man, I dealt to you. I got the, it's hard lately, but in the early years, I dealt to you quite a bit because it wasn't that crowded. But then I think about two years ago, the, when they started that 888 or some crazy big tournament where there was like 20,000 people, it was the first one like that. You were at my table when I got to go deal to you, dude. Yeah, I remember that. So, and, uh, no, no, I told you, I, yeah. did you notice, did you notice that when, do you notice when you deal to me that it seems like I run well? No, you run good when I deal yeah. with you. And not only you run good, people give you action because you don't wear your bracelet. <laughs> and I remember telling a guy in the break rooms, I said, you see a lot of these players, they got bracelets, they don't even wear them. Well, you know what? Uh, let me tell you something. Because um, they're out of the loop. Like you, people give you action still. I don't know why. Well, let me tell you something. Actually, I, sometimes it is better. I don't know what this noise is with Skype here. What is it doing here? <laughs> yeah, I dealt to you since 2005 at the Rio. You've been coming in there. I think I used to see Binions, but I couldn't break the chops as a dealer at Binions. No, I wasn't. I wasn't a Binions player. Now you didn't see me there, but you're right. In 05, I was there. And uh, but yeah, it's fine. whenever there's someone that listens to the show or who I know personally, and they deal to me, I always run well. And I, it, it's amazing. Like someone shows up, and, and I know they're a, sh a listener to the show, or someone who who. who uh, who knows me personally? I think, oh, great! I'm going to start winning now, and then I start winning, and then when they lose, then I start, then I start running bad. If, if you if you dealt to me all the time, I'd probably win the, the several bracelets every year. It's crazy that uh, it's but some reason. The odds of me getting a deal to you with twenty thousand people. Yeah, I remember that. Run. I remember that and in the '88. Yeah, I, and I cashed in that one. So yeah, I tell you, but when when you deal to me, you I run well. Get, wow, that was a huge one. Yeah. So okay, well, wow, well they're going to do one this year. They're going to do this one this year with five hundred dollars, and uh, they're not even going to have to pay the juice for the first. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to play that one. I will play that one. Maybe you'll be able to. Are you going to deal again this year? 
You think he'll be healthy enough? Uh, well, the doctor said he's going to get me better to deal it, and I asked him about my concern. My biggest concern is the germs yeah. from all the people because my immune system, I'm learning about all these things. I don't think that I'm a genius about all this shit. And my immune system could be susceptible because he said, both two doctors told me that that's the most worst place you could handle it. It is, I agree. Send the guy <laughs> that's immune system is down to send them to work in the poker tournament with people not washing their hands, touching the chips. The felt ain't been cleaned in 15 years. Uh, there's germs all over there. That, and I'm good about never touching my willy or my eyes when I get out of the box. I always wash my hands no matter what, you know, before I do anything. But imagine, I don't know, I can't wear a mask. What do you think? Uh, well, you know, it's it, it, no, it's a good point. You may want to be if, if your if your immune system is having issues with this, uh, then I hate this when I when I. That's a lot of germs over there. But the doctor said there's a medicine that he's going to start to give me that'll take a month to kick in that'll help me the immune system and that he don't see no problem with me working. The the, the first guy I went to that found the cancer, the phlemologist. Well, I don't know. They're called pulmonologists. The pulmonologist, yeah. He told me that it's a, it's not a good job to work with an immune system. He said that's where I might have caught the pneumonia. Yeah, that's possible. A good chance that you got sick at the World Series of Poker. That's possible. Okay, well, th thanks for calling. I, I hope everything works out there, and I hope to see you this year at the World I, Series. I appreciate and... it, but can you do me one favor? What? Last week I listened to, I haven't listened, but I'm listening now. I tried to play the free tournament last week and this week, and I could, I tried to register. It says I need permission. Okay, well, you so, could give me permission yeah, to yeah, lock yeah, me in there? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So what you got to do is you got to send me a PM on the site and, and give me your name on there. Are you Shoeshine Box on there, too? Well, on real, on real grinding, just anyone. On, on, on poker fraud alert, send me a PM and I'll give you permission. Okay, my name's Shoeshine Box, New York okay. Mark. All right. Okay. Okay. And I see you this summer, and I can't wait to deal to you. And you're a very good player. And don't let nobody tell you that you you can't keep up with these young kids because they don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Well, thank they you. They still give you the action, these kids. Okay. Okay. Th thank you, New York. Mark. And I wish you the best and peace. All right. All right. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye -bye. Thank you. That was an interesting character. <laughs> I I know that I know who that guy is. Yeah. He's uh, um, he he. He even once uh, he dealt to me once at the World Series, and he even told everybody at the table, "You know who this guy is? This guy, you know, he fights all the scum and poker, and you know he he, he does good things." <laughs> he lectured the table about how uh, how I'm good for poker. I appreciate that. That was that was very nice of him to say. And uh, yeah, I remember though. I remember whenever this guy is there, whenever he deals to me, I just I run so well, and he's right. I get action too. Like I I run well, I get action. But my chip stack goes up, up, up when he deals to me. I just think like whenever anybody deals to me who listens to this show or knows me, they just must think I'm the best player ever because I just don't, I don't ever lose. Once they leave, I lose. But when they're here, I don't lose. But boy, that was a story there to find you have lung cancer last November and then just you know, know you got to go to surgery where it's a 30% chance you're not going to wake up. That... I don't know. I don't know how to ha how I would handle that. I don't know how I'd handle going to sleep, like having them put me down, knowing that. That's a substantial chance. So I'm, I'm glad that the guy seems to be getting better, and it's going the right direction. 
I didn't hear the lung cancer part. Oh, you didn't hear that? I thought it was just pneumonia. No, 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 no. no. Maybe he, that was when you were clicking me on. I didn't have Oh, maybe, maybe that is what happened. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he said he got diagnosed with lung cancer in November. And then they had to immediately, wow. immediately operate. And they told him right before he... I guess he said he had somebody just... He didn't want to know things, so he just had somebody doing it for him. And then when they, before put him under, the doctor just felt they had to warn him, look, there's a 30% chance you're going to die from the surgery. And then he also said the doctor insisted to complete it that they, the other doctors present thought it was a hopeless case and it was better just to close him up and tell him, you know, sorry, nothing we can do. We'll just make you comfortable. But this doctor... Yeah, and no, I heard that part. Yeah, the doctor went a, after it. It's amazing. He lucked out. Yeah, the doctor didn't give up and clean most of it up. So it's, you know, you're never out of the woods of these things, but it's a, as it sounds like he's in good shape as you can be after something like this. So that's, that's good. There's some... That's uh, that's fortunate for uh, for him, and uh, he, he's a nice guy. His, his character, obviously, he's a uh, interesting guy. But uh, yeah, I always liked him. So I think it's the first time he's called radio, though. Okay, I want to talk about uh, a different type of character at Casino Arizona. Casino Arizona. Not Casino, it's a Talking Stick, which I think it may have been once Casino Arizona. I'd always thought it was Casino Arizona at Talking Stick, but now it's just called Talking Stick Resort. I don't know enough about the casinos there to tell you that much. But there was a fight that occurred there, which started off not as a fight. Have you seen this one yet, Traderuski? It's been making its rounds in the poker community, these videos. I don't, th- I don't think so. Okay. I saw one, maybe, I don't know. It's been a rough week. Okay, well, this, this, this just happened. <laughs> I don't want to see it. So this is, uh, you, you can watch it separately. You won't be able to hear this, and, of course, you guys can't see it. But there is a guy in this first video. There's a two-part video. It's posted by posted by Justin Petchy. He's Lushel, L-O-O-S-H-L-E. That's who posted it, not who was involved. He was there. He was physically there, but he wasn't involved in any of the altercation. He's a World Series of Poker bracelet winner. He used to play on Stars all the time, and the, I, I played, I've played a lot with him before in the Limit Hold'em games. So he's a poker pro, and he filmed this on his phone. So what he was first filming was a guy walking around ranting throughout Talking Stick, and I'll just play it for you guys to listen. Now, you may have trouble understanding. Don't worry. I have trouble understanding, too. I have no idea what he's saying, but he, he's just ranting with his arms flailing about. And uh, In case you wonder, it's, it's a black guy. It's a black guy. Doesn't look that young, though. Kind of looks like a middle-aged black guy, just ranting crazily. So I think he's saying, I paid my rake like everybody else, but they're going to kick me out. Fuck the dealers, he's saying. (laughs) 
else is he's walking around. You can't see this. It's a, you can go look at this on Justin Pesci's Twitter, but this guy is walking around ranting like this through the poker area of the casino. He's not just standing in one spot. I'm not losing, motherfucker! I'm not losing, motherfuckers. And he's carrying two racks of $1 chips. So he, this was not over a high-stakes game. He was apparently playing low-stakes limit hold'em. And I was told this started, of all things, because he missed his big blind. <laughs> he just flipped out. I don't know what he got so mad about, but maybe he had just missed posting the blind and they wouldn't back up the hand. I'm just guessing on that part. But the, something about missing the blind, people were saying, caused this. And then he got mad and, uh, I don't know, some, it escalated and then they're telling him they're kicking him out. So at this point, he's running around ranting. Fuck the dealers! Fuck the dealers. I'm not losing! Fuck you, you black bitch! <laughs> he says, I'm not losing. He said that a few times. I think he's trying to tell people, I'm not flipping out because I'm losing and bitter. I'm actually not losing. I'm, I'm just pissed. So he says, the last thing in this first part is, fuck you, you black bitch. Now, he's black himself. I don't know who the black bitch is that he's yelling at, but uh, maybe it was a, a woman who told him to stop and he said fuck you you black bitch and then that's how the video ends i i think that i i guess justin Pesci had to cut this in two parts i i can't imagine he would stop filming after fuck you you black bitch that's, that's when i would start filming i wouldn't stop filming when that guy says that but the, again this is how it ends Okay, so if you see the very end of this first video and see where it stops, you see there is a guy who quickly has jumped on this ranting guy's back. A white guy has jumped on the black guy's back and puts him in a headlock. And that's where the video freezes. Now for part two. I can't take any calls right now, people. So that that that. Sorry about this background. So I, I wish I could turn off Skype from doing this crap. I don't know why it does this. Anyway. Um, The sound of chips falling was exactly as you would expect. He was carrying two racks of white $1 chips, and he got tackled from the back by a white guy who puts him in a headlock. This white guy is not an employee there. It's not clear why the white guy tackled him. Maybe he just felt like someone needed to get him under control. It wasn't the right thing to do, but this is what happened. So the white guy tackled him, the chips fell everywhere, and here we go. So you may wonder what you're hearing. You're hearing a big melee of a bunch of people fighting. So they're attempting to separate them. Uh, This guy, this black guy is just struggling and punching at everybody. Everyone's trying to stop it. A lot of people are getting knocked down and 
it's a big mess. In the meantime, the two men here are fighting with each other, too. Security, the floor men are trying to stop it, and they're getting knocked all over the place. And that's that's security. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. It's like these guys in these uh, yellow security outfits are finally there after all this. And what's amazing here now is instead of security getting right in there and stopping it, they're still letting the floor men get these guys under control. Now they mostly have them under control by this point. We think security would say, "Okay, you know, we'll take over." They just kind of stood back. And slowly moved in. Like, they really didn't want any part of this. Okay, so that, they're saying relax, and they're going to arrest the guy. So they, they did arrest him. I don't know if they arrested the second guy who jumped him. Uh, it's amazing that security took so long to get there. This was almost two minutes in when security got there. Talking Stick is not a huge place. Security should run over when they hear the ranting. And when they hear this ranting, if someone should call them immediately, like a floor man should call them, and they should rush over there, they should sprint over there, they should definitely get there and put a stop to this. But I don't know what took them two minutes, but I've seen this before where casino security is super slow in getting to something happening. Now, what's interesting about this video, to me, personally, is I saw something like this about... Uh, a week and a half ago. More than a week, two and a half weeks ago, when I was at the LAPC. In the cash section of Commerce, there was also a black guy who was ranting very much like this one, who was also about to be kicked out. And he was there cashing out his chips, and he was yelling just incoherent stuff over and over, and fuck you, fuck your mother, you know, just just obscenities over and over and over. It wasn't even clear who he was yelling at. But everybody was standing back. The floor men were standing back. The security was there. They're standing back. Nobody's doing anything. So the guy's just yelling and yelling and yelling and creating this disturbance there, and nobody is doing anything to him. And he doesn't have any weapons. There's no reason why they can't approach him and get him under control. What are they paying the security guards for? And I understand it's important to show restraint. It's better to have security show restraint than to be abusive with people. But I had thought if you're going to create an obvious disturbance like that and yell like a madman over and over and over again, that security will grab you and forcibly eject you. And if I, if I were to do this myself, which I wouldn't, but if I were to do it myself and then get forcibly ejected, I wouldn't go, oh my God, how could security do this to me? Why can't I just stand there and scream in the casino? And again, this wasn't someone who's just having a spirited argument with the floor man or something. We're talking about a guy screaming at the top of his lungs, like this guy was here in this video. And we were all sitting here in, in the high limit section of the poker room, and, and we're just wondering why doesn't security remove this guy? Why why are they letting him do this? And we never really got an answer. What, like, what's the point of having security if they're just going to stand there while some guy is yelling? And then shouting obscenities, and it seemed like seemingly very aggressive and threatening. 
Because the problem is if you don't confront one of these guys, if, if another patron... I mean, here in this video, a guy attacked him, so uh, it was the fault of the guy who just jumped him. But it could easily happen that someone would, would approach the ranting guy and get clocked in the face. So that's why you need to remove customers like that who act that way. And that's what security's for. And I would think if you're uncomfortable doing such a job of taking such action, then you shouldn't be security. So security does come with some risk, that job. You have a risk of getting killed. You have a risk of injury while dealing with uh, belligerent, aggressive people. You're, you're basically acting as law enforcement for the place until actual law enforcement can get there. And they have a right to detain people who do things like this. Detain or at least eject. And a guy screaming obscenities in a ranting fashion for a while, they, they do have a right to f- either tell him, go outside now, or and then if he doesn't listen, grab him and remove him. And they should. Here, security was just really slow. And then even once they see the floor man struggling to hold the guy down, and they're just gonna, you know, strolling over there. That was the most shocking thing about this whole video. It was security's poor response to it. And where is that place, Struff? This is in the Phoenix area. It's called Talking Stick Resort. I used to think it was called Casino Arizona at Talking Stick, but maybe I'm confused, but that's what it was called, to my knowledge. But now it's just called Talking Stick Resort. It is located in, in, in Scottsdale, which is in the greater Phoenix area. And a lot of people like going there from the Phoenix area because it's not that far from Phoenix, and a lot of people live in Scottsdale, which is a suburb of Phoenix. Scottsdale is like directly northeast of Phoenix. And in fact, it's pretty big. Talking Stick is also fairly close to Paradise Valley, which is a fairly wealthy neighborhood in Phoenix. Or the Phoenix area. Uh, I've I've been in those areas before. I'm trying to think if I've been to Talking Stick. I was at one of them for sure. I'm not sure which one it was though. It's an Indian casino. They also have the Fort McDowell Casino, but that's further east. Talking Stick is is pretty close to Scottsdale. Like it's right next to it. It's even listed as Scottsdale. And it, it has a hotel attached to it, too. That's interesting. I think they'd be more apt to, uh, you know, to just grab the guy and handle things. Since it's an Indian casino, they probably have less liability than, like, a commerce would. If yeah, yeah, being an Indian, you're right. up beating the shit out of the guy or something. Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think of that. But, yes, an Indian casino can totally get away with this. Yeah, if anyone has a problem, they have to take it up with the tribal elders. And you know that, you know how that'll go. Exactly. But still, it's like the security guards themselves, especially in commerce. It's like, how much are they making? Do they want to deal with that? Yeah, it seems like they don't. And uh, yeah, it was once called Casino Arizona at Talking Stick. I knew I wasn't crazy. And it opened in 1999 
with slot machines and table games. In 2003, then they expanded to include uh, blackjack, poker, casino, and a sports bar. I wonder what table games they had then in 99 if it wasn't blackjack. But uh, I went there, either there or somewhere very similar to it around then. Somewhere around 05 or 06. And I see. It uh, said on April 15, 2010, Talking Stick Resort opened on the former casino of Arizona. Okay, so I see. They they basically redid it and called it Talking Stick Resort in 2010. Also, you don't think of this happening in Phoenix, but a monsoon storm came in August 2018 and flooded their generator and backup generator, as well as parts of the hotel and casino. So they had to evacuate everybody and do a massive cleanup, which kept it closed for a month and a half. I think I remember this. Wow. Who would expect that uh, flood damage in Phoenix would occur? What it did. You think of Phoenix as a place that just doesn't have much rain. Yeah, especially in, did you say August? Yeah. I would, that's that's weird. Well, see, this is what happens. Yeah, I see this in Vegas, too, sometimes. And this is what we don't see in L.A. L.A. has often not a drop of rain falls the entire summer. Uh, Vegas gets these very heavy thunderstorms, which are usually brief but heavy, like super heavy, which cause flooding. So I've seen flooding in Vegas in July. I, I once saw flooding... Uh, I once saw a storm that was so heavy it punched a hole through the roof at the World Series, and there was that they actually had to close a table because there was water dripping on it. So they they get that in the desert, these super strong storms that come in the summer, but they aren't very long. But so much water comes down in a short time, it, it can cause flooding. L.A. gets more of the you know, L.A. gets almost nothing, almost no rain at all. Sometimes just totally no rain at all in the summer and then in the winter LA gets more of just steady storms that dump rain over at kind of like a steady rate over a period of days so it's it's different in fact the, the storm LA just had was unusual it, it had a lot of thunder and lightning and uh, heavy periods followed by nothing that, that that's more typical of other areas of the country Also, says your Talking Stick Resort is home to the Arena Poker Room that features forty-nine tables, including Texas Hold'em, Seven Cards, Stud, and Omaha. If they've got forty-nine tables, they can't post one security guard there. Is that too much? Is that too hard? Or at least near there? Can't believe it took them two minutes to get over there. And then they, they stroll over, like there's a big fight going on, and people being knocked down and thrown everywhere. <laughs> the, the security just strolls over. No big deal. Just re- Yeah. Now, was the one you saw, you said there was one at Commerce at, in the last few weeks? Yeah, but there's no fight. It was just like a ranting guy where nobody attacked him, and he didn't attack anyone. Oh, but, okay. but security was there and just standing there as the guy ranted and ranted and ranted for like 10 minutes. Or more. And we were laughing at the table when he started telling him, fuck your mama. Fuck, fuck 
you, fuck your mama, we, uh, fuck your whore mama, things like that. And uh, just want to say, he just say, fuck your whore mama? I said, yep, that's what he said. Fuck your whore mama. I don't know whose whore mama he was talking about, but it, it was really loud. And the guy was by the cage. I'm not sure. Like, he had his chips. So I don't know if he was mad he was being ejected like this other guy. I, I don't know. I don't even know what the reason was for this. There was no violence, fortunately, though. I do worry when things like this happen that if the guy's crazy enough that, like, what if he comes back with a gun and just shoots up the place? I was like, maybe I should just leave now before he returns. But, you know, the degenerate in me just kept playing through caution to the wind. He did not return, at least not while I was there. So with people with cell phone and videos... How, how were you running at the time? Uh, it, it was kind of okay. You know, it was kind of up and down. I, I, wasn't, I was kind of spinning my wheels around even, to be honest. So I, I had just busted the 08 tournament in 19th place, seven short of the money. So that was frustrating. All right. I want to talk about the advantage player lawsuit. This one is... A disturbing story in two ways. And this shows what kind of danger you're putting yourself in when you engage in advantage play. Not to say you shouldn't do it, but just... It's not always as straightforward as you think that when you engage in advantage play that as long as you don't cheat, that nothing will happen to you. And we even saw with Phil Ivey. He didn't get arrested, but he uh, they sued him and, and took the money back. Or trying to take the money back now. It's really wreaking havoc, but this actually involved an arrest that, from everything I can see, seems like it was a false arrest. Now, this occurred back in 2014, but there's a lawsuit that was just filed. So the story I just read about this was dated today. So it's, it's a current story about something five years ago that's now ongoing. So two advantage players, Paul Jovanich and Svetoslav Durabinov, probably a Russian, but they both live in, uh, in Las Vegas. They have filed a new civil lawsuit at the Will, Co- the Will County Courthouse in Illinois against Caesars Entertainment, Harris Joliet, the Illinois State, uh, sorry, an Illinois State police officer named David Sandnack, and the Illinois Gaming Board for false arrest and malicious prosecution. Now they already had a case filed in U.S. District Court, but it was dismissed in 2018 because it lacked federal jurisdiction. So this is a refiling of the lawsuit in county court. The Their attorney said that this involved something that actually occurred five years ago today, exactly. March 6, 2014. And they were criminally indicted, quote, for allegedly manipulating Kino machines in the Harris Joliet Casino Hotel and for structuring their wins to avoid currency transaction reports. Now, these are two very different things. The Manipulating Kino machines means they're cheating in some way, which, by the way, I don't believe to be true, which we'll get to. And the structuring, that's that's not related to casino play. That's a federal reporting requirement having to do with cash. 
that any kind of cash transaction in the U.S. more than $10,000 has to be reported to the IRS, and this is to prevent money laundering. So in order to prevent people from doing several transactions slightly smaller than 10000 like let's say you want to do a transaction for 45000 instead of doing it in one shot of 45000 and having to fill out the paperwork, you do five transactions of 9000 that, That's illegal. You can't do that. It's called structuring. Uh, now, how can they tell the difference between five legitimate transactions that happen to be less than 10000 versus... Structuring? Well, they, they, that's uh, it's an inexact science. They've just got to they got to figure it out. They can use various criteria to tell if it's something that should be five transactions. Like like for example, let, let's say I play poker on five consecutive days, and on those five consecutive days, I win seven thousand, six thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand, and four thousand, and each day I cash out. Well, that's fine because I can show that I played poker on all five of those days and won all five of those days, so I wasn't structuring. I was just cashing out my winnings, which is fine. And it happened to be less than 10K each time. That's fine. I didn't do anything illegal. However, if I won uh, 33000 on one day and then I just kept coming back to the casino for the next five days without playing and, and cashing out slowly, that's structuring. And there they could make a structuring case against me if they were to catch me doing that. Uh, most people who engage in structuring don't get caught, but occasionally they do. There, there's actually a lot of pressure on casinos to report suspected structuring, which is why they will often ask for your ID when you're cashing out something like uh, $2,000 or more. Some casinos were tougher with that than others. I mentioned on the last show, I think, that commerce was amazingly lax about that. You could walk up there and say, yeah, I'd like $9,999, please, from these chips, and they'll, they'll do it, and they, they won't ask you another question. You could jump over to the next uh, cashier and do it again, and nobody would ask anything. It was, it was the strangest thing. I'm not saying I did this. I'm saying that uh, this could have been done back then, but they've totally changed only in the last like six months or so. And now I think it's around 2000 that they make you show ID to cash out. I cashed out like 1200 the other day and they did not make me show ID. So I think 2000 is probably the magic number over there that I'm, I'm not sure. That's just my guess. Every casino just decides for themselves what it is, but they have to do. They have to. Their requirement is to take reasonable care in order to prevent structuring. They're, they're not required to do massive investigations to catch people structuring, but they, on the other hand, uh, they have to take some steps to prevent it. And if they have insufficient steps in place to prevent structuring, they can get in trouble and be fined. So anyway, this, uh, these these two guys are accused of structuring and cheating in Keno some way, the Keno machines. Now, how do you trick a key? How, how would you, how would you cheat in a Kino machine? You might wonder. I wonder that too, because these machines are carefully designed to where, yeah, they're electronic. What what can you do to cheat them? Now, what the law typically is involving advantage play at machines is that anything you do that uh, does not involve some kind of device. So if you use any kind of outside device to give yourself an advantage, then that, uh, that could be considered cheating. Such a, one, one way people used to use magnets on those old school slot machines to make them 
go a certain way or people would use things to to put coins in the machine and pull the coins back out to there's a lot of old tricks like that that were illegal that were cheating so you can't use any device and you also can't do anything that would uh knowingly exploit a, a flaw to cheat so let's say like if you found a way to to press certain buttons of the machine and and just um, enter some sort of admin mode and, and program it to, to give you a jackpot every time. I'm just making this up. This, this hasn't happened. That that could be considered cheating. But uh, advantage play, like let's say you notice a video poker machine that pays 150% instead of 99%. Let's say they just set up the tables wrong. Even if you know that it was a misset pay table, if you sit down and play it, uh, at 150% and win a lot of money, they have to pay you and they can't charge you with anything because you're not cheating. Uh, if you notice any other kind of advantage play that just you can play within the way the machine's set up, within the rules of the machine, and just have it to where the odds are in your favor, then it is not cheating and they cannot arrest you and they have to pay you. In most jurisdictions, they can kick you out but they have to pay you and they can't arrest you. So what about this manipulating Kino machines accusation? What does that mean in this case? And why is structuring involved? Is that perhaps something they just kind of stuck on there to persecute these guys for engaging in advantage play? Were they looking for something to arrest them for? Or perhaps were they not even structuring and they're just falsely accused of it? And structuring is something that's subjective. Well, this is what the lawyer said. He said the malicious prosecution lasted for more than a year and it resulted in time-consuming proceedings and court hearings for the two men. The lawyer said each plaintiff faced between 14 and 22 felony charges designed to circumvent clear-cut cheating statute under the Illinois Riverboat Gaming Act. Huh. By the way, it's called the Riverboat Gaming Act because in Illinois, like in many states, you can only have casinos on riverboats. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Harris Joliet's not on a riverboat. Well, well. Uh, <laughs> what happened over the years, and I've talked about this before, is that they were able to get exceptions made to where instead of requiring these casinos to actually be on a boat, the, the case that was being made was, hey, why, why does it have to be a boat? You know, it's a, you say it's got to be something on the river. Well, this, this is the progression. First it was that the boat has to actually be like moving on the river. And the, the reason this was allowed is, hey, you know, we're on a boat. It's not something on land. It's not creating a problem on land. If people want to gamble on a boat, let them. Then it turned into, okay, but why should the boat have to move? Like, why, why can't the boat just sit there? Does the, why, why, why does it have to make a pointless trip back and forth on the river? Why can't it just sit, sit on the docks? Okay, fine. That makes sense. Then it became, well, why does it have to be a boat? Why can't it just be a, a, a building right on the river? Okay. Well, but why does it have to be right on the river? That's kind of dangerous. Why, why can't the building be you know, this many feet away from the river? Oh, okay, so that so now we have all these casinos like Harris Joliet, which are not on boats; they're actually sitting right next to the river. 
like like pretty close to the river they're, they're sitting, and that's where they have to be. They can't be very far from the river, but that's why you have these casinos in places like Illinois that are right along the river, which we'll get to in a later segment, causes some disasters when they're flooding. So that, that's what they're talking about, the Riverboat Gaming Act. So that's basically their laws of gambling, in, uh, casino gambling in Illinois. So getting back to this, this story here. So 14 and 22, I guess one for one person, one for the other, felony charges. Wow. And the lawyer claims that these are BS charges and that what they're actually doing is circumventing what is the requirement that there has to be clear-cut cheating. So that is, they can't just guess they're cheating or say, oh, I think this kind of constitutes cheating. It has to be clear-cut cheating where a reasonable person would say for sure that's cheating. That, that's what uh, that's basically what the lawyer is saying is the statute in Illinois. I don't know. I've never read it, but that's what he's claiming. Now, he goes on to write, the clear-cut cheating statute is a statute under which, had plaintiffs been properly charged, it would have been self-evident to any reasonable grand jury that the plaintiffs were not guilty of any wrongdoing at all. So this this is uh, what happened. They they were arrested in 2014, and this has to do with a, a casino with a Kino machine in uh, in Harris Joliet. This is what happened. These guys are advantage players. They're always looking for games they can play where they have the edge over the house. In April 2013, one of their friends named Randy Binning discovered these new Kino machines at some Harris and that found that the pay tables were wrong. So much that even though Kino is a very much a losing game, Kino is a terrible game to play odds-wise. But that not only was it better than normal, but that these odds were actually a positive expectation to play Kino. So again, how's that cheating? It's not cheating. It's, it's Even if you realize this is better than usual, you don't. it is not up to the customer to reason out why is the machine set this way. If the machine is set this way, you play it as it's set, and that, that's the way it is. I don't know of any jurisdiction where that's illegal. So noticing this, that's obviously a play. That's what's known as a play in the advantage world. And what people do when they discover these plays is they either keep it to themselves or sometimes they will tell friends who then are expected to tell them about advantage plays they find. Or sometimes they'll get friends in on it to share a bankroll because there's still variance. So... To, to bring down the variance, they will share a bankroll. Anyway, what happened here was that Randy Binning traveled from uh, Vegas to Harris Joliet and played it pretty aggressively for 18 days and won, quote, a significant amount of money. It's not disclosed how much, but the guy won a lot in 18 days, just hammering it over and over and over again. He must have thought he was in heaven. The lawyer said there was nothing illegal about what Mr. Binning, who, by the way, is not someone who was charged here. But it's, it's not uh, 
There's nothing illegal about Mr. about Mr. Binning playing those machines. He learned about these apparent better payouts from other casino patrons who had discovered them. He did not receive inside information from or collude with anyone at the manufacturing company. So he that's important to make clear because it is cheating to have someone at the manufacturing company purposely manufacture this machine with an incorrect pay table and say, hey, that's going to be at Harris Joliet, so go play it, win a bunch of money, and give me half. Like a, That would be very illegal. But for someone who is not getting any tips from insiders at the casino, or at least not from someone who had the power to set this machine... Like for another example, if someone at the casino sets the machine, a casino employee sets the machine at these pay tables and then calls his friends and says, hey, this is a positive expectation machine, go play. That, again, is illegal. That would be considered cheating. But the lawyer is insisting that the original one to discover this, Randy Binning, just found it. He claimed he got information from other people at the casino. I don't really believe that. I think he probably found it himself. It's possible someone goes, oh, wow, I've never seen payouts this good. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> he, just, he doesn't fully tell them what they've discovered and then uh, quickly goes back to Vegas, gets a bunch of money, and then returns to Joliet and just hammers it super hard for 18 days. That's what I'm guessing happened. And I believe it. The lawyer says, after, mis- after Mr. Binning discovered the advantageous Kino machines, he shared the information with a friend of his, and that is the, uh, the Dorobinov uh, guy, who then later shared the information with a friend of his, and that's a, this Jovanovich guy. Jovanich. So they both went from Las Vegas and also traveled to Harris Joliet to play the machines. However, within 48 hours of when Mr. Durabinov and uh, Mr. Jovanich showed up, the casino turned off the, the Kino games. Probably because they discovered that the casinos were catching on. What happens is the casinos like to audit their machines fairly often to make sure that one machine isn't paying out way too much. So when they notice a machine is paying out too much or is getting unusual action compared to other machines around it, then they take a closer look. That's that's a way they can tell that advantage players are hitting something. So these things never last long. That's why you got to hit them fast when you find something like this. And they knew that. They, now, the casino does not have any requirement to leave it on. It's, it's not the casino's problem that, that uh, Drobinoff and Jovanich traveled all the way from Las Vegas, and then two days later the machine was turned off. It's, whenever it gets turned off, it's turned off, and that's it. The, the word got around, and a machine in uh, Tunica also got turned off the day before. So they were already thinking that the jig is about up. So it went off in Tunica, and then the next day it went off at Harris Joliet. Looks like maybe it was a manufacturing error. I don't know. Because it was in multiple casinos. So, this is uh, where the story gets really weird and disturbing. Upon seeing that there's no point to remain there at Harris Joliet, now that the machine was turned off, they decided to leave. So, for whatever reason... Um, they rented a car to drive home to Las Vegas instead of fly home. I don't know if it's because they won a lot of money, they didn't want to take it on the plane. Whatever it is, they decided to rent a car. Now, uh, Dorobinoff had an existing rental car he was using to drive around 
Joliet. But uh, he ended up returning that car and renting a new one, probably because he got a better deal on a one-way rental all the way to Vegas, where the one he just rented there was just for local driving. Probably if he had driven it all the way to Vegas, it would have been more, much more expensive that way. So he, he switched around to a different company. That's probably why he did it. But what, for whatever reason, which I think was something like that, he returned the rental car he had upon landing in Joliet and rented one from a different company. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, this is where civil forfeiture comes into the matter. Because Randy Binning, he was there too, uh, he had rented a car also in Joliet. He drove to Tunica. Then after everything was turned off, Randy Binning said, well, no point to stay here, and was going to drive back to Las Vegas in that same car from Tunica. I guess he didn't feel like returning and getting another one for a better deal. So Randy Binning left Tunica, went on that long drive by himself back to Vegas, only to be stopped by police in Flagstaff, Arizona, where they confiscated his winnings that were in the car of one million dollars. No, but but four hundred thousand dollars. Four hundred thousand dollars. Randy Binning handed the car got confiscated by the police in Flagstaff, Arizona. Then, within forty-eight hours, he had a safety deposit box in Bank of America in Joliet with another 190000 I don't know why he didn't empty that, but it had 190000 It was closed and seized by police. So he had $590,000 gone. I don't know how much of that was his original bankroll, how much of his winnings, but uh, $590,000, this is Randy Binning, gone. Now, why do you think... Why do you think that Randy Binning was so unlucky to get stopped in Flagstaff, Arizona with $400,000 in the car, and then they searched it? This wasn't just like a traffic stop because he was speeding. They, they pulled him over, searched his car, found $400,000, and confiscated it using the civil forfeiture method, which is super unethical, basically legalized stealing we've talked about here. How did that happen? Now, Illinois and Arizona are nowhere near one another. But how did that happen? Well, recall we talked on this show about two poker pros, Barton Davis and John Numerzicki, who had won a World Series of Poker event at Harris Joliet a few years ago and won $100,000 in cash. They were on their way back to, I think, uh, Los Angeles. Another long drive there on their way back. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was Los Angeles. And in Iowa, a police officer pulled them over, claimed it was a drug investigation, and confiscated all the money. And then they would not give it back, and they, they had a whole lawsuit to get the cash back. And in that lawsuit, in the court proceedings... The Iowa police officer who had pulled them over and confiscated the money had claimed in his report that he originally pulled them over because of failure to signal. 
But then they watched the dash camera, and it turned out that there was no failure to signal, that they just pulled him over for no reason. And I always wondered, even though it was an out-of-state car, how did they know? How did they know all the way in Iowa, which you know is not as far away as Arizona is from there, but how did they know in Iowa to pull over this particular car that these particular guys, who otherwise didn't look suspicious, they're just two middle-aged white guys, how did they know to pull over that car and search it and find $100,000? How did they know that? I always wondered, was this just really, really bad luck? Or were they tipped off some way? Were the officers in Iowa tipped off in some way? And keep in mind, they did nothing illegal. They, they won this money legally at the World Series of Poker, uh, some, kind of, some kind of circuit event there, and, and then uh, at Harris-Joliet, and then were driving that money back home. Nothing illegal. So why were they pulled over? Well, finally, that officer admitted in court that he was acting on a be-on-the-lookout be tip from another officer. So that was very suspicious. Why were they on the lookout for that car? Where did they get the information to look for that car? Well, it was assumed that someone knew they won $100,000 and were driving it home. And then... Various jurisdictions with civil forfeiture kind of did each other favors and said, hey, whoever sees them first, pull them over and take their money. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist here. Go look this up. This really happened. Now, we're talking now about this case with with, with Barton Davis and John uh, Numerzicki. But this looked like a tip-off in some way. But it wasn't really known at the time who tipped them off. Maybe it was a casino patron you know, who happened to be a police officer and knew someone who worked in a department that might be able to forfeit it. You know, it, it Harris Joliet was suspected somewhat that maybe they did it. But it wasn't known. It wasn't known. Is it possible that someone working in Harris-Joliet, I don't mean Harris-Joliet officially did this, but is it possible someone working there was getting kickbacks to tip off corrupt police departments to pull over winners who drive away with their prize? Isn't that awful? But it could never be proven. The only thing that could be proven was that the Iowa officer was told to be on the lookout for that indivi- for that vehicle which ended up having $100,000. He was on the lookout for it, and the intention was to pull, off, pull over the vehicle and seize whatever was in it. Well, let's get back to this one. In Flagstaff, Arizona, Randy Binning was pulled over with $400,000 in his car after winning a lot of that money at Harris Joliet. Some coincidence, huh? And just like the case that had occurred in Iowa, it seemed like they knew to go after his car and search it. And just like the case in Iowa, the money had been won at Harris-Joliet. Hmm. Now let's get back to the two guys who filed this lawsuit, Durabinov and Jovanich. 
Were they stopped on the way home? Trader Risky, you think they were stopped? Do we lose Trader Risky? I still, still well, I mean, couldn't couldn't get off mute. Couldn't get off mute. Um, I think they were. They weren't because they switched rental cars. So they 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 not they didn't do it for this purpose. They switched rental cars because they uh, probably just for a better deal or something. But this is one of these cases where they happened to do the right thing and didn't realize it. So they probably put out a be on the lookout for their old rental car. All all Harris Joliet sees is them driving away. Says, "Okay, look for this license plate." Then they return the rental car and get a different car, and that that car never shows up on the on the highway. So. Durabinov and Jovanich got all the way back to Vegas without uh, any kind of uh, civil forfeiture occurring. However, they weren't off the hook here. That the joint actions of Caesars and WMS Gaming, that's the one who made the machine, and Agent Sandnack, that's the law enforcement officer, led to the plaintiff's wrongful arrest and prosecution in Illinois. Each of these defendants, Caesars, WMS, uh, Gaming, and Sandnack, acted maliciously. Each of them knew there was no probable cause to justify the arrest and indictment of the plaintiffs, yet they pursued the arrest and indictment anyway. The defendants fraudulently misled the judge, grand jury, and prosecutors that the plaintiffs had committed structuring in order to avoid currency transaction reports. Of the numerous reasons the judge cited why the state should not prevail on the structuring charges, one of the most relevant is that Harris Casino had set up their slot machines and kiosks to where the players could not cash out more than 3000 at a time. That's true, by the way. That is 100% true. I've, I've run into that myself. Where if the machine has more than 3000 credits in it, it will spit out a voucher ticket to bring it back down under 3000 So let's say, let's say I have 2960 in the machine and I win $50. This, instead of making it, say, 3010 it'll stay at 2960 and just spit out a $50 voucher. So you'll keep getting all these like micro-vouchers until you uh, cash out the machine or lose the money back. I've had that before. I've had this like, like 12 vouchers in my pocket because it keeps spitting out vouchers. Uh, so, so the point they're making here is that all of the Caesars properties have this $3,000 limit. So there's no way to uh, to cash out more than $10,000 without uh, triggering uh, cash transaction reports. Now, I, I do know one way they could still do it, and that is they can just keep cashing out... Uh, well, it depends how much they cash out at once. See, I don't know how high they were playing. It is, it is true... I see what they're saying, though. It's true that if you, like, let's say you hit a jackpot there for twenty thousand, um, or let's say you know how, you can't get that out of the machine without them coming over and hand, and hand paying you. So they had to hand pay you there, and if you don't get hand pays, then uh, then yeah, the voucher, the the biggest voucher that can print is three thousand. But what they could do is they could just keep. Let's say they let's say they just won twenty nine hundred over and over and over again. They could keep cashing those out and then cash them out of the machine separately without filing a cash transaction report. But um, but that's not receiving it at one time. You know that's the, what, what they're. What I see what they're trying to say here is that structuring is 
cashing out for less when you could cash out for more. So you've got $12,000 in chips and you decide to cash them out as six and six. That's structuring. But if there's no way to cash out $12,000, as there isn't here, what they're saying here is if it's more, if you win a jackpot of, of, of over 1200 it's a forced hand pay. And if you accumulate more than 3000 in the machine, you can't continue accumulating. You'll just keep spitting out different vouchers. So there's no way to break up something because it breaks it up for you. So I think he's trying to say that it breaks it up for them, and now they're trying to claim, oh, they did multiple transactions of 3000 when they had to do multiple transactions of 3000 I think that's what he's trying to say here. So the lawyer also claimed that both his clients suffered pain, illness, confinement in jail, harm to their reputations, and attorney's fees resulting from their arrest and prosecution. Also, as a condition of bail... Mr. Durabinoff was denied the right to enter a casino in the entire country. As Mr. Durabinoff is a professional poker player, this restriction caused him tremendous financial hardship. The, dangers, the damages were aggravated by the fact that Mr. Durabinoff's wife was pregnant with twins as he awaited trial. So I guess uh, in order to get bail after he was arrested, he had to agree not to enter any casinos. So he was claiming this hurt his ability to make money. This is really bad in two ways. First, the obvious way, that by playing a casino machine with a good pay table that was positive expectation, they manipulated some way to arrest and charge them. And by the way, they, they were acquitted of everything. It complete, Now that they were acquitted, it completely fell apart. The whole thing was dismissed in 2015. The judges dismissed everything. Said, yeah, they weren't structuring and, and uh, they were not cheating. This is BS. It's gone. Case dismissed. So it's over. That's been over for four years. But now now the defendants of that are now on offense against those involved in their, their false arrest. This was a report from April 1st, 2014, by the way, in case you're wondering how, how did they get Jovanich and... Uh, Durabinoff if they got all the way back to Nevada. Well, Harris reported that these two cheated them out of more than $500,000 and put out a warrant for their arrest. They were not in the state anymore, but they've had a warrant. So on April 1st, 2014, a little bit less than uh, a month afterwards, these uh, uh, Paul Jovanich was in a traffic stop. I don't know if they were looking for him or just they happened to be stopping him for something else, like speeding. And they took him into custody in Las Vegas. And they... Uh, so they arrested him, and he was charged in Illinois. There were others who were charged, by the way, some in Indiana, like uh, Randy and Virginia Thorpe, who were in their late 50s at the time, were charged for uh, charged in the case of uh, playing that machine in Tunica, Mississippi. And uh, Randy Binning and uh, Durabinoff were also charged, but I see they're not part. I guess he was charged. I th- for some reason, I thought Binning wasn't charged, but uh, uh, I guess he was too. I guess five people were charged. I didn't notice that till now. 
by the way, Randy Binning was 48, and uh, Durabinov was 38, and uh, uh, Paul Jovanich was 42. They're all, you know, these guys are all kind of around my age. They, when they pulled him, when they pulled over Randy Binning, by the way, in Arizona, and they asked where to get the 400,000, he said he won on Kino machines that were malfunctioning at a Harris Casino in Joliet and in uh, Tunica. So that was uh, that was back in 2014, you know, five years ago. They arrested, you know, they put out the warrant for these guys, and then uh, a week later, they arrested uh, Drabinov, who's who's Bulgarian, by the way, and and Randy Binning. I'm not sure how they got them. So that's uh, and keep in mind these cases were dismissed, and if these guys had manipulated the machines in any way, if they had actually cheated with the machines, they would have been convicted. I'm pretty sure they just noticed that the machines had really high payouts. I, I think what probably happened is they probably found machines that were like really, really positive expectation, and then just hammered them, and they saw this as a form of cheating, which it isn't. It's it's the burdens on the casino to set these games properly. If they don't and you beat them, then tough luck on them. Well, that's the first problem. That they can arrest advantage players who are simply playing machines with misset pay tables. Even grossly misset. The case went nowhere, but look at all the hardship it caused them. But what about this second thing? What about the fact that there is probably someone at Harris Joliet who's tipping off corrupt police departments that are purposely pulling people over to steal their casino winnings and doing it under the guise of civil forfeiture and confiscating money that people have rightfully won? It's not enough to have these patrons there that uh, are playing at a disadvantage, except for these few advantage players. But look at these poker players. I mean, they were—they just wanted a poker tournament. And someone set them up. And clearly they set up this uh, binning guy, probably, because they were bitter. They said, well, screw him. He's going to play this misset Kina machine and take us for 500k? Well, okay. He'll get his. Wait, wait till they find him on the road. And this, this is an old school crap happening in the 1960s. This is stuff in the 2010s. Someone at the casino probably tipping off small police departments to look out on the highway for cars that have money in them, so they can be pulled over and basically steal the money, not for themselves, but for the department, or for the city, or for the county. This is why civil forfeiture is so evil and has been perverted to be far, far, far from its original intent in 1984. This is just one of many abuses. But can you imagine someone at a casino, or maybe several someones, has been tipping off small police departments to pull people over? By the way, I have a little bit of experience with the Flagstaff Police Department. 
I always felt like something wasn't right over there. Or sorry, that wasn't. You know what? It wasn't Flagstaff. It was Williams. Never mind. Probably the same thing in Williams, though. Where they were watching for just the slightest traffic violation, and 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 it was actually my then girlfriend Miri driving, but they pulled her over and wrote a double violation, which is very expensive. And, and the awful thing she did was when she went to get off an exit, she passed over that little portion in between the the freeway and the exit. It's not a raised portion. You know how when you're uh, you're driving and there's that uh, little portion in between where the exit is and where the freeway is that you could pass over. So if you if you're almost missed the exit, you can kind of like pass over that and still make it. So she did that like a little bit, and they pulled her over for that violation. Wrote her like a a double violation for something pretty serious that was very expensive, and then she had to pay it. There was no way to fight it without going all the way back to Williams, which is kind of near the Grand Canyon. And they could come after her California license if she didn't pay it, so she had to pay it. It was really bad. That was Williams. It wasn't Flagstaff. But it's probably... I can picture them doing the exact same thing in Williams as they did in Flagstaff. It's, that, that totally seems like a place that would have uh, these civil forfeiture stops. It's a small town, kind of a tourist trap, police department looking to pull people over constantly. Really bad. I had thought until now that that stop in Iowa was just bad luck, that they were looking to target out-of-state cars and they happened to get one that had 100 k in it. I didn't know that they were tipped off and that both cases now had to do with Harris-Joliet. So you watch out. I'm not, I'm not kidding. If you play at Harris-Joliet, do not take a long drive. If you live in the area, fine, but if you, if, if you don't take a long drive out of there with, with significant cash in your car, because they, they can still do it. They can still pull you over and take your money. If you're going to, then I would suggest uh, switching cars. If you're from out of the area, return the rental car, get a different one. Preferably with a different company. That's really, really disturbing. I had no idea Harris Juliet was doing that. Again, probably not officially doing it, but there's probably some people working the casino, maybe even in management in some way, that are that are doing this. I don't think it's just like a slot attendant who did this. But who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe there's some corrupt low-level person that's getting kickback, kickbacks for this. There's a, there, there's something they're getting out of it by doing this. Because they, while you can say they did this to Randy Binning because they were bitter, they weren't bitter at the guys who won the poker tournament. So they went after them for some reason. They must have gotten money for it. Really terrible. I would love to see a federal investigation about this sort of thing. I would love to see people arrested and prosecuted and spend time in jail for crap like this. Because that's what they deserve. To pull over cars and take people's money they rightfully won. Awful. Casino tipping them off. Just... I can't tell you how much this pisses me off and it had nothing to do with me. It's never hurt me, never affected me. It pisses me off. So watch out. Watch out driving with a lot of cash. Especially if you think that there was a way to have tipped off the cops that you have a lot of cash. Because you may not when it's all done.
And there's not much you can do as it's happening either. It's not even like you take precautions and say, well, if this happens, I'll act this way, I'll call my lawyer. There's not much you can do. All right, let's move on to a different story about a casino in that general area. About an arrest at a casino in that general area, but this time what appears to be a legitimate arrest of a famous person. I'm talking about Pac-Man. Pac-Man got arrested. I'm not kidding. They, they finally got Pac-Man after all these years. I knew it would happen. And it, it eventually did. In fact, uh, here was the... There's actually a tape that was on TMZ of what occurred right before the arrest. And uh, it's pretty interesting. After you hear this, you'll understand why he got arrested. This is Pac-Man uh, stealing uh, some kind of circular things in, in the place. He's still, still stealing. The security's chasing him. There's a, you hear the siren in the background. There's a, there's a siren... That uh, they're after him for his theft, but uh, so far the four security guards haven't caught up with him. And then, then he picked up a weapon. He got this round circular weapon, which has scared the security guards, and they turn blue with fear and they're running away. Right, and they just got one. He just got one and turned them into a pair of eyes. So yeah, you can you can see why Pac-Man got arrested. Wait, that's the wrong footage. That's from 1980. Let me let me get to the 2019 footage. Of, of Pac-Man being arrested. I'm talking about Adam Pac-Man Jones. He is an NFL player. Well, he's currently a free agent, but he played on four different teams between 2005 and 2018. He played for the Tennessee Titans, the Dallas Cowboys, the Cincinnati Bengals, and the Denver Broncos. Now, he he's not someone who's a stranger to trouble. There's been various issues the guy has had over the years. Most notably, in 2007, when the NBA All-Star Game was in Las Vegas during that infamous weekend with a lot of violence, Pac-Man was involved in an altercation with a stripper at a club called Minx. And uh, he was with rap artist Nelly. And... uh, so they were they were making it rain, and uh, I guess the club the club promoter asked the dancers to collect the money, and Pac-Man was very angry that some of the strippers were grabbing the money that he didn't want to be grabbing it. I guess he was, you know, this is something that people like to do at strip clubs. In fact, Mycon even did it once with Justin Smith, <laughs> where in order to show off or something, they it's called making it rain, and they just take hundreds or thousands of $1 bills and just keep raining them on the stage as the strippers dance. So 
there were so much, you know, there were so many dollar bills on the stage that the club promoter said to all the girls, "Okay, girls, go out there and grab the money." It's almost like a pinata where there's all the pandy on the floor. The girls were grabbing the ones off the floor, and Pac-Man's like, "No, no, no, not you! I didn't say you can take it." So he was so pissed, he grabbed the girl by her hair and slammed her head on the stage. So then a security guard uh, got involved and had some kind of fight with Jones' entourage. And then Pac-Man said he's going to kill the guard. And uh, then the guard was eventually shot twice. There was a after after these after everybody left, uh, someone in uh, Pac-Man's entourage came back with a gun, fired into a crowd, and 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 uh, sorry, it was a different guard. It wasn't the same one, but they they they, they hit a security guard, and uh, one of the people who was hit was a, a professional wrestler wrestler named Tommy Tommy Urbanski, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. Pac-Man said that he didn't know the shooter, but the club's owner said that it was clear he did. And they, the police department actually suggested at the time, this is in 2007, that uh, Pac-Man should be charged with one count of fo- felony coer- coercion, one misdemeanor count of battery, and one misdemeanor count of, of threat to life. And uh, also, there was uh, there were accusations that uh, Pac-Man Jones bet on... Uh, college football games at the time when uh, when he was in college. So they ended up charging him with with two felony charges involving that whole fight there. He, he pled no contest of a conspiracy to commit disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor. He got a suspended sentence. It's one of many issues he's had over the years. Uh, he was brought into a police department in Atlanta for questioning involving a shooting involving members of his entourage, also in 2007. He was accused of hitting a woman at a strip club in Atlanta in 2008. So obviously this guy is bad news. He also, in two thousand later 2008, had some kind of fight with his own bodyguard in a Dallas hotel. More recently, in 2017, Pac-Man was arrested in Cincinnati for obstructing official business, disorderly conduct, assault, and f- felony charge of harassment. And he accepted a plea deal. So this this seems like a guy who is just a bad guy that happens to be good at football. He's probably someone who'd be a, a thug who'd have been in uh, prison for many years if he didn't have his NFL career. Just because someone becomes a successful athlete doesn't mean they're a good person, obviously. But let's get to the present here about Pac-Man. 
he was arrested, would you believe, for cheating in a casino recently. Yeah. Now, that's not who I'd expect to be arrested for cheating. I wouldn't expect Pac-Man Jones to be arrested for cheating in a casino. I'd expect many other things from him. But he was arrested in late February at the Rising Sun Casino on the Indiana side of the border with Kentucky. It's about 40 miles southwest of Cincinnati. He was arrested for disorderly conduct, public intoxication, intimidation, and resisting arrest. But the entire situation stemmed from the suspicion that he was cheating. And the report was that what he was doing was adding chips to his bet when things looked favorable. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's just such an amateurish form of cheating. That, that's insane that, that he thought he could get away with that. So he was he was basically past posting uh, bets or middle posting. Like I don't know if which games this was at, but he was at he was adding uh, chips when he either knew the outcome of what was going to happen or where things were looking good. So, for example, uh, in roulette, I don't know what he was playing, but in roulette, after you see your number hits when nobody's looking, you quickly drop additional chips to bet, so you get paid extra. So that's what he claims. And that's what's claimed that he did. He's denying it. He was there with his wife at the time. But the, he and his wife are denying it, but I doubt they would have arrested him for this if they didn't have proof. Here is a video that was released on TMZ of the actual arrest where he was resisting. That's what the reports came out. Right, okay. so because he's talking to us. We've been with them same dealers Who all said night. Who said I was cheating? No, he did not say it. The surveillance attorney. All right, so why do you keep grabbing the handcuffs? Why do we have to leave? Let the handcuffs go. Ain't nobody finna run up on y'all. Let me go. We've been with the same dealers all night. So his wife's saying we've been with the same dealers all night, and he's saying, you know, get the handcuffs off, let me go, and they're not doing it. That means we also will investigate. Man, call the oh, like for eight hours. Hey, so if he was, hey. if he was cheating. Okay, call the police. Call the police. We are the police. Oops. <laughs> They're on the way. They're on the way. We're police officers, other police officers. No, we're going to call. We're going to call the city police. police. All right, cool. I'm not He's saying, why are you having me in handcuffs? I'm cool. I'm not doing anything. But if you're caught cheating at the casino, they are going to put you in handcuffs. That's, that's how it goes. Handcuffs don't always mean that you've been resisting. They just mean that you're being arrested. That's just standard procedure. He should know this after all the time he's been arrested. Cheating and he spent $20,000 a year. How does that work? Don't touch him. Don't touch him. Why are you touching him? Freedom of speech. It's called freedom of speech. 
That's called freedom of speech. He can do what he wants and say what he wants. He didn't put his hands on nobody. He can say what he wants. It's called freedom of speech. By the way, the wife is so loud because she's the one recording the video. She already called. She's calling. She already called. She's calling. I need someone up here. I need someone up here. You realize we are law enforcement. That's cool. We're calling people. We're calling someone else. You realize we're law enforcement. Like she's like, yeah, we're calling the police. We're coming over. And like, uh, yeah, that's what we are. We're. And they go, no, we're getting different police to come here. Like that's not how it works. You don't, you don't get to shop police departments to uh, supervise the arrest you don't like. We're calling. We're calling others. Freedom of speech. No, we're with him, so that we're not. Freedom we're not speech. going anywhere. Freedom of this speech. This is who we roll with. Yes, Freedom of speech. What you talking about, bitch ass nigga? <laughs> How come it always goes to calling someone that word? I mean, yeah, it's a black guy saying it, but we, we've had two videos now where that's happening. We had the black bitch before. I guess it wasn't that word. It was a black bitch that he was used. But the officers arresting him are white, by the way. So I don't know who the bitch ass, you know, white is. Freedom of speech. And it's called freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, though. I ain't say I haven't seen none more, no words, nobody. You don't have to go stand up in the Where are you taking them? To our office, right here. I just see your office. Take them to the office for what? We need to make sure we can have him in our eyesight. I understand. We want to have him in our eyesight. Go. I accidentally stopped. Well, anyway, you've, you've heard enough. That's the, the only good thing that I've uh, heard from her wife there, we want to have him in our sight. Uh, with the police, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but I can still understand that if, if they want to supervise that there's not going to be brutality behind closed doors. They don't have a right to that, but I can see where they'd want that. In a casino, that's especially good to have witnesses to things like this. But Anyway, uh, I doubt the casino is falsely accusing him here. Now, you might wonder, why did I just do a segment about the corruption in Harris Joliet? Why, why do I believe that this casino, the Rising Star Casino in Indiana, which isn't far from there, why do I believe them in this case? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. With advantage players, casinos do very dirty things to try to thwart them and get back at them. But when there's... A player who they would love to have, a recreational gambler, an athlete who has a lot of money, I presume he has money still, and probably isn't very good at the games. I, mean, I, I would be shocked if Pac-Man Jones is an advantage player. If, if he is, he has the best cover in the world. If, if He could sit down now and, and count cards in blackjack and probably for hours and no one would catch on to it. I, I very, very strongly doubt that Pac-Man Jones is an advantage player. So they, this is exactly who they want as a customer. They only don't want him when he is cheating or when he's creating enough of a disruption to where they don't want to tolerate it anymore. But other than that, they have no reason to falsely accuse him of anything. What, they, what they'd like is Pac-Man Jones to stay there and blow his money. So believe me, they're not making up charges against him. It wouldn't make any sense. He is fighting this case. A lot of athletes 
and celebrities blow a lot of money gambling. And they just they never quite get the point that they're they're going to lose eventually. They it just doesn't sink in that playing at high stakes and negative expectation games, you're going to lose a lot of money eventually. Now, if if you are gambling responsibly and you are a recreational gambler and you know that you'll probably lose money in the long run but that you enjoy the short-run excitement of trying to win, then fine. Then it's more of an entertainment thing. But uh, some of these guys play for insane money and they're doing so with negative expectation, often big-time negative expectation because they'll play skill games, they don't know the strategy very well or things like that. I don't know what he was playing. I'm thinking it may have been roulette because that's a common thing at roulette where someone will try to pass post. That's where it happens most often when there is pass posting. It can happen in blackjack too, but uh, roulette is probably the most common where it occurs since the board is so big. Blackjack is a little harder because there's only six spots. Uh, But I believe he did it. I don't have... 100% 100% certainty he did it, but I, I would bet at pretty steep odds that he did it. And that they have proof of him doing it. She said something like he gave $20,000. I think what she was trying to say is, like, we're down twenty k. why would we be cheating? Well, maybe that is because, maybe that is why they're cheating, because they were down a lot of money and they were trying to get it back. If you're running badly, that's probably when there's more temptation to cheat. Okay, so let's move on to a different topic. Trader Risky, you still here? I am here, Druff, but I got to sign off. I just got an early uh, meeting tomorrow. So, but I'll listen to the rest. And sorry, I can't stay the duration, but uh, I'll listen to the rest. What, what's next, Andy Duke? Um, actually, I was going to do the the flood in Harris Metropolis and then Annie Duke. Yeah, that picture was a trip you, you tweeted. All right, cool. Um, talk to you soon. Okay. Stay warm out there. Okay, thanks. thanks. All right, bye. All right, so moving on, we're going to talk about our third topic of casinos in that uh, general area. This one is about Illinois again. Harris Metropolis. And this has to do with a really, really bad flood. And to get the appreciation of how bad that flood is, go to uh, VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is a forum I run, and go to the Eastern U.S. Casinos Forum and take a look at the Harris Metropolis thread. You will see two pictures I posted that were taken by a drone. Not my drone. I do have a drone, but this wasn't by my drone. I've never been to uh, Harris Metropolis. But a guy named Vic Patel from uh, Paducah, Kentucky, came there with his drone and flew over the very, very flooded Harris Metropolis. And it is so flooded, there is a tall sign with a trademark Harris ball, you know, like a, that little, that round purple ball that says Harris on it with stars on top of it. 
there's a giant sign with that, and it's almost completely submerged in water. It looks like feet of water submerging this thing. It looks like at least six feet of water, maybe more. Maybe eight feet, ten feet of water. And this is the parking lot. This is the entrance to the parking lot. You you pass under this thing. And it looks like there's like a few feet left between the surface of the water and the top of it. It looks like you'd have to be driving a uh, a toy car to get under that thing. That's that's how low it looks because of the level of the water. So it, it really looks like a lake. It looks like that this is all in a lake. It looks like Harris Metropolis is sitting in the middle of a brown lake. So needless to say, it's closed, and it will be for a while. It's been closed for about two weeks due to flooding from the Ohio River. Much like Harris Joliet, it sits on the river, and it's subject to flooding. The Horseshoe Southern Indiana, also in that area, got flooded about a year ago and was closed for a while. Also because of the Ohio River. So this is all because of the stupid requirement that casinos have to be on the river, which they might as well just get rid of. I mean, they, they, the whole point for riverboat gaming, it's, it's, it's now out the window. Now these can be fixed structures that sit on land near the river. So why make it, why force them to be near the river? Why not just say, okay, clearly we're okay with land-based casinos Let's uh, let's allow them to go to get away from the river so this doesn't happen anymore. Let's uh, let, let's let's not build structures next to the river, expensive structures that can be damaged like this, and businesses that can be disrupted like this. Let's just let's just accept the fact we now have land-based casino gambling here in in Illinois and Indiana and these other states. Why, why, just accept it. Just say fine. We're not on the river anymore. It's not a boat anymore. Let's stop pretending it's it's riverboat gambling. It's not. Let them locate a mile inland. Let them locate where they want. To let the let the cities and counties decide. You know, there's either gambling or not gambling. You can't have. Well, there's no gambling except if you're right next to the river. Then there's gambling. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. And by the way, this is an example. This whole river gambling thing. This whole thing is an example of what happens when you have laws and then exceptions are made to laws is that they keep getting extended and abused to where the entire spirit of the law is ruined. Now, this is a law I don't care about. In fact, I I would like casino gambling to be up to the individual counties and cities and not have silly requirements of where they have to be. Like, Like by a river. But but this just shows you with any type of law, when you start allowing exceptions and you, you start changing it around more and more, eventually the spirit of the law is gone and often the law gets abused. So, so those who supported the law of preventing land-based casinos by confining it to the river, well, now there's land-based casinos. So the, that even though I disagree with the law, the law got abused. That's why, in general, when you, you when you hear about legislation today, where they say, "Well, this may sound bad to you, but only in these circumstances," well, that's that's where the abuse starts. I talked about the abortion thing a few shows ago. That they see that's where the abuse starts is when you start making exceptions you allow. Good law is very very clear, and does not have 
exceptions, except ones that are really, really intelligently considered, thought out, and all possible loopholes are covered. Anyway, getting back to this, I really suggest you take you check out these pictures. You can also find them on my Twitter, but you can also just go to Vegas Casino Talk and go to the Eastern U.S. Casinos Forum. You'll find it right there. Really, really interesting pictures. One is a picture of the parking lot and the Harris Ball, and you can see how buried it is. And then there is a picture where the drone is higher, several hundred feet in the air, and you can see the whole area, which just looks like a giant lake. It looks like a giant lake. It's weird. It's like a giant lake with structures in it. You can't even tell where the river ends and the land begins. It just looks like it's all a big body of water. In case you're wondering, when I first heard of Harris Metropolis, and I didn't know much about it, I thought, Harris Metropolis? And I, I, what, what do you think of when you hear Metropolis? You, th- you think about Superman. You think about Superman who, you know, Clark Kent worked in Metropolis, which was a fictitious version of New York. Metropolis was really New York. They just called it Metropolis because it's a fictitious city. But it was really supposed to be New York. So you hear Harris Metropolis, you, you think it's probably somewhere in or near New York City. And if not that, near some other big city. No, it's actually in Metropolis, Illinois, which is nowhere near Chicago. It's located... Uh, in southeast, sorry, located southeast of St. Louis, northwest of Nashville, northeast of Memphis, very close to Kentucky, and not even too far from Tennessee. If you don't know the geography of that area of the country, I bet you'd be surprised to hear that Illinois and Tennessee are not far from each other. I, I bet you think of Illinois and Tennessee as quite some distance from one another, right? But they're not. Southern Illinois and northern Tennessee are not very far from one another. Go, go look it up. Go bring up a map and look it up. Zoom in on that area. And you will see that Illinois is kind of a long state that gets kind of narrow at the end. It doesn't quite touch Tennessee, but it's close. You get to the very southern tip of Illinois, it's not very far until you get to Tennessee. And yet you think of Illinois, what do you think of? You think of Chicago. You think of Chicago, which is up north. It's on the Great Lakes. It's on Lake Michigan. It's close to Milwaukee. I bet you don't picture Tennessee as anywhere near to Illinois, but it is. So the, these casinos I'm talking about are not by Chicago. They're, they're, uh, they're in the southern portion of these states. Southern Indiana... Southern Illinois, right by the Kentucky border. And the markets they are serving tend to be the ones I mentioned, Nashville, Louisville, Memphis. These are all a reasonable drive. Not super close, but a reasonable drive. They're not really close to anything large. These casinos have been talking about in those areas and the Indiana, Illinois, the southern area, both states on the river. 
So, don't expect to visit Harris Metropolis anytime soon. I've never been there. I don't really have a reason to go there. But there's a number of these Harris properties in places like that. Uh, Joliet actually is the, is the one place That's actually not in southern Illinois That's actually closer to Chicago That services more of the Chicago market And that's also on a river As they always have to be Except that's not the Ohio River It's the Des, Des Plaines River Anyway, let's, let's move on no more talk about Indiana, Illinois. Let's move to talk about something outside of the United States, and then we'll get to the Annie Duke topic, which I think some people are waiting for. A sad story out of Dublin, Dublin, Ireland. A poker pro has gone missing, and I think he probably dead. I hope he's not, but I I think he probably is. I'm talking about John Johnson. Not Don Johnson from the Miami Vice. I'm talking about John Johnson. That's J-O-N, last name J-O-N-S-S-O-N. And he's been missing for nearly a month since playing a tournament in Dublin. And he's from Iceland. He's 41. On February 9th, John Johnson left his hotel room and was walking on the street smoking a cigarette and disappeared. This was on February 9th. He was going to start playing a tournament on February 10th and never showed up. He did play poker in the hotel's casino that day on February 9th, and some suspect that perhaps he was followed out. He was last seen just kind of walking around with a cigarette in his mouth. The media said, John has no history of mental health issues and is described as a big family man by those who know him. He's the father of two girls. He calls his family daily to check up on them, and vanishing without a trace is out of character for him. A big search party consisting of his friends and family has flown from Dublin to uh, flown to Dublin from Ireland, in Ireland, from Iceland, to take a look to look for him. The Irish poker community has rallied around the cause and is organizing a donation drive to help with the search efforts. Inspector Mick Mulligan. Mick Mulligan. Could that be a more Irish name? Mick Mulligan? That's got to be a joke. Uh, Says that there are serious concerns for his safety at this stage, as he's been missing for over two weeks. We've nothing to indicate anything sinister may have happened to him, he added. We're now appealing through the media to the public at large for any information in relation to his disappearance. Well, let's look at this. The guy's in a foreign country. 
goes out for a walk, never comes back, and it's been 25 days. Where could he be? This is a guy who always keeps in contact with his family. Last he's seen is just kind of walking around by himself. So I think the guy's got to be dead. One of the two things happened. Either some accident occurred and he fell somewhere and hasn't been found. Or someone attacked him and dumped his body somewhere. It is possible he was seen winning money that day and someone followed him out and killed him. Whatever it is, I, I don't think it's likely he's just going to pop up somewhere and say, hey, hey I've, I've been gone for a month, but I'm back. Like, where would he, It's not even in his country. He had nowhere to go. It's not like he's hanging out with friends or hiding out with friends. I, I guess there's a small possibility that he met someone through poker in Ireland and just trying to get away from life for a while, hiding out, but it doesn't seem like it's in his character. So unfortunately, he's probably dead. In general, after you have been gambling or playing poker for a lot of money, it's not good to go somewhere outside of the casino where people can follow you and do bad things to you. Because there are people who will, especially if they think you're carrying the money with you. Just always be aware. Always be aware of your surroundings. It's possible that he was killed and had nothing to do with the poker. It's possible just he was mugged by some random on the street. And it's possible there was some accident, like he just fell somewhere. I have to think it's probably more likely foul play. Sad story. I didn't know him. Let me take a look at his uh, tournament results. I'm always curious. I hadn't heard of him before this. Now, he might be an online player, so that wouldn't tell us, but he does have a hand in mob and has earned very little. Actually, that, it shows he's... You know what? This is the Swedish John Johnson. This is probably a different one. Um, the only one I see is... A Swedish one. This one's from Iceland, so I don't know what to say. The one, the Swedish one, has earned four hundred twenty-nine dollars total in his career. But maybe this is. Uh, let me see. I'm, I'm going to enter his name once again here. I tried it with Google. Uh, a lot of Johnsons here with that spelling. But I'm not. I'm not finding. I don't know if he even has any hand in mob results. Hmm. Well, I don't know what to say. Can't find him. And I guess they can't find him either. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. You can call or text that number. From the five zero five, I had a similar 
incident in Arizona as well. I couldn't renew my license in my home state. I paid the fine, but Arizona never submitted the paperwork to my home state saying it was paid. I called the Arizona courts to complain about it, but they claim they already submitted the necessary paperwork. My home state in New Mexico claimed they hadn't gotten the paperwork. I was so pissed, I unknowingly cussed out a judge over the phone. The way I finally got it resolved was I got each county clerk on a separate phone line and conferenced them in together without them knowing, and the surprise in their voice made the whole thing worth it. It was like a game of Pong. That's a good solution. I've done that before, too. Not about courts, but I've I've had it where two companies just... I hear one thing from one rep, one thing from the other rep. They're working together. I've, you know, I've, I say, okay, I'll just put you guys together and have you guys figure it out. It's good to do that with insurance companies. In fact, I just did that this week with an insurance company where I uh, three-wayed them together to figure things out. And I still had to help it along. They still didn't know what to do. Uh, from the 480, Casino Arizona and Talking Stick Resort are both owned by the same Indian tribe. Talking Stick Resort is North Scottsdale and has the biggest poker room in the state. Casino Arizona is Southern Scottsdale. Monsoon season in Phoenix is mid-June to the end of September. This is from a listener who's actually in the Phoenix area. Uh, he also wrote, Fort McDowell is owned by a small tribe. The other big tribe is the Gila River Indians who own Wild Horse Pass, the second most popular poker room. V. Quivia and one more. The Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian Tribe are the owners of Casino Arizona and Talking Stick. My cousin's wife works at Talking Stick. Indians all paid the workers even when it was closed for the entire six weeks during the flood. From the 507, yes, we want another prank call, too. From the 602, you tweeted the show would start at 8.15 p.m. Is that correct or was it a typo? It was correct, but it didn't start at 8.15 for the 773, why, why, why? I just doubled up. and start, start me with 6K chips. This is referring to me ending the tournament and restarting it at 9.15. Sorry about that. And I guess that's it. Let's move on. Talk about Annie Duke, a topic I added at the last minute. Now, no offense, Trader Ruski, but I actually waited with this until you were off the line when I heard you are going to be on until 11. And it's not because I don't want you to participate. It's that Skype will not allow me to play the audio of the recording of the podcast I'm going to play here to you. So all the listeners can hear it, but you can't. And I figured it would be better to have you on here for things that you can better talk about rather than me playing something where you can only hear my commentary but not what I'm commenting on. So... Figure this is one that's better done alone. At least until Skype fixes its ridiculous issues. So Annie Duke appeared on a podcast recently. And a listener brought this to my attention. The podcast was called uh, We Study Billionaires. And it's a fairly popular investing podcast. We study billionaires. Now, she's not a billionaire by any means. But they, in late February, they had an episode with Annie Duke. Now, this listener actually sent the hosts of that podcast some links to articles about her scandals, but uh, they apparently didn't care. 
He said she's even more unbearable than usual in the interview you've been warned. So when I heard that, I go, I got to play that on radio. If, if Annie Duke is more unbearable than usual, which is like very, very unbearable, then definitely we have to play that. Now, it's 33 minutes long. I don't think I'll be able to sit through the whole thing, and I don't think you want to either. But at least we're going to start it off here and comment on it. I meant to listen to it beforehand and get it all prepared and jump to the right spots, but I forgot until right before the show. And I said, well, I can either wait till next week or I can just do it and you guys can hear my genuine reactions as we play this. So we're going to play this together and we're going to hear. It's in his one countless titles, the World Series of Poker. I'm going to start this from the very beginning. Here we go. You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we're extremely excited to bring you a fascinating discussion. Our guest, Annie Duke, is a master of cognitive psychology and probabilities. In fact, after completing a double major in English and psychology from Columbia University, she was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at UPenn. For people familiar with Annie, they already know she's a world-renowned poker player for two decades and has won countless titles, the World Series of Poker, and numerous championships. Annie is the best-selling author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. She's been a keynote speaker for executive staffs at Marriott, Citibank, and many Fortune 500 companies. All right, let's stop this for a second. This is really what she's been doing. She's not a poker player anymore. And she'll show up to the Odd World Series event here and there. I don't even know if she played last year, but she's not a poker player anymore. She she has leveraged her fame in poker as the this female poker star that she's leveraged that to appear in other forms not really other in other industries as a speaker she somehow made people believe that her success in poker gives her the authority to speak on other subjects which as you guys know is not true there are some great poker players out there who are complete idiots with everything else besides poker. And I've talked about many of them on the show. Now, Annie Duke is not an idiot. She's just very shady, very dishonest, and very full of herself. And very bitchy, very selfish, very off-putting. Has bad hygiene from the pictures I've seen, <laughs> from the stories I've heard and read. Very hypocritical. It's so funny, though, when, when they get her to speak about business matters, when, let's look at her business history, ultimate bet. Do, do I even have to go into what happened there? The Epic Poker League, where she paid herself a nice salary, and Jeffrey Pollock, who was in it with her, got paid himself a nice salary, and then they stiffed everyone on a million-dollar free roll, and the whole thing folded and lost a ton of money. Like uh, Everything she did, either was involved in a major cheating scandal or, or ripped people off or folded or did terribly. The, she doesn't have any success away from the tables except personal success in doing these stupid speaking gigs and selling stupid books full of bullshit that people eat up because they don't know the true story. So she's great at being a phony and posturing like she's an expert on things she really isn't. There she's great, very talented at that. Very talented at making money off of fools that will give her credibility. But as far as running a real business, no. 
It's already the description of what she does. The only true part is that she's going around making these speeches and writing these books and succeeding in doing so because idiots believe that they're hearing from someone who is successful and knowledgeable in areas where they're really not. And on today's show, we dig into Annie's methodology for decision-making. We're going to dig into Annie's methodology for decision-making. You are running a poker league, a new poker league, which has a terrible business model, which nobody can figure out how it's going to make any money, and has promised a million dollars to professional poker players if they finish on the leaderboard. Without such money coming in, and with the company hemorrhaging all the money that you conned investors out of, what do you do? The smart investor, the smart manager of such a league will pay themselves a very healthy salary and continue drawing that salary until the company is flat broke and then leaves everybody else holding the bag. It doesn't matter if you work for the company and haven't been paid or if you're a player who has promised a million dollar free roll, that's not Annie's problem. How she tries to understand the odds of what appears to be improbable situations. Yeah, like the Epic Poker League's failure, that was a very probable situation. So without further delay, we bring you this insightful discussion with the one insightful. and only Annie Duke. Oh my Duke. gosh. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. And somehow we have someone who's not a billionaire on the show who is, is uh, pretty much a con woman and has uh, lied through her teeth everything she does. And for some reason... We're putting on her on the investors' podcasts for billionaires. Whoa. Let's get down to the disco, folks. It's 1977, and here's Annie Duke. This free episode of The Investors Podcast is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. As employers, what? ZipRecruiter? That sounds dirty. ZipRecruiter. What would that be? Know how hard hiring is. Multiple job sites, stack of resumes. And the confusing review process. Huh? But today... The, co- the, conv- the confusion of what process? I think he's trying to say due process. And the confusion of due process. I think they need a better voiceover artist for this commercial. I don't think this guy quite cuts the mustard. Hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. It, was this through like an outreach program where they're hiring a, a, a slower person to do this voiceover? If so, good for him. But if not... Hmm. SeekRecruiter.com slash investors. SeekRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And they don't stop there. What is StinkyCooter.com? I'm forgetting. I have no idea what he's talking about. With the powerful matching technology, SeekRecruiter scans thousands... Oh, SeekRecruiter. Something Recruiter. I think it's saying SeekRecruiter. That'd be a better name. That'd be much more memorable. Like, I remember... I remember SeekRecruiter... But I think saying zip recruiter, I don't know. It's this is the problem when the 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 one voiceover artist for the one ad you're running has marbles in his mouth. So resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, zip recruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates. So you I've n- never heard an ad like this before. This is crazy. <laughs> never miss a great match. Sick Recruiter is so effective that 80%, that's right, 80% of employers who post on Sick Recruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. You think this guy got his job through uh, Stinky Cooter here? 
You think that's how he got his voiceover position? If so, I'm signing up there. If you can get him that easily, I'm signing up. And now, listeners of the Investors Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free and this exclusive web address. Okay. ZipRecruiter.com slash investors. Oh. How do you spell it? How, how, honestly, how do you spell this? How do you spell ZipRecruiter? How do you spell this? Is he saying ZipRecruiter? I don't know. I... I I think if I had a gun to my head and someone told me to go to this website and I had one chance, I think I'd probably get killed. I don't think I'd get it. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash I-N-D-E-S-C-O-R-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash investors. No, no. See, he, he spelled investors but not ZipRecruiter. <laughs> he spelled investors like we don't know how to spell investors. Oh, my God. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Yeah. All right. Back to the show. All right. All right, guys. We're, uh, yeah, we're off to a good start here. So we're here today with Annie Duke. Oh, wait. I, that's the interviewer. Okay. I, now I understand. I thought this was just some guy doing a commercial. This is actually the interviewer. No, one, no wonder we could barely understand him. It's his show. Oh. I don't know what to say here. Talk about her new book, Thinking in Bats. And I have to say... As I told Annie just before the interview, I'm a little starstruck here. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Annie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk some ideas. Oh, boy. The, the, the hair just stood up on the back of my neck when I heard that. Like, I, I'm already just pissed off just from hearing that. Just the, the phoniness in the voice, the phony friendliness, the phony excitement it, it's so contrived. Me too. So before we talk about how our listeners can optimize their decision-making, I have to ask you about one of the most life-changing decisions that you made. If we said- I have to ask you about when you were promoting Ultimate Bet and they were cheating people and you were still promoting it for three years after it was done, did you ever consider leaving before you did? What That life-changing decision you made to defend them during the cheating scandal, uh, how how did that come into play? The scene, you're 26, you have a degree in English and psychology, you just got married and you relocated to Montana. I th- yeah, she got married and then she got divorced. Thing for anyone, they would not say that the next logical step would be to have a long, successful career as a professional poker player in Las Vegas. But it wasn't as random as it sounds. Could you please tell us your story? So first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to do that because that's not actually where most people start. Very often in the moment when there are things that randomly intervene in your life, in the moment we're very often very bad judges of whether that's like good luck or bad luck. It takes a lot of time for you to sort of be able to look back and see what kind of influence that had with clearer eyes. So here's basically what happened. I finish college, I go to UPenn for graduate school to get my PhD in cognitive science. So at the end of that, I'm going off to interview for my first jobs as a professor. My idea is I'm going to go do these job talks and become a professor. During the last year of my program, I had been struggling with some stomach problems. I'm on my way to NYU for my first talk, and I don't ever make it to the talk. I actually end up in the hospital for two weeks. I'm I think the stomach problem she's struggling with might, might explain the bad hygiene in some of those pictures we've seen. When we, you guys ever seen the the ass crack picture where she didn't wipe very well in the poker room? Maybe it's all making sense now. Maybe we're finally getting an answer. 
after all these years? I'm just really sick. It becomes clear that job talks aren't going to happen that season. And in academics, you have to wait a year because the job market is seasonal. And at the time, I had just gotten married. My husband at the time had a place in Montana. That's where his dad lived. So it was like, all right, we'll just go stay at this, you know, that place in Montana while I get better. And then I'll come back and finish everything up. This feels like very bad luck. So now I'm in Montana and I'm like, okay, I'm not in my program. I don't have my fellowship now. I need money. And I'm sick, so going and getting like what would be a regular job probably is not going to work for me because I don't know what days I'm going to feel okay and what days I'm not going to feel okay. So my brother, Howard Letterer, who at the time was already playing poker, said to me, I think there are legal games in Montana. Why don't you try playing poker to try to sort of fill in the financial gap? So I was like, okay, fine. So I go off to Billings, Montana, which is 35 miles or so from where I'm living at the time. And I start playing. That's what I was going to do in the meantime. And the meantime turned into 18 years playing poker. That's just sort of how I ended up there was there was this big intervention of luck. At the time, I felt very bad luck that sent me onto this path that I think in retrospect turns out to be quite good luck. If I can now look at it with time having passed. I don't think I do your book justice when I say this, but for me, the most profound concept in your book is really the concept of resulting. Wait, hold on. Let me, let's stop this for a second. You guys noticing anything weird about this interview? Aside from just the bullshit she's laying on thick here. Do you guys notice anything weird about the flow of this interview? Does, does this sound like any conversation you've heard like on this show or other shows where there's a live interview? Like, like take, take the William Hung interview we had a few weeks ago. Did it sound like this? The answer is no. This sounds like where he gave her questions beforehand, like in written form, and then she recorded the answers and sent them the sent the answers in, and then this guy recorded him asking the questions. Notice that he just it, like it cuts her off. He gets to re- immediately to the next question. There's no flow back and forth. He asks a question. She gives a, ra- a long rambling answer. He doesn't respond to what she had said or come with follow-up questions. He just jumps to the next question. In fact, in this in this case, it, it, it cut him, cut off. Let me go back slightly. You can hear this. It's not that important, but it's just – that kind of tilts me too when there's these fake interviews where they try to make it seem like someone's having a conversation, but it's so obvious they're not. So any uh, – I, your your ass crack. Uh, it looks very dirty in some pictures I've seen on the internet. Uh, were you playing poker? Do you, do you always uh, wipe your ass after you go to the bathroom in the casino, or or do you do you not? Well, um, yeah, I I usually don't. I usually wipe my ass, but uh, if if the game's really good and I don't want to miss more than one orbit, I want to get back for the big blind. If I think enough time has passed where I don't have time to wipe properly, I, I just do a real quick one and then pull up my pants and run back over there. And usually nobody notices, but one time I was getting massaged and bending forward, and it it, it just it, that's where that picture was taken. So that's how I. Okay, so Annie, uh, my next question for you is when. You were uh, with Daniel Negranu before people knew him, and you treated him very badly, and you you made fun of him, and you were very mean and nasty to him. Uh, Did you do it because he was a new guy, and you thought you were a popular player that people knew, and you could make fun of him, and uh, 
really just be very unpleasant and nothing would happen because people would take your side since you are the known player. Is, is that the true? Well, yeah. I'm, I mean, I was Annie Duke and Daniel Negreanu was just some gay-looking, skinny young guy at the table. So, you know, of course I could make fun of him. Like, who's going to care? I have, How was I supposed to know he was going to get really good and become a famous player and call me out on Rick Gambling Poker? I mean, that's didn't expect that one to happen. It's just you know bad luck on my part that the guy happened to rise up, become a somebody in poker. I thought I was picking on a nobody. He turned out as a future somebody. You know, it happens. Sometimes the nerd becomes the popular one. So I go off to Billings, Montana, which is 35 miles or so from where I'm living at the time. And I start playing. That's what I was going to do in the meantime. And the meantime turned into 18 years playing poker. That's just sort of how I ended up there was there's this big intervention of luck. At the time, I felt very bad luck that sent me onto this path that I think in retrospect turns out to be quite good luck. If I can now look at it with time having passed. Uh, listen, he's going to cut it off right here. I don't think I do your book justice. <laughs> time have passed. I don't think you do your book justice. When I say this, but for me, the most profound concept in your book is really the concept of resulting. Could you talk to our listeners about what is that and why is that so important whenever you're evaluating whether or not you made the right decision? Uh, yeah, yeah. The resulting is, well, here's an example. When you start up a poker league with a terrible business plan, the results are likely to be very bad. So it is going to be resulting in all the investors having lost their money. So the smart person makes the decision to pay themselves a good salary that's not attached to the way the company's doing, and this way you win either way. Just tell me, like, in your gut what this feels like. Somebody sets you up on a blind date. It's the worst date that you've ever had. You mean somebody sets you on a blind date with Annie Duke? Does it feel like that was a good decision? No, that would feel like a horrible decision to spend a right. night out with. Beth. Oh, wait, look at this. They're interacting. I can't believe it. Maybe, maybe I was wrong. I just, that's the first time they've had some kind of back and forth. Blind date. Okay. Somebody sets you up on a blind date, and it goes great. The person like is the love of your life and you live happily ever after. Does it feel like a good decision to go out on the date? Yes. <laughs> it definitely okay. feels like a great decision. Isn't that interesting? In either case, I've told you the exact same information about the decision. All I've told you is you decided to go out on a blind date. Someone set you up, you decided to go. So the information about the actual quality of the decision is the same. The only thing I switched was the quality of the outcome. And you notice how intuitive it is that your feeling about whether the decision was good or not changes depending on the outcome, even though I haven't told you much about the decision. This is what we call resulting. Most of the decisions that we make, it's unclear to us, particularly in retrospect, whether the decision was good or bad. It's just very opaque. We can't really see into the mathematics. We don't really know like what all the possible outcomes were. We don't know what the probabilities of those outcomes were. They, we don't really know what the payoffs are. These things are all kind of hard for us to see. When we can't see that, what we do is we use this shortcut. I can see whether it turned out well. The date was great. The date was bad. And this is now going to tell me whether the decision quality was good. Now, this is such a strong bias that I can actually tell you something about the quality of the decision, and I can show you again how this feels. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the decision quality. A random acquaintance who you hardly know sets you up on a blind date. You go on the date, and it turns out horribly. Was it a good decision? 
again, I want to say no. I feel it. I feel it's a trick question. (laughs) No, it's not a trick question. Like this, literally, the great thing about all this stuff is none of them are trick questions. It's all just about revealing your own human nature. There's no trick to it because the more that you can reveal about that self, the better off you are. So with any duke, you can never trust that there's no trick to it. That's something I've learned over the years. Is uh, with any, there's always a trick to it. It's not about trying to think about what's the right answer. It's actually really important just to think about what does it feel like to you. Mm, okay. It feels- mm, okay. So, so let me ask you another question, Annie. Uh, a former professional poker player who says she still is one comes on to your podcast and she mumbles a bunch of psycho babble about uh, about good decisions and bad decisions and good dates and bad dates. I have no idea what the fuck she's talking about. All I know is about the stinkycooter.com. That's all I know about. Uh, was this a good decision to have her on here or did this destroy what little credibility I have left? It was like a bad decision. And now I've told you a little bit more. Now, if I ask, why do you think that's a bad decision? What would you say? It's only acquaintance. She doesn't know me that well. She probably doesn't know my type. Right. So, so this is interesting because now the things that I've told you about the decision seem to align pretty well with this outcome that I've given you. Right. So now you don't really have any trouble with it, but watch what happens now. Okay. I'm watching. I'm watching, Annie. I'm ready for your good date. A random acquaintance who you hardly know. It, they're totally random acquaintance. They're like, have I got somebody for you? And they set you up on a blind date and you decide to go on it. And it goes great. And the person's the love of your life and you live happily ever after. Right? Fantastic. Yeah. So what's really interesting here is that in the first case, you went to, well, it was a random acquaintance. So you could sort of see okay, here are the holes in my decision-making process. And because it aligned with this bad outcome that you had, it allowed you to sort of think that you were making a rational sort of analysis about the decision quality. But as as soon as I make the person end up being the love of your life, all that washes away. And even though the circumstances are the same, it's a random acquaintance, they hardly know you. Somehow now you're like, well, you know, what people will say is, well, you got to take a chance. And here's the interesting thing. You know... It's not that I disagree with any of this. I mean, the, the points she's making are correct, but it's not very complex stuff. It, it's very obvious to me that you can make bad decisions that will come out with a good result. And that when you make a bad decision that comes with a bad result, then it's easy to see it was a bad decision. When you make a bad decision that has a good result, then uh, then you pat yourself on the back for it. Uh, th- without talking about stupid dates, if you were to go out and buy $1,000 worth of lotto tickets you're probably going to be $1,000 poorer. That's very, very likely. You'll be either $1,000 poorer or maybe a tiny bit less if you win a few small prizes. But that's almost certainly going to be the outcome. Is you're going to lose close to $1,000 if you buy $1,000 of lotto tickets. But if there's some fluke and you buy $1,000 of lotto tickets and you win the lotto and you have many millions of dollars now, hundreds of millions of dollars you won from the lotto, well, then it seems like a good decision. Then you're not going to regret buying $1,000 worth of lotto tickets. You're not going to kick yourself and say, what an idiot I was to buy $1,000 worth of lotto tickets. So yeah, you can, you can make a stupid decision that will allow you to luck into a good result. That's, that's all she's saying. And that it's easier to see a bad decision was bad if you suffer a consequence from it. Okay, I, but I thought we all knew that. I thought we all knew that sometimes bad decisions don't come back to bite you. But usually they do, and when they do, that's when you're regretting it. And I, I'm sure she – I'd never read her book, but I'm sure she probably links this back to poker of, well, at the poker table, you can sometimes go all in. Uh, when somebody four bets with aces, you can five bet with seven deuce offsuit, and the flop can come 
uh, seven deuce something, and the ace doesn't improve. The aces don't improve, and you end up winning the hand, and you win a huge pot. But you made a bad decision. You'll never regret that you shoved the seven deuce offsuit. But if you shove the seven deuce offsuit and lose the aces, uh, then you kick yourself and say, "Why do you do that?" So th- this is simple stuff. Like uh, she's acting like these are novel concepts she's introducing that are p- make people go, "Oh, wow! I never thought of it that way." I only think about bad decisions in the context of when something bad happens, but I don't ever think. What if I made a bad decision and something good happened? Wow. Now, it, it is important to be ret- introspective and say, did I really get here in this good spot from luck or from smart decision making? But she's really over-talking this one. Is that this isn't for nothing because it actually changes our behavior going forward. When we take the quality of the outcome and either use that to figure out if the decision was good or even override information that might signal that the decision wasn't so good. Because in in the second case, you're overriding like it was a random acquaintance who doesn't know you. This is called resulting. I take the quality of the results to figure out if the decision was good. Now, think about how this causes us to learn the wrong lessons. Are you going to go around recommending people that they find people who hardly know them to set them up on dates? So, Annie, this idea is is a huge part of your book, so talk to us why it's so... Wait a minute, what, what happened to the guy, what happened to the foreign guy? So Annie, uh, forget that other guy, we just, uh, we just locked him in the closet. The other guy, he's not going to ask you any questions anymore, I'm taking over now, I'm, I'm the guy with a more traditional radio voice, not the guy talking about stinkycooter.com, here I am Annie, uh, don't worry about why I took over, don't worry, wonder why it's a completely different voice, just please answer the question and don't ask important for people to think in probabilities and more importantly how can they apply that way of thinking in their daily lives here's how we can think about what's happening with resulting we're acting as if the relationship between decisions and outcomes is much more perfectly correlated than it actually is oh my god can she stop talking about this it's just the same thing over and over said like 20 different ways only the case that when decisions or outcomes are really perfectly correlated that you could possibly work backwards from the outcome quality to the decision quality. And the problem is, of course, that we don't want to learn the wrong lesson. Given that it's the case that you can have a perfectly good outcome from a bad decision, we wouldn't want you then to go back and repeat that bad decision again. You know, when has Annie Duke ever acknowledged a bad decision she made? Have we ever heard she made a bad decision to be involved with UB, to stick with them after the cheating scandal and continue promoting them for more than two years after the cheating scandal? Did we ever hear that she made a bad decision with the way she ran Epic Poker? No. We, we don't ever hear about her bad decision. We, we hear about what a genius she is and all the smart things she did. And all the deep thinking she does. We, we never hear about her bad decisions from her. And just because you're doing this resulting thing, and vice versa, you can have a bad outcome from a good decision. We don't want to not do that. So with resulting, what's happening is we're acting as if there isn't so much uncertainty in the relationship between decisions and outcomes. So I'll tell you. Let me- I, I'm sitting here wondering, like, who listens to this podcast? The, the person who suggested this to me told me that this is something fairly popular. It's called the Investors Podcast. I don't know anything about it. They have a forum on their website. I got to take a look at the forum. Hold on, guys. I'm going to take a look at the. Forum. I just noticed they have a forum. Please let there be posts about Eddie Duke. Please let there be posts about Eddie Duke. Um, no, there aren't very many posts on this forum. I, let me see here. Go to page two. 
No, I don't see anything about Annie Duke. Yeah, it's a bunch of BS. Okay. Good try, though. I was, I was thinking maybe we could find some Annie talk in the forum. I'm just wondering, like, who listens to this and eats it up and says, oh, wow, she's so wise. Oh, wow. I'm so glad I listened to it. I'm so glad. I'm going to go run out and buy her book. She's convinced me you can make a bad decision and have a good result occasionally. Oh, my God. I never thought of that before. Let me give you a, a place where that does make sense. If we think about the game of chess, there's not a lot of uncertainty. And we can think of uncertainty in two forms. One, uncertainty in the information that there's hidden information from us. And in chess, I can see the whole position. So if I can see all of your pieces, I can know what all your possible moves are. There's nothing hidden there. The other form of uncertainty would be luck, the intervention of luck, some anything that you can't control. In chess, the pieces only move by an act of skill. Nobody rolls the dice. And then all of a sudden, the bishop appears or disappears from the board. What that means is that in a game like chess, if all that you know, like the only thing you know, is that I played a game of chess with somebody and I lost. So all I'm telling you is the outcome. What can you say about my decision quality compared to my opponent? If all you know is I lost. Well, you know, maybe uh, he or she's a, a better decision maker. Right. In that game. And that's fine. In that particular case, it's totally fine to do that. Why? Because chess doesn't have this uncertainty. But now let's take something where we do have a lot of uncertainty. So- That's not even true. I don't. I don't know what type of chess player she is, and I'm not a great chess player by any means. But chess, it doesn't have traditional luck like poker does, where there's things completely out of your control. However, the way chess works is someone makes a move, and you're basically making a counter move. And you're both trying to set up the board in a way to where you're eventually going to beat your opponent through checkmate. And sometimes your opponent, the way they're playing, can happen to throw off your strategy, even if they're not intentionally trying to do it. Someone who's much worse than you can beat you in chess. Not much, much worse, but someone who's worse than you. But, But sort of close to your level can beat you sometimes just the way the game breaks out. To where you know the moves align themselves to where they're in an advantageous position, and and what you thought they were going to do next, they didn't. And they, they, so there's there is randomness, and there's randomness in the other person's behavior, and then you try to react to it. And if you don't predict what they're going to do next, then then you can end up uh, making the wrong moves yourself, and and that's the end of it. Now, yes, there's there's big strategy element to that too, but to say that the better player wins every time is false in chess. It just simply isn't. That's just totally false. It's true that the better player wins more often than he loses against the worst player. Much more often, but you you can't just conclude because it's a game of skill that the guy who won a single match is the better player. Just a nitpick. So let's take poker. Uh Now in poker, we've got two forms of uncertainty, right? We've got the cards are hidden from view, so I can't see the person's cards. And also there's the intervention of luck. What that means is that now I can have the best hand. I can play it really, really well, and I can still lose. Going into the last card, I could be 98% to win the hand. 2% of the time I'll lose. Like Yeah, I, I remember a situation like this. I remember a situation on a certain online poker site. Oh, I'm forgetting the name. I think it started with a U. But anyway, whatever that site was, there was a guy who could remove one of those forms of uncertainty, could see everybody's cards, but he couldn't see what was coming. So even with 
that cheater being able to see your hole cards. Occasionally the cheater would lose when you'd catch a flush on him or you'd catch a freak two pair that he didn't expect and you'd both put in a lot of money and then you'd get lucky on the river. Yeah, yeah, you're like 98% a chance to win and you know you are because you can see the opponent's cards and you still lose. That's a great example, Annie. Thank you. Sometimes I'm just going to lose. Likewise, and actually I think even more problematic, is that I can have the worst hand. I can play it pretty poorly. Like I can decide it's a really good idea to go out on a blind date that's set up by someone who literally doesn't even know anything about me. So I can have the worst hand. I can play it pretty poorly. And then it can turn out great. I could be 98% to lose the hand. And because of the turn of the last card, 2% of the time I'm going to win. So what does that mean? That if all you know is that I played a little bit of poker, let's say a half hour of poker with somebody, and that I came out the loser, now what can you say about my decision quality in comparison to theirs? So once you start to... Well, what I could say, if you played a half an hour of poker and they beat you, was that you were not playing them on UB. Put uncertainty into the mix. It takes a lot more iteration to actually see the skills start to emerge So you can kind of think about it like if I flip a coin once and it lands tails, that doesn't mean that I should think that tails is going to land every single time, right? It takes a lot of coin flips. Yeah, and and there's one other example. If you play a super user on a poker site that can see all your whole cards, uh, you may beat him once, but after a lot of iterations of playing the guy heads up and he just completely crushes you, uh, that and, and just wins at a rate that's just insane that nobody could ever win at, uh, that is an example of skill taking effect over luck the skill of cheating in order for me to sort of figure out what's going on with that to play a lot of hours together before you could actually say who was the better decision maker like a half hour doesn't do it because there's too loose a connection between decision quality and outcome quality okay so what we can sort of think about is that what's happening when we're doing resulting is that we're acting like we're playing chess If I know what the outcome is, I can work backwards on a single trial. This isn't, you know, we're not working with big data sets here. You know, for most things, you've got one try at it. When the fact is that we're not really playing chess, we're actually playing poker. Because if we were playing chess, then every time you ran a red light, you would at least get a ticket. And every time you went through a green light, you would emerge unscathed. But we know that that's not true. Sometimes I go through green lights, I get in an accident. Sometimes I go through red lights and nothing bad happens to me. So we know that you can't do this, right? So... Once we sort of have that frame and we realize, okay, we're sort of acting like we're playing chess, but we're really playing poker, you can start to see where this frame of thinking about your decisions as bet actually is really helpful. Really what a bet is is this. I have options that I'm weighing, and I have limited resources to invest. So I can't invest in all the options available to me. So let's simplify it and say I've got a binary choice, option A, option B. I have resources to invest. Sometimes it's just my time. And whichever option I choose is not going to result in a guaranteed future. When I choose an option, there's going to be a set of possible futures that could occur. And each of those futures is going to have some probability of happening. That's exactly what a bet is, right? I invest in an option that then results in some sort of probabilistic distribution of outcomes. And what I'm trying to do is get a positive return on my investment. I think this story is the perfect segue into my next question here. Wait, you- how do we get this guy back? How, how do we get Stinky Cooter back here? <laughs> what do they do here? Are, are they sitting in the same room switching off? I, I still think this is mostly pre-recorded 
one person than the other. I, I, I know there was that one segment where they were talking, but I've, heard, I've just heard too many abrupt transitions and this switching persons thing, and the, the two different guys are never talking together. Your book is so it's just packed with great stories, and perhaps my favorite story is about 30 days in Des Moines. And I do <laughs> want to apologize to all our listeners out there in Des Moines. It might not come across as, as well, but for me, that was such a hilarious story. It's become pogo folklore also. But Annie, could you please tell us that story and perhaps also the more surprising learning outcome of why this story applies to all of us? My very good friend, John Hennigan, in the 90s, amazing poker player, but also like really like the stereotype of, of what you would think of as a 20-something guy playing poker for a living. The term that we would have used is action junkie. So an action junkie is like someone who just really like he likes to be in it. You know, he likes to be in the action. So he's playing all night. Like the game is starting at like 9 or 10. He's like playing through the night. He like never sees the sun when he's done playing. He's like going out to the club. So this is a guy who likes his nightlife, really likes poker, loves a gamble. So one day he's sitting at the poker table and a discussion breaks out. So there's a lot of downtime in poker. So you end up like with some very strange discussions happening on this particular day. The discussion was about state capital. So there, you know, it's like, oh, do you know the state capital of this? Do you know the state capital of this state? Do you know the state capital of this state? They get to Iowa. Do you know the state capital of Iowa? Yeah, it's Des Moines. And for some reason, like, Hennigan just announces, like, oh, I could totally live in Des Moines. All right, so now he stated a belief. I could live in Des Moines. Now everybody looks at him and says, yeah, right. I mean, this is like the quit, like the absolute epitome of a Vegas guy. They're like, yeah, right, you could live in Des Moines. Well, so now what we have is conflicting beliefs. People at the table believe that he can't live in Des Moines. John Hennigan believes he could. And as often happens in an environment where bets take place, when there are conflicting beliefs, the adjudicator is a bet. So you have this kind of accountability mechanism that now intervenes for your beliefs where you sort of figure out, all right, let's figure out how deeply we really believe this thing. So- all right. You know, I, I, I'm losing interest. That's why I haven't been stopping it enough. I'm just – I'm losing interest, guys. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't really care about John Hennigan and – a bet about whether he could live in Des Moines or not. It's whatever. Yeah, the, the guy was right, though. It's a, this is pretty off-putting, this whole interview. If, if, especially if you know Annie. If you, if you think this is someone who really has novel things to say, it's a wise person you should listen to, then I, I can see how people could appreciate this. But if you, if you know her background, if you know what she's really about, then... Yeah, <laughs> this is very obnoxious. Okay, I'm just going to jump forward here. Let's hear this part. I just jumped forward nine minutes. They challenged me and said, why? You have to say why they're bad because maybe they're not. Maybe you just don't understand what they're doing. And this was forced on me by my mentors, which was really lucky because I heard a lot of other groups who did this, that player is really bad. And the person would say, yeah, they suck. Let me tell you about the player that I played against who was really bad. Now, notice there's not a whole lot of learning going on there. It's just sort of confirming we're great, they're bad. That's sort of the world where my, my group wasn't allowing me to do that. It creates this really wonderful accountability mechanism that actually improves your decision-making when you're away from the group. Hmm. Yeah, see, the, the whole thing just sounds like this. 
people make such and such wrong decisions. People come to wrong conclusions based upon temporary data that they shouldn't be basing that conclusion upon. And I'm smart. I never made that mistake. I just, uh, I always look at things critically. You don't. I'm so smart. Look up to me. Do what I do. Annie Duke is great. Annie Duke is great. Remember, Annie Duke is great. I make great decisions. Keep that in mind, everybody. I make better decisions than you. Learn from me. Annie Duke is great. That is pretty much what this podcast is. And then the occasional the occasional uh, interjection from the brown nosers who are interviewing her. Oh, yes, Annie. This sounds very great for what you're saying. Yeah, you people, they... They think, oh, a player is bad, but you don't really think, why is he bad? And if you don't think, why is he bad? Maybe he's not bad, you're the bad one. You know, maybe this is a good point. Nobody thinks, why well, you know, they think someone bad. You know, do you really think, why are they bad, or you just say they're bad and just to feel good about yourself? Well, anything you made me think tonight. She does bring up one thing about you know, what, she did, what she just said there. There is one pet peeve I have. And by the way, she's a hypocrite, which I'll explain in a second, but a total hypocrite. I had a personal experience with her that completely contradicts what she just said. In fact, well, let's just get to that. That's the more important thing here. I told the story not too long ago when I talked about the Gavin Smith thing that happened. And I talked about how Annie Duke was at the, at, at the tournament. I was short stacked and it was a middle position and I had an A7 offsuit and I shoved it. I shoved my short stack with A7 offsuit middle position. Nobody was in the pie yet. So I was hoping she's going to fold around and get the blinds and annies, right? Well, it folds to her, and she calls me with ace-queen. She's on button or something. Okay, standard, right? You have like a very standard situation here. The guy with a trash ace in middle position shoves his short stack. Someone with a better ace on the button calls the short stack. Everybody else folds. It runs out, right? This couldn't be a more standard no-limit situation in poker, right? Well... We turn over our card, the flop comes out with a 7. She doesn't get her queen, and I win. So a7 beats ace-queen. She berated me. How can you play that a7? How can you do that? You know, would you, do you see what I had here? Do you, like, it was crazy. I wasn't shoving a sizable stack with a7. I was short. I was trying to pick up the blinds and annies for middle position. So I made the right decision at the time, which became the wrong decision once it turned out she had the ace-queen on the button. Had I known that, I wouldn't have done it. Of course, there's no way to know that. And then I lucked into winning anyway. So it once again became the right decision. But she was berating me like I was bad for having done that because I happened to get lucky in the hand. It's exactly contradicting what she's claiming there. But I do have a pet peeve in poker when people say such and such person is bad. There are, are certain poker pros that will label everyone as bad except for like five people. Everybody else is bad. And I, I've heard this before and they'll say, oh, such and such guy is bad. And it's someone I know who wins. And I, I say to them, well, how do you say he's bad? He wins. Oh, he plays against Mega Fish. That's why. I go, well, no, but I see. I don't just see him playing heads up against Mega Fish. I see him in six-handed game. Well, yeah, he'll sit only as a fish in the game. Well, okay, that's good game selection. Well, yeah, so that's why he can only win with his Mega Fish in the game. Like, well, no, I'm not making the case that this is the best player in the world. I'm making the case that he's not bad. He, this is someone who can, who knows how to exploit the fish. This is someone who can hold his own against 
the other pros at the table to where he doesn't lose back what he wins from the fish. So this is someone who makes a living playing poker. How can you say they're bad at poker? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like I've had these conversations with other pros before. I've had other pros before say that I'm bad. I'm not one of the five people they think is great. So I, Some people get some ego boost by saying that everybody else except for them and a few other people they really respect is bad. And I think that's dumb. I think you need to really, really be honest in poker about your opponents. And I also say that there's kind of a sliding scale of what your opinion is of someone's play and what it really is. So at the very bottom, there's the mega fish. And if you think someone's a mega fish, they're probably a mega fish. Then there's the fish, who's not a mega fish, you know, not one of the worst ones ever, but still pretty bad. Usually you'll recognize a fish again, and they really are fish. Then there's what I call the semi-dunk, someone who's sort of has a clue, but still makes a lot of uh, pretty egregious mistakes. Usually you're pretty good at recognizing one of those, but you'll often exaggerate in your mind how bad they are. So someone who is a semi-dunk, you'll erroneously label a fish or maybe even a mega fish when they're not. So that's already where the morphing starts to occur, where you're believing they're worse than they are. Then how about an, an average player? Someone who can't beat the rake, someone who isn't bad, but it definitely isn't good, and is probably destined to slowly lose. You'll probably think that they're more of like a semi-dunk. Maybe even you'll think they're a fish. What about someone who's above average? You'll probably, again, either think you're semi-dunk or maybe you think they're average. What about someone who is a good player? Let's say you're a good player also. You know, this is, I'm saying from the standpoint of someone who's good. Um, let's say someone who's good and is about equal to you. Well, you're going to think that they're a decent player. You'll think they're above average, but you're not going to think they're as good as you. If they're about equally as good as you, you're going to think you're better. What if they're a little bit better than you? Then you're going to think you're about equal. What if they're a lot better than you? Then they're going to, you're going to think they're a little better than you. That's usually how it goes. And that's why people engage in poor game selection. Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Let's, let's jump forward a little bit again. Jumping to the 30-minute mark, about three minutes away from the end of this. Those are the people who you form your decision group with. So you find the people who are heading in that direction already, and you say, hey, let's get together and let's actually form a decision group or a decision pod. Yeah, like, like with Jeffrey Pollock. Let's make a decision pod to start Epic Poker, and let's make the decision to give away a million dollars that we probably won't be able to cover when it comes time to give away a million dollars. What the goal of this is going to be threefold. We're going to commit to trying to form the most accurate model of the world as opposed to affirm the things that we already believe. Mm-hmm. So let's agree to that. Okay. Let's call that accuracy versus rightness. We're going to reason about the world in order to try to be accurate rather than right. So we're going to agree to that. Accuracy is our king here. The second thing we're going to agree to is that we're going to hold each other accountable to the things that we believe. Mm-hmm. So that when you say something... Uh, okay, that's, that's, I agree. I agree. Let's hold you accountable. Uh, you said that you didn't think there was cheating on UB. You said that you felt the new UB was not run by the same cheaters and you could trust them again. Okay. I'm holding you accountable. Where's your apology? 
Where's your acts of contrition? Wait, there aren't any? Thing that I think is off base. I'm not just going to let it go like we mostly do. Yeah, we should let it go, right? Just forget about it. UB stole everyone's money twice? No problem. You made a lot of money off UB while they were doing that? No problem. Let it go. In our group, when you hear me say something that you think that I'm off base on, I am going to consider that you have harmed me if you do not point it out to me. (laughs) Did you hear what you just said? Did you hear what you just said? This is one of the most arrogant, self-unaware people in the history of man. And she says that and someone who can't take criticism in any way whatsoever and will never take fault for anything. And she thinks that you will have harmed her if, if you don't tell her that she was wrong. <laughs> oh, gosh. I got to hear that again. Here. The second thing we're going to agree to is that we're going to hold each other accountable to the things that we believe. So that when you say something that I think is off base, I'm not just going to let it go like we mostly do. In our group, when you hear me say something that you think that I'm off base on, I am going to consider that you have harmed me if you do not point it out to me. So this flips the normal interaction on its head. When I'm at a cocktail party and I express an opinion and someone challenges me, most people feel like that's harm. And so you're going to hold me accountable to the things that I believe in that way because you're going to point out when you think that I'm going astray. Your book, Thinking in Bats, is absolutely amazing. I'll definitely encourage everyone out there listening to this to pick it up. Yeah, pick it up after you sign up for thinkingcooter.com. Pick up the Thinking in Bats. You can hear more premium material like this. Okay, I am the guy with a weird accent from country you cannot determine, but you cannot understand me either way. Signing off. See you next week. Go to stickycooter.com. I still don't know what site he was advertising. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of a combination of disturbing and funny. Not intentionally funny, but funny. And now for something completely different. Back to seriousness here. The DOJ has decided to delay enforcement of the reinterpretation of the Wire Act. We've seen this go back and forth. We had it back in 2011 where the DOJ decided to reinterpret the 1961 Wire Act to only apply to uh, to sports betting. But the uh, reinterpretation that just occurred now reinterprets the Wire Act to apply to all forms of gambling, including poker. Now, well, before we do this, we'll take this call here. This person who keeps trying to call. Call, you're on the air. Hello? Yes. Huh? Uh, yes. Go ahead. 
Is this Neverwin? This is Neverwin's cock. Yeah, that's, I thought so. Neverwin, is that you? I heard Neverwin in the background. Neverwin. Neverwin. Let's, let's, come on. You haven't been on here in so long. Neverwin, let's, let's hear from you. I, I recognize that moan. My birthday wishes, and I'm still alive. This has something to do with Neverwin. I, I, I recognize his groan in the background, or moan, or whatever the hell that is. I, I don't know what's going on here, but there, there's. I don't know why I should recognize his moan, but I do. There is there. We have Neverwin, and we have some girl he's with in in the Chicago area calling me from a seven seven three number. But I'm not getting a lot of coherent. I'm not getting a lot of coherent speech here. Hacks. This is hacks. This is hacks. Okay, that's right. His hacks is his. Were you like an ex girlfriend from like a million years ago of his? Yes, you're right. Yeah. You have a great memory. I I do. Thank you. And then, but you're with you're with him currently, right? Huh. Like right now, you're with him, right? Like physically. Yeah. Well, come on, never win and talk. It's been a long time. I haven't talked to Neverwin in a while. Yeah, I know. Talk, I got you. Is, 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 is he mm-hmm. unable to talk these days? I mean, I get questions all the time from people who don't even like realize that Neverwin's not in Vegas anymore. They go, you know, how's Neverwin doing? You know, how's he? You know, I don't see him in Vegas anymore. I go, well, he hasn't been there in years. But like, what kind of questions do you have for him? Well, I, I got to get him to talk at first before I can ask anything. He, he, he's just going. Uh, right. uh. I know that's his true style. Can, can okay. you uh, can you lick his ass or something and get him to talk? I was just going to. Okay, <laughs> I shouldn't have asked. Oh boy. Oh boy. I can't believe this. Hey, hi. Oh, now he's going to be quiet. Now he's going to be quiet. Okay, so so. Hacks, what's go- what's going on with you? Are you are you dating Neverwin again? Is that what's happening? Have you re- returned to the uh, the ways of Neverwin after I all this? I never went anywhere. I never was missing. Well, you were missing from his life, uh, at least in the romantic standpoint. Not really. Well, from a, you weren't dating him for many years. Right, I did. I got married for a few years, and then I got divorced. Okay, but but so now you're you're. Uh, I know you're both in the Chicago area now, so so you're. With him again? At least sometimes? Are you with me? Are you with me? Hey. I'm so confused by this. Yeah. Like, I don't want to hang up on it, but What's I'm so confused by this. What? We live together. Oh, you live together. Okay. Baby. Oh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's slow down here. That's, this is a lot of big news here. So you're having a baby? You've got, yeah. never, you've got everyone's baby inside of you? Yeah. Wow. Now wait a minute. I thought you were around his age. Aren't uh, isn't it a little bit late for you to be able to have a baby? Like, aren't how old is no, Neverwin? I have two children. I have three. I have two girls, and of course, Neverwin. We have a baby on the way. So wait a minute. Um, no, I guess I guess it's not too late. I guess you're probably both like forty, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I forgot you're a little bit younger than me. So. Yeah. So so wow! Never one got you pregnant. Now, was it was this was this pregnancy intentional or was it an accident? It was intentional. Wow! Wow! So you've, you've you have never one's baby. She had a baby that never, you know, got it to work. So now now you call this show sometimes. I, I've got a question for you. You call this show sometimes hacks. I know you've called here before and said some strange things. Um, are, are you a regular listener here? You just you just kind of turn it on occasionally. How, how often do you listen to this show? 
Um, once in a while, I just like randomly turn it on and I'll be on. Okay. All right. It's, I'm pretty busy. I don't just sit around waiting for you to come on. <laughs> I we look and we're up. Like I'm not normally up this time. I have to be at work and three more hours. I have a real job. So now is is never yeah, when is, is he still playing poker? Um, are you still playing poker? How do you not I know that? In front of an eye. What you what you live with him? You should know if he plays poker or not. I don't know why everyone won't talk to me. I've never, I don't understand that development. Have you ever known him to do what he, somebody wants him to do? Or has he always been kind of stubborn? And Well, I've never seen him just refuse to talk before. Like, I've never had him refuse to talk on a phone call. That's a new one. When he's on the phone, he's always talked to me. I don't know why we have like a uh, mouthpiece. We have, we have. Like, I, I got to ask you about him. And there's a baby on the way too. Wow. It's, so, so how, how far along are you? Um, six months. Six months. And have, have you had the appropriate tests to make sure the baby's okay since you're forty? Okay. Absolutely. So the baby's okay, and six months. That's, that means it's it's just about. You be sure that the baby really comes. That it's way past any miscarriage point. And uh, wow, I now, I, 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 I hope that uh, Neverwin outlives his prediction because he told me <laughs> he already has though, right? No, no, he said fifty is is when he's gonna die. So he's, so he's got he's got he's he got ten. Like on a daily basis, he might not make it another ten well, what does he say? I couldn't understand you. What does he say on a daily basis? I said, I said, he said on a daily basis, he might not have another time left in him. Yeah, well, I've, I remember he told me this about he thinks he's going to be dead by 50. I said, don't say that. That's not a good thing to say. You, you, I said, you're, you're still yeah, in your... Yeah, he's like, he's saying his body is not doing whatever he needs to do. He's my well, yeah, but if if he's look if he's gotten to this age and and he's not having major problems, he probably will live past fifty. Even if he's got some recurring issues from past uh, drug abuse, but uh, I I, th- I think he'll make it past fifty as long as he, as long as he keeps himself uh, himself clean and uh, doesn't return to some old mistakes. Yeah, he he's clean. I think he'll, he'll be okay. Is he gonna be okay, Dad? Yes, he <laughs> I don't know what's going on in the background. So, so you're are you both like lying in bed right now and making this phone call? Yeah, you are. You're both in bed, and uh, yeah, I, I saw the call coming in before, but I was I was too busy making fun of Annie Duke to take any phone call. Who was that? That's, that's, that's Annie Duke. She's very annoying. So if she was on another podcast, I was mocking it. But uh, then then the call came in after that. I said, oh, what the heck? I'll take a call. And, and here you are. I should have known the 773 call is, is – it's not always you because we get other calls from that area code, but it, but it has been you in the past. I've the same phone number forever. No, but I don't remember the number. Like I just see numbers pop up. I and I, you should. Well – <laughs> Uh, <laughs> is that a snore or a fart? 
Hey. Is everyone even awake? Like, what, what's going on here? Hi, Jeffy. <laughs> Does he speak English anymore? Is he, has he gotten a new first language I don't know about? Yes, it's Batu Batu. I don't know what that would be. And in my Okay. Well, is, is there anything else you'd like to say here or, or reveal? Um, I think. I think. Is is uh? Is you know, something about that dog. About a dog. Yeah, he's, he's, he's having a nightmare about a dog. Does, does, does he still like dogs? <laughs> Do you still like dogs? I guess that's our answer. He still likes dogs. Okay, and uh, do you know what? Are you having a boy or a girl? Having a baby boy. Okay. I, I wonder if, uh, if if this boy is going to play poker in uh, 21 years or so. I mean, he could. He could. Yeah. Maybe. maybe uh, he could play like. Uh, let me think about this. Hold on. As long as this boy doesn't become the next Zyprez, he'll be okay. That's absolutely a big worry. <laughs> do you know about Zyprez? I do. Yeah. Well, at least at least Dustin's doing better than Zyprez. I'll give him that. This is true. Actually, when I go get my nails under the car, and the license plates say Zyprez, what, what, it's the creepiest thing. What, which license plate says Zyprez? Some car that's always parked outside my nail salon. Oh, that's weird. <clears throat> yeah, I was taking a picture and sent him. I know, really, really. What, 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 what if he faked his death? What if Thy Prez has been alive this whole time and he's like stalking Dustin? He, you know what? He's with Tupac. Yeah, it could be. It could be that Thy Prez has been alive all uh, this time. Is it true? Um, is Thy Prez still alive? Thy Prez? Is he still alive? He, he might be. I, I never saw a body. I mean, he could still be alive. The whole thing could be a hoax. Is he alive? I think Dustin's confused right now. I, I hope I hope when we are with Dustin normally that he's more communicative than this. I hope you get I, hope, oh, I wish that the show was on earlier and more communicative. Well it was it was on we started about four hours ago, so I how about you know we were mm-hmm. Well I'll I'll tell you what. Uh, if you just text the this phone, the phone number, same phone number you, you called. Text the number from this number so I uh, remember your number, and then uh, then we can text set, my number, your number, your number, my number. Text the radio phone number from this number, okay? And then we can set up Dustin to come on here. Oh, like a, uh, a real call where he's awake and alert. Yes, yes, yes. Then that we sounds can, like a wonderful idea. In fact, there will be some Before people. Before the baby's born. Yeah, there will, there will be some people who will want to hear from him, too, because it's it's been a long time. There's many people curious about what happened to Dustin, and I, I don't have many answers. Like, people ask me like I'm supposed to know, and I go, no, I, I don't know either. But there's, in fact, there's these even people who were you know, once pretty close friends with him that have no idea, and they're asking me. Oh, my goodness, who? Like, like uh, Devin Miller is one of them who asked. Devin Miller wants to know where you are. This is a while oh, ago, but yeah, like... like 
Like I, I get questions from people like that that I'm surprised they don't know. I go, no, I, I don't know much either. And I, I said, I, I see something like he's interested in Bitcoin, but I don't quite understand. Like, yeah, you know, he is. He's into Bitcoin. Well, here's a good question. I see like people want to know like how many Bitcoins does he have? Well, yeah. Just, did, 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 yeah. No, here's a good question. Did Dustin like hold a lot of Bitcoin at one point, like to where it made a lot of money and he sold it, or or did that not happen that way? Like, did he did he ever profit big from Bitcoin, and does he still have the money? Um, well, if he still had it, he probably would have lost back. So I'd probably say he sold. Well, no, but right. If you sold it like yeah, a, a year ago, that, if you sold it like a, like about fourteen months ago, you'd. Have, I mean, if you bought him really. Yeah. Well, I'm just kind of curious. I know he was very high on Bitcoin, and, and he was high on it before it did its its huge rise did, from like yeah, he did. like he was he was very high on it when it was like when when it was like 400. He was very high on it, right? Yeah. Well, no, no. Even more recently, like he was he was very high on it even like uh, three years ago when it was like 400 bucks, mm-hmm. and then it, then it right. by by the end of last year it was 19,000 something. Now we're sitting in the in the right. high in the high 3,000s, which is a big decline mm-hmm. from there. But but. Uh, if he had a lot at four hundred in two thousand early two thousand sixteen, uh, then he would have made a lot of money, even if he hadn't touched it since then. Even with the big the big rise and the big fall, it's still up uh, several times, almost ten times of what it was then. Right. So that's what I'm curious about. He's he talked a lot of, about. You want about, to know about your bitcoins? I feel like I have a translator. Do you have them? Do you sell them? Do you profit on from them? Is it only bitcoins that you? deal with? Do you deal with other cryptos? That's a good question, too. You know, RIP, Monero, anything else? He's kind of into, like, every single what, cryptocurrency, I guess? Is he, is he, does he still talk to Mike on it all, or no? Um, do you talk to Mike on Occasionally, I think. Okay. Do My- you still talk to him? You don't talk to No, him? no. Mike on and I don't like each other anymore. Oh, why not? No, we, we, I'll be fine. I know. We had a big falling out uh, eight years ago. So that's Falling that. outs are overrated. You should fall back in. No, there's no there's no way. It's it's too late. It's, it's, it's Too much has happened. So that, that's yeah, done. Yeah, but you can erase it. No. Just, we, you know what? We really can't. Ever happened. We, we really can't. But, but at least Dustin's not involved. He He didn't have to do with this, so. Got no, I've got no. no problem with Dustin, only with Mike on. That's good. Dustin's a good boy. Are you a good boy? You're a good girl. Are you a good girl, Dustin? <laughs> you know, tonight he told me he's a girl, but a boy. I was <laughs> like, what? Well, what do you I'm mean by that? I'm worried again. I don't know what that meant. I said, well, do you, do you go in the guy's bathroom or the girl's bathroom? He said, like, he's kind of in disguise, so nobody knows he's really in <laughs> Well, I don't know what to make of that. But, I don't either. Okay, well, I, I guess... You can always make pizza. I, I, guess it, I guess it's more of your problem than mine here. But uh, okay, well, it is my problem. I, I think or I think the baby's problem. Yeah, I, I think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to make a, a, a date here to call when he's more yeah, awake. And, we were thinking of like, name situations. We we're kind of clueless. So, what do you think? Thinking of what? I, what's the question? We're looking for input for names. For, oh, for names, I I don't know. I, I... he wanted Andy, baby Tony. Was it Tony G? 
Tony. <laughs> you want to name it after Tony G? <laughs> it should actually make yeah. it. To, yeah, actually make it Tony G. Like make it the middle initial G. Yeah, G. And just just have it just be. You could kind of make it like Harry S. Truman, where just the G doesn't stand for anything. It's just it's just a middle initial. Right, but it's G, like the G, right? It's just Tony G. Wolf. Yeah. You know he's he's totally sleeping right now. He's got his hand on his forehead. He's like shaking. (laughs) (laughs) He's choking. (laughs) Okay. Well. Hi. Oh, he said bye bye. Okay, uh, we're, we're gonna have to move on here, but uh, text, text, text me and, and we'll we'll get something set up. Bye, here. guys. We'll text you. We'll make a plan. Okay. 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 All right. Good night. Good morning. Good talking to you, Justin. Sending love from yep. from Sleepy Land. Yes. Okay. Good night. I will talk to you uh, again soon. Text me. Sure. Take care now. That was the hacks. For those of you that were very confused by this call, join the club. I am too. Neverwin, Dustin Wolf, was the original co-founder of NeverwinPoker.com in 2004, which was just a fan site for him for him and his poker play at the time. And I showed up, and I was kind of like his rival on PokerStars, and I kind of turned it from that into just a crazy, degenerate, free speech environment. And then a lot of people liked it, and then a lot of people showed up, and that created the community, which still exists today in kind of a different form on PokerFraudAlert.com in our forums. And uh, we even did a radio show at one point on uh, Neverwin Poker. I wasn't involved in setting it up. As I said, I just showed up and uh, kind of got the whole thing active as a user there. I eventually became a moderator. It's a long story I've told before. I won't tell it right now. But at one point, they had this girl on the radio, the one we just heard. Uh, she called herself The Hacks. And she was a girlfriend of his from like when they were both 18. And I I don't know how much they were still talking, but to my knowledge at the time, they were just friends. And in fact, she lived far away from him. He was living in Las Vegas at the time. He lived in Las Vegas and LA at various times during the times he was actively playing poker out here, but he was not back in Illinois. And after he had his uh, drug issues, and lost his houses in both Las Vegas and L.A. He went back to Illinois, where he was originally from. And I guess at some point, he hooked up with the Hacks again. And I think she was married, but then she got a divorce. And now they're together. Now they're going to have a baby, which is new to me. I, th- I think I kind of had an idea they were together again. But the baby thing is, that's surprising. That is surprising. So we're going to have to find out more about this. So, okay, let, let's go to the DOJ topic now. <laughs> I'm glad I took that call, though. It was, it was weird, but kind of interesting, and some interesting things came out. So, back to the situation with the DOJ. They reversed the opinion on the Wire Act this year. And said it, it applies to all gambling. It's it's a law that is now almost 60 years old. But the problem is this would make interstate transmissions illegal in the U.S. for any form of gambling. And that 
would probably do away with the partnerships that online poker sites have with one another to share player pools like New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada currently have. So this could really affect poker. This would force poker to not cross state lines online in these legalized rooms. The thought would be that prior to this, that a lot of different states would start their own online poker, or they'd legalize online poker in a lot of different states, and eventually these casinos offering the poker would be cooperating with one another, and you would have very large player pools of people across the country, and maybe not in every state, but a lot of states, and we would be back to having a lot of players online, but this threatens to end that. It would probably not affect the recent sports betting laws that allow legalized sports betting in any state that wants to legalize it because those don't cross state lines. But there is a concern that if network traffic temporarily gets routed outside of state lines, they could be running afoul of that law. And the New Hampshire lottery actually filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice over this new opinion. So while this is all going on, and by the way, the New Hampshire Lottery Commission, usually it's lottery commissions that, or not usually, but often it's lottery commissions that regulate gambling in their states, so it's not really about the lottery. But because the Lottery Commission in New Hampshire is uh, suing the DOJ over this, they're, they're basically stalling this and not forcing compliance until June 14th. Originally, they said in January that all entities had 90 days to comply with a new opinion or otherwise they are going to face penalties. But that's no longer true. Now they have until June 14th. And who knows, it could be delayed even further as this lawsuit proceeds, but that's probably why they delayed it. So it's believed that probably any state that challenges this will be successful. There was a case in 2014, which is a U.S. versus Lions. I don't know much about it, but uh, there was a decision made that the Wire Act only applies to sports betting. And I I see, so this case had to do with the Reach of the Wire Act that uh, there were various people that were involved in an illegal gambling operation. Some of it was through online, through one of those offshore books. And the ruling said the Wire Act applies only to wagers on any sporting event or contest, that is sports betting. So that was said right there in, in the decision. So while it upheld the convictions of the defendants in that case, it did mention that the Wire Act only applies to sports betting.
So the lawsuit is asking for a summary judgment in invalidating this uh, opinion that was done in January and is said to have a connection to Sheldon Adelson. But anyway, nobody's going to have to act on this until June 14th. I am still wondering what the World Series of Poker is going to do with their WSFP.com. Are they going to continue offering the ability to play poker against people in other states legally? Or are they going to voluntarily pull that away in order to comply with this? Now, they have till June 14th, but they may want to change that beforehand so they don't run up against it and get in trouble. So maybe by the time you show up to the World Series in late May, you won't be able to do this anymore. Caesars has not announced what they're going to do about this. I'm sure they're hoping that this gets overturned in some way. Okay, let's move on. I'm talking about Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn, I had revealed in a previous show, had made it public that he owns 10% of Caesars. Not just Caesars Palace, but but all of Caesars, the Caesars Entertainment Corporation. And he had stated that uh, a few things. First of all, he wanted the current CEO to leave sooner. The current CEO was expected to leave in February, but then the departure was put on hold until April. But uh, Icon has no faith in this current CEO, Mark Versora, and wants him out as soon as possible, not even to wait till April, which isn't that far away now. He wants Versora to leave immediately, basically. Icon also wanted some people on the board that he had faith in, or basically people who would be representing him, basically his own lackeys. He also wants Anthony Rodio, that's R-O-D-I-O, who's currently the CEO of Affinity Gaming, to take over Caesars. Anthony Rodio was once the CEO of uh, Tropicana Entertainment, which Icon recently sold for $1.85 billion. Icon still believes that selling 10% of, sorry, selling all of Caesars, or selling Caesars is the correct course of action, and that it will cause the company to have the most valuation. He also uh, sorry, let let me give you the information on the board members that got put in. Caesars Entertainment Corporation announced that Keith Koza, Courtney Mather, and James Nelson are all on the board. These three are part of the Icon Group. So he now has three board members that are basically him. They're three separate people, but they're basically him. They're part of the Icon Group. They're basically his lackeys. 
and now he has some say in the way the company moves and operates. He was pressuring them to do this, and this was an agreement that was made between Caesars and him that they would appoint these three to the board who essentially represent him. But apparently the main reason that he wanted the board members it was to appoint a CEO he likes. And he's hoping it's going to be Anthony Rodeo. So that's current update with Icon. I don't know if he will wield enough influence to get Caesars to sell to somebody. But that's what he wants to see happen. So we will be watching this. If he sells to a company that doesn't really have much of a presence in Vegas, it's not going to affect the operations of Caesars much. He probably won't notice very much as a customer that's different. But if he does sell to something like MGM, then it could end up being vastly different because they could end up being gobbled up into MGM's M-Life program and everything could change. So we will see. Okay, well, I've covered all the poker and gambling topics that I'm going to do this week. And it is 1.27 a.m. The show's been on about four and a half hours, and I still feel like I have some energy, so I'm going to tell you a story. And for those of you that find the stories from my life in the past boring, then you can fast forward, unless you're listening live, and then you can just turn it off. But I thought about this story, which I hadn't thought about much in recent years, but I thought about it because of a certain date that passed. I was looking at the date on my computer as I was on it about a week and a half ago, and I saw that the date read February 26th. And I thought to myself, February 26th? Why Why is it, kind of, why does it kind of feel strange looking at the date February 26th? I go, oh, February 26th. And then I go, oh, wow, this is the 30-year anniversary of something. The date was February 26th, 1989. I was 16, almost 17 years old. Very close to 17. You could pretty much say I was 17. And I was going on a ski trip with my temple. So it was a Jewish ski trip. I had never gone on that type of trip with my temple. I had gone to a few little events where we get on a bus that would take us to, you know, somewhere in the valley or another part of L.A. But I'd never gone that distance with my temple before. I was part of a group called USY, which stands for United Synagogue Youth. And I wasn't, like, really religious or anything, but I just – it was kind of like a, a teen social group for the temple, and I was part of it for a few years. So this was a USY trip to Snow Summit in Big Bear Lake, California. Snow Summit is considered a local Southern California ski resort. It's in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's a lot closer than resorts like Mammoth or Lake Tahoe, which are also driving distance from L.A. but take some time to get to. Uh, To give you an example, driving-wise... You can get from parts of most parts of L.A. to Snow Summit in about two to two and a half hours. Mammoth will take about five hours or more. Tahoe will take 
uh, about seven and a half hours. So you can see that it's a lot easier to get to and from Snow Summit. So why does anybody go to Mammoth? Well, Snow Summit isn't that good. The Mammoth is a much better resort. The Tahoe Resorts are much better. The San Bernardino Mountains are smaller ski resorts. The snow's not as good. They don't have as much snow. The season is shorter. The runs aren't as good. The mountains are not as big, so you can go from the top to the the bottom of the mountain pretty fast, and you're back on the chairlift again. That's where I learned to ski originally at the age of eight, back in uh, 1980. And it, it had a special place in my heart for that reason. And when I heard that my temple was having a snow summit ski trip, I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Now, what didn't sound that cool is you had to ride a bus all the way there. And everything's slower than a bus, as I'm sure you know. So that two, I think it was like two and a half hour ride normally in a car from where I was, uh, became more than that in the bus. But I figured, you know, I'm going with other teenagers there from the temple, and uh, it, uh, you know, it seemed fun. And even, you know, and I didn't care so much about who went, because even if the people who chose to go, I didn't, wasn't that friendly with, I, I was fine skiing myself, too. Skiing, it, it, it's... It's sometimes tough to do with friends because if the friends are not somewhere close to your ability level, it's no fun for either of you. So what's ideal is to ski with someone who's of similar ability. And sometimes that's hard to find. Sometimes you'll find people that are way better than you and you don't want to ski with them. They they ski on runs that are too hard. Uh, sometimes you'll find people that are worse than you, and you're gonna, they want to just ski on the bunny slopes and really slow, and there's no fun. So sometimes it's hard to find that. So I, I was thinking, okay, in this, in this trip, there's a good chance it's going to be me skiing by myself, but whatever. I, I, I want to do it anyway. So got on the bus. Uh, don't remember very much about who was there. I remember a few of the people, but uh, there was a number of kids all around my age. Not exactly my age, but within two years of my age. And I remember noticing there were, there were two girls that were like the most popular teenagers in the temple. They were kind of like the two hot chicks of the temple. And on an absolute basis, they weren't like super hot, but they they were pretty, but like they were the two prettiest ones in the, in the, in the temple from this age group. So they were very popular. I remember they came. And uh, they were a little younger than me. I think like a year younger or something. So I didn't know them that well. Um, I remember looking at them and, you know, I, I was physically attracted to them, but I didn't really know them. I But, you know, so I didn't really talk to them. But I, I, just, I remember noticing they were there and there were a bunch of other people. It was more guys than girls on this trip, but there were, there were some girls too. Like those two. Uh, I don't remember the bus ride up. I don't remember much about it. But when we got there, I noticed something about the weather and that it was very warm. Another problem with Snow Summit is it can be warm. And it melts the snow. It makes the snow slushy. And it was 60 degrees that day, which is very warm for skiing. You don't want it to be 60 when you're skiing. It just kills the snow. What's ideal for skiing is for it to be like 40, not snowing and not windy. 
or maybe even like right around 32 so that the snow doesn't melt at all. You don't want it colder than 32, then it gets too cold, and you don't want wind, and you don't want snow, or else it gets very uncomfortable to ski that way. 60 is way too warm for skiing. But it was 60, and I was there. I may not have gone if I knew it was going to be 60. I didn't bother to look at the weather, but it was, it was 60. So, um, I remember I zipped down my jacket, and I was wearing it, but it was zipped down. And I was kind of hot that day. And I wasn't looking forward to it that much anymore, knowing that it was going to be slushy. And and I was riding the chairlift up. And I was I was skiing by myself, indeed. But I was, I was looking down at the mountain. And it's, the, the hills were full of moguls. The snow wasn't in very good condition. And I'm going, oh, I don't know why I even came here. Well, up till that point, I was considered a very good but not expert skier. I hadn't bridge the gap between very good and expert. Like, I could go on steep runs, I could go on the expert runs, as long as they weren't, like, super, super hard. I could do anything at Snow Summit that with no problem. They don't have really, really hard runs there. Uh, and, and as far as, like, steep hills with moguls, like, I could handle them, but I'd have to do it... Not super fast. Like, I wasn't one of these guys who could just jump between moguls, like, zoom down like that. I, I could go very fast if there wasn't a lot of moguls, but if there was, uh, like, a lot of moguls, I, 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 I had to slow down some. I just wasn't quite the expert level. I was close, but I wasn't there. Well, I was skiing that day, and I just felt so good. Something about that day, I just, I was doing everything right. And I was just, Zooming down every hill, and despite the bad snow conditions and the moguls, I'm just gliding between them, super fast, super in control. I look around, and I'm the best skier on the mountain. Nobody was keeping up with me. I don't mean in the group of kids that came up. I mean just the whole damn mountain. This is on a weekend day. I didn't see anyone passing me. I didn't see anyone who, who seemed like they were better. There were probably a few there, but I, I was like one of the best there. I, that was the best day that I ever, I had ever skied as far as skill. I just had it that day. I had the confidence. I had the skill. I had the agility. I had everything. I felt good. I felt like I'd finally done it. I finally became the expert skier that I was always hoping to become. Just out of nowhere. Just that day, somehow it happened. There were two runs at Snow Summit that once looked very tough to me and scary when I was learning as an eight-year-old in 1980. One was called Side Shoot, and the other one's called The Wall. The Wall even has a scary name. Like, it's so steep, it's like a wall. And I remember seeing Side Shoot in The Wall, and I thought, wow, I can't imagine going on those. Well, not only did I do Side Shoot in The Wall, which, to be honest, weren't that hard compared to the much harder expert runs I did in Mammoth, which truly are expert runs at the top. These seemed like a joke. They were easy. They were full of moguls, but I just zoomed through them. So I kept riding up chair five and chair six that served a side shoot in the wall and did them over and over and just skied better than I had ever had before. I was having a great day. I was feeling good. They were blasting music in the background. I think it was like 80s music, too. It had to be 80s music. It was in the 80s. <laughs> of course it was 80s music. Um, so that kind of felt good too. And I'm just 
skiing great. And then at about 2 p.m., I'm going down side chute. Everything's going well. And then I misjudged one mogul. And it sent me flying in the air. And I thought, oh no. I'm going up in the air in an awkward way on a steep hill full of moguls and I'm about to crash down. So I slammed down. And then because the side chute was steep, I slid all the way down the hill. Now I was right under the chairlift. It happened to be that this is right next to the chairlift. So everybody riding the chairlift sees me slide, 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 slide down the hill with a big uh, plume of snow following me. It looked very scary. It looked like from, you know, people watching on the from the chairlift, the, the slide looked like what, that was what hurt me. It looked like I was just sliding out of control and was, uh, it looked like that was going to be the thing that was going to hurt me. But the truth was, while the slide was kind of scary because I, did, I didn't know where I was going to end up or stop or what I was going to hit, uh, I came to a stop and I didn't hit anything and the slide itself did not hurt me whatsoever. In fact, I thought I was fine. Nothing really hurt. It just kind of looked like a, a awkward, scary fall that I hit, slammed pretty hard down on the ground, on my uh, kind of in an awkward way. But it seemed like everything was okay. I felt a little stunned, so I was kind of just lying there for a second. Then a guy who had seen it happen for the chairlift zoomed down and, and got to me and said, "You okay, man? You okay?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I am. Uh, I feel all right." And then I tried to move my arm to push myself up, and my left arm was having problems, and I wasn't really able to move it very well. And I said, well, I th- actually, you know what, I think I may have hurt my arm a little bit, is what I told him. Well, as more people came over and asked me if I was okay, finally someone said we should get the ski patrol, because I was saying I'm having a little trouble with my arm here. They brought the ski patrol over, and they asked me if I think I broke my arm. And I thought, crap, is that possible? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know how that feels. I've never broken a bone before. And they said, well, is there kind of like a grinding feeling inside? And then I noticed there totally was a grinding feeling inside. It felt like pins and needles, but they were moving around back and forth. That's what it felt like around where my wrist was. And I go, well, yeah, actually, my wrist, there kind of is that feeling. And I said, uh-oh, well, we better get you down. So um, we want to take a look at it. Uh, we're going to cut your jacket open. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what is this? You're going to cut my jacket open? Why? They said, well, you can't take it off, really, can you, with the way your arm's feeling? I said, well, I, I don't think so right now. I mean, I guess I can try. So I tried a few times, and I, I, the jacket wasn't going to come off the way my arm's feeling in the position I was in. So I said, hey, we're going to cut it. And I go, no, 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 I, I can't. And they said, why not? I think you know why not. Yes, I was too cheap to have my jacket cut. Even as even as a, a kid who wasn't even 17 yet, I was not going to have my jacket destroyed over this. It was a perfectly good jacket. Just because I can't take it off at the moment doesn't mean they have to cut it, right? I said, absolutely not. They said, well, we're going to have to take you down on a stretcher to the ski patrol office. And I said, that's fine. Take me down on the stretcher. And then when we get to the ski patrol office, you can sit me up, and I'll take off the jacket that way. So they thought this was strange, but they agreed. So they, 
They took me down to the ski patrol office. I, I watched as they're taking me down, and all eyes were on me on the slope. I watched everybody staring at me. Strangers, but people staring at me, wondering what had happened to me. If there was a person on a stretcher, it could be one of many things. It could be much worse than an arm broken. They don't know. I knew. I knew it wasn't worse than an arm break, but the people watching them taking me down didn't know. Uh, interestingly, they even passed those two hot girls, and they saw it, and they were... Like, oh my God, what happened? And they were very uh, alarmed by the situation. So they brought me into the ski patrol office. I was able to get the jacket off once I was had my skis off. And you know, once I was just sitting in an office, I was able to wiggle out of the jacket. And I was very proud of myself for saving the jacket. Then I did notice it was hurting a lot. It was increasingly hurting by my wrist. So they put it in a very temporary like cardboard splint. And they, you know, seeing that I was a teenager, they wondered how I got there. They said, are your parents here? I said, no, I'm with a group with my temple. They said, well, where is the group? I said, we're going to meet back here at four when the ski resort closes. They said, well, do you want us to call your parents to come get you? I said, no, it's two o'clock. I'll just wait it out. And there was actually two by them. I thought I was down there. I said, I'll just wait it out till four and then go home with them on the bus. So I waited around and then, uh, Went to the bus at four, and uh, everybody saw what my arm was in, and I explained to everybody what happened. And it was really hurting by this point. It was very, very bad pain. Very bad. So it's weird. I always picture like breaking a bone, like when the break happened, it was going to be excruciating pain. No, I didn't even feel it happen. When it actually broke, I did not feel it break. After I slid down the hill, it hurt a little bit. And then it slowly increased, and, and by... An hour and a half later, it was terrible. And you know what? I've had other skiing injuries, and they've also been that way, where it, it seems like they get worse and worse, and it's, it's, it's like it seems like about the six-hour mark after it happens is where it hits its peak of pain. So I, I was riding back on the bus, and, and the first one was interesting is uh, those two hot girls were very interested in me all of a sudden. Before, they were kind of ignoring me, but, but now they were very interested and not just out of curiosity they just kept coming up to me on the bus do you need anything you know do you uh, do you want to talk are you okay like they, they really were trying to find a reason to talk to me and i actually thought about the movie back to the future which wasn't that old at this point you know back to the future came out in 85 this was 89 and i had thought about how marty mcfly or not sorry george mcfly marty mcfly's father uh got with marty's mother Lorraine because Lorraine's dad hit George with a car and then Lorraine saw him like injured lying in the house and kind of fell for him that way. And then when the same thing happened to Marty, she started falling for Marty, which of course was really her son. You guys know the story. So I thought about this, that it's actually called the Florence Nightingale effect where some women who are caring for injured or sick male patients fall for them. Now, these girls weren't caring for me, but they were trying to help, and like, I thought that maybe my injury actually made me more attractive to them, which was weird, but it totally felt like that. It, and I wasn't, mista- I wasn't mistaking it. Like, it's, not, it's not like they were just asking me questions out of curiosity. I'm like, oh, these girls like me. Like, it really seemed like they, it, there's a notable change in their attitude toward me. Now, not that they disliked me before, but they were just kind of ignoring me prior to that. But boy, they wanted to talk to me. Well, did I take advantage of this? Did I... Jump at this? No, I was actually annoyed at everybody. I, I wanted to talk to no one, 
and I wanted I, I just wanted to sit there in peace on this bus ride. So I was just kind of shooing them away. I, like I, I was like answering their questions quickly and then like not engaging them. I, I just didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was sitting by myself intentionally in, in a yeah on a seat of the bus, and it was so painful. It was getting worse and worse on this bus ride, and we got in horrible traffic on the way home, which can happen from Snow Summit. Horrible, horrible traffic. We're slowly, slowly winding down the hill to get towards San Bernardino. And I just want the ride to be over. I just wanted it to be done. And the kids there were so loud. The kids, meaning the other teenagers, they, they were so loud and wild. And this wouldn't have bothered me if I wasn't in excruciating pain and I was getting pissed. Well, the first thing I was doing to try to distract myself from the pain, I was actually punching the side of the bus to intentionally hurt, not badly hurt, but intentionally to kind of like moderately cause pain to my other, to my right hand to distract myself from the pain I was feeling in my left wrist. That's how bad it was. It actually worked somewhat, by the way. They, 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 the punching the punching the wall actually was helping the pain feel less in the wrist. It felt weird doing it, but I was doing it. But then there was all the noise, and I was getting pissed, and I kept shouting back there, "Will you guys shut the fuck up?" And I was getting, I kept shouting to them, you know, that, but they weren't shutting up. And I was like, "I'm injured here. This is, you know, I, I'm having a real hard time dealing with this. Can you guys try to be quieter?" And they 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 they'd quiet down for a second. And then they get all out again. Well, finally, as the bus is winding through the mountains, and it definitely wasn't safe for me to stand up and with one only one good arm pull myself to the back of the bus, but I did. I pulled myself to the back of the bus, and I yelled so loud at the other kids in the back about how they needed to be quiet, how they needed to shut the fuck up, how do they, you know, do you understand how I'm feeling here? Do you understand what I'm going through? Do you think I want to hear all this bullshit from the fact, you know, I was going off on them. And you know what? I was ready to fight anybody who was going to stand up and challenge me. That's how much rage I was in. I'm not even kidding. I'm not just saying this like 30 years later to sound like a tough guy. I, I usually didn't pick a fights with people, but he, here I was really I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna punch anybody, but I was really willing to have a fight with his broken arm. That's how pissed I was. But when I really yelled at them, that actually sunk in, and everybody went quiet. <laughs> so they probably didn't like me very much after that, but uh, at least I quieted them down. Went back to sit down. Bus took a long time. I think four hours to get home. My parents had been called and told what happened to me. I remember my dad showed up with my brother, who wanted to come along. My brother was only uh, 12, close to 13 at the time. And they took me to the hospital. My brother was really, really concerned. Like He was probably the most concerned in the family about me. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of nice. Like, Um... I didn't expect him to have that level of concern over this. I expected him to feel bad for me. I didn't expect him to feel like more concern for me than my parents even had. My dad told me that I shouldn't think negatively and that it's not necessarily broken, but I could tell. I'd never had anything like this before. I said, no, I could tell it's broken. Between the grinding, between the fact that I can't move it well, the fact that uh, I, I, I said the excruciating pain, I said, I can just tell I know it's broken. 
So he's like, no, 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 don't think of it that way. I go, no, 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 I know it's broken. So they took me to the hospital. They looked. Yep, it was broken. So they put it in uh, some kind of another splint that was better than the one they quickly made at the ski patrol. Then I went to an orthopedist within a few days. And the guy examined it and he said, I hate to tell you this, but uh, the bone is bent. So we have to bend it back. Otherwise, it's going to heal and be deformed and you're going to have trouble with that your whole life. So I said, okay. What's involved in that? He says, well, we have to do it right now. I said, okay. Uh, is this going to hurt? He says, well, no, I, I have anesthetic. So, I, I, so he injected this anesthetic into my veins that was supposed to run down my veins into the area where my wrist was and mostly numb the area. Well, he tried and tried and tried and I didn't get a bit numb. So he'd, he'd give me a bunch of it just touch it. I go, ow! And he go, oh, well, I guess it's not enough. Let me do more. Nope, still not enough. Let me do more. Nope, not enough. Let me do more. He put so much in there, it didn't have a damn effect. It didn't affect one bit. He said, wow, I've never seen it to this extreme. I, this, You're so sensitive there right now from this injury that uh, no matter how much painkiller I put in there, it doesn't do a thing. He says, well, I can't give you any more. It'll be dangerous. I've given you the max I can give you. And then he said the understatement I've ever heard in my life, the biggest understatement I've ever heard. He said, this might hurt a little bit as he bent it back into place. That was the most excruciating, like, 15 seconds I ever had in my life. It felt like 15 minutes. I could not, I've never had pain since or before. That That was the worst pain I ever felt. That was 15 seconds of hell. And then he walked out of the room, and I remember I was doubled over in pain after this. And as it slowly faded, the nurse came in. And I'm like, "You're not going to touch it, are you?" And they're like, "No, no, no. We're just going to be we're going to wrap it up now to put it in the cast." I say, "So you're going to put it on the cast? And that's it, and then nobody can touch it." Yep. I could good do it because I wanted them. I wanted them to put it in the cast so they couldn't bend it to screw with it anymore. I was happy to see the cast. So they put it on the cast. And I was told I would. I had a full arm cast for a few weeks, and then they were going to cut it off to where it's only on the bottom half of my arm. The full arm cast is very tough to deal with. The reason I had to keep a full arm cast is, I guess, that uh, for the first few, two, like two weeks, the arm has to be so stiff to heal properly. Uh, I never had a cast before. I never broken a bone before. Something I didn't expect is it gets very itchy in there. I remember like sticking a pencil down the cast to scratch myself, and there's like a lot of dead skin that was going on. It's pretty gross. I had to cover it when I would shower with a big rubber kind of bag-like thing. It kind of looked like a condom. It looked like a giant condom. It looked like like a, a condom you would wear if you had like a a 36-inch penis. That's really what it looked like. So I had to put that over the cast. And uh, about I, well, actually, I was. I noticed I was having a very hard time typing because of this. I had to type one-handed. It was very tough. It was also hard to drive, too. Especially I had a stick shift car. That made it really hard. Uh, fortunately, because the stick is on the right side and my right arm was okay, I could, I could do it. I would just kind of grip it a little bit with my left hand as I would switch here and then grab it again with my right hand. I was able to barely drive. Able to, I, I could do it. Uh, but it was tough. And 
uh, typing on the computer was very, very hard. So I went. I was going online back then, even 30 years ago. I was on a computer, computer bulletin boards known as BBSs. I was on this one, which is a multi-line BBS that had kind of a kind of a more social dating theme to it, and there were a lot of girls on there. Still more guys, but there were the other BBSs I called it was like all guys. So I uh, I had never done anything with a girl up till this point, and nothing. I, I, I was almost 17. It was very frustrating to me because I was very interested in, in, in this, but I, I just had, I had no experience yet. And I was wondering when it was going to happen. And uh, there was a girl I ended up chatting with on there from Simi Valley, which is about 55 miles from where I lived. It's in Ventura County. And she wasn't all that interesting, but about like f- five minutes into the chat... I said something that I usually would not say. Usually I would want to chat with a girl for a while and see if I found her personality interesting. You, you couldn't see pictures back then, so you, you'd have to go by a description. So, like, if the description seemed okay, and if I, I liked the personality, then I would, uh, I'd ask for their number. But I didn't have time to do all this. Like, I, 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 it was so hard to type. So after about five minutes, I'm not finding her that interesting. I just, I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to cut to the chase here. I said, look, I have a broken arm. It's very hard for me to type. Um, I'm not trying to be forward or anything, but uh, I'd like to keep talking to you, but I, I, I just can't do it on here anymore. So if you want to give me your number, I'll call you. If you don't want to give me your number, I understand, but I can't continue this either way. So she said, oh, yeah, yeah, here's my number. So she gave me her number. So I called her up. And we talked, and on the phone she was like way more interesting than she was on the computer. On the phone, I liked talking to her. I liked her personality. Uh, we became friends, but I was kind of having a hard time, you know, with like my complete lack of experience with girls at the time, like kind of transitioning that. And I, I was, I made some stupid mistakes. I, I actually stupidly told her that I had zero experience with girls and I was a virgin, <laughs> I mean, which was true at the time, but you, you don't say that. So that really, and she couldn't see a picture of me. So she just pictured, well, it's a guy. I'm, she goes, she's like, well, okay, it's a guy I'm meeting from a BBS and there's a lot of like really ugly guys on here. It's, you know, these BBSs were kind of known for that. And he has no experience with girls. He's almost 17. So, yeah, she just imagined I was really gross as well. And, and I wasn't. I actually looked normal, which you've seen old pictures of me. You, you can see. But um, that, that was what she assumed. Didn't tell me that, but that's what she assumed. But anyway, uh, I won't go into the rest of it, but she ended up being the girl... Five months later, in August of 89, who I lost my virginity to. Yeah. Kind of a weird story in that whole thing. And she plays poker sometimes. Haven't talked to her in decades, so I don't know if she knows that I play poker. But that's, you know, if it hadn't been for that broken arm, I would have never talked to her beyond that chat. I would have gotten bored of her and Ended it and said, okay, well, nice talking to you, goodbye, and that would have been it. The only reason we ended up talking on the phone and eventually five months later leading to uh, being the one who took my virginity was because of that broken arm. She was not the first girl I kissed, by the way. I, I actually, a month later from this whole thing, just days after I got the cast off, met someone. Didn't really last very long, but... Uh, uh, that was when my experience started about a month later with somebody else. 
someone not off the BBS. So, um, that was the the story of my broken arm, and that was the thirty year anniversary of it. And I thought about it. I actually went back to Snow Summit the next time on the five-year anniversary of breaking my arm just to kind of prove I could do it again without hurting myself. And I did. I went on February 26, 94. At the time, it wasn't even hard to do because I lived in Riverside, which is not that far from Big Bear. It's not right there, but it's a lot closer than, than L.A. All right, uh, I actually have enough energy here to... I'm surprised I do, because I, I didn't get much sleep. I have kind of a sleep deficit now, and I don't, I don't know how I even have this energy, but I, I have enough energy to do last, the last segment. Let's check our ratings here. I'm kind of afraid to see them. I have a feeling they suck. Eh, not as bad as they thought. Not good, but not bad. I expected worse. The live ratings of the show have suffered since I came down with my LPR and then returned. And that's because we've had an irregular schedule. And even though I'm doing it most weeks, I'm not reliably sticking to Wednesday anymore. So it, it hurt our ratings. And it, it, I think it may have even hurt, I haven't checked, but it probably hurt our ratings in the archives too. Just people kind of forgot about the show. Or they got out of the habit of listening. And think about how that can happen. Think about like a TV show that you really enjoy and you can't wait for the next episode. But then, you know, it, 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 the last episode of the season completes and by the time the new season comes, you're not as pumped to see it as you thought you would be. In fact, if, if the end of the last season wasn't that great, you, you're not even that interested in watching again. So I think that my hiatus followed by the kind of once a month return kind of got some people out of the habit of listening. So I know we we have a lot of the diehard listeners. I know they're all still there. And even some people who I thought forgot about the show or don't listen ever, anymore. Like I, I occasionally see them make reference on Twitter to something I said on the show. So I know they listen. But I'm going to do the last topic, but before we do the last topic, I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad. Uh, I saw Eric last week. We went to lunch together. And uh, I really appreciate everything he's done for the show. And I, I enjoy talking to him about legal issues. Like I asked him some questions about work when he was there. I, I, I kind of have some fascination with the law. Like I could have been a lawyer, honestly. Uh, and I think some of you can kind of see that in me. Um, not that I would go do that at this point in my life, but uh, you know, if I was a little bit younger, I might have I might cons- I, I might have considered it. Like if I was fifteen years younger, twenty years younger. Uh, but I, I do have some fascination with it. I, I even pride myself of being you know, more legally knowledgeable than most non-lawyers out there. Uh, when it comes to discussing legal topics, I always prefer to have uh, someone like Eric on here to 
who's an actual lawyer who can help out because he knows a lot more than I do about matters of law. But I, I asked him about some of the stuff he's doing, and uh, we've also talked about having him on the show more often for some segments that seem that it would be useful to have an attorney on to give commentary. And he also volunteered, by the way, that if you were having a dispute with someone, like even someone else on the forum, and you'd like to do it live on the air with him mediating, it'd be unofficial, of course, but uh, you know, for a radio segment, uh, he said he'd be willing to do that too. But we're definitely going to have him on uh, more often than we have. And he, you know, we'll have him on when we need him. You know, we, we uh, I'm not going to just invent reasons, but uh, the segments we've had with him have been very, very well received. I, I haven't, I'll, I'll be honest, I've never, I haven't gotten one complaint like, oh, this guy sucks, don't have that back. Like, I've, I've gotten none like that, and I've gotten a lot of compliments. Like, oh, I really enjoyed the Eric Bensamokin segment. You know, when's he coming on again? Uh, even my own girlfriend loves those segments and asks me when he's coming on again. And he has he has a good personality for radio too, so uh, we'll bring him back. You'll hear more of him out here, and I'm going to try to think more about when I'm putting together the agenda of oh okay well is this a topic where we could use some legal expertise? And if we do, then I'll try to see if he can come on. Now he doesn't stay up as late as I do; like he wouldn't be up now at two a.m. But I'll try to think of this in advance if there's a topic where we could use his help. And and then I'll try to move that topic to the front of the show when he's still awake. And uh, that's that's a plan for the future here. And he, in fact, volunteered to do that when we were talking. So that's something I am interested in doing. I think it's a good resource we have here for this show. So it's... Another good thing he can do for the show here, uh, separate from the free roll donations that uh, are very nice, and uh, I, I appreciate every free free roll donation that comes in from everybody, and especially those who donate all the time, which for the last year or so has been Eric has been by far the biggest contributor, and I really appreciate that. I, I do want to address one thing said by someone in the forum about the free roll. Uh, the, Listener who calls himself Sysop. He's called in before. I, I've never met him before, but he's called in. He posts on the forum. I've texted with him sometimes. Uh, he said, why do you even have the free roll? Why don't you just do away with this? Not bringing in new people. We're just getting a bunch of free roll leeches instead. We're not getting new forum posters by it. So why you bother? Well, I can see his point in a way, but people enjoy it. And this is something the live listeners really enjoy doing. It doesn't help the archive listeners if the free roll's done by that point, but the live listeners, they like sitting, listening to the live show and playing a free roll in the background. It's, it's a, like a f- little fun thing to do. And as long as people want to donate to it, then we'll have it. I, I'd like the, the live listeners get that little reward for being here live. I personally am a fan of live radio. I have a hard time listening to shows a lot of times that were recorded live. I, I don't have as much trouble listening to something that was recorded but never broadcast live, but something that's broadcast live and i got to go listen to it as a rerun, it's, it's, 
It's just not the same. I'll do it, but it's not the same. I like hearing radio as it happens. Now, I know a lot of you can't do that. I know this is not a convenient time for a lot of you. But this is for the live listeners, the free roll, and I will, a lot of people enjoy it. And just know when you, you, know, when you donate, the, the people who play are really enjoying playing it. And it, it would sadden me if it went away permanently, or even for the most part. Now, nobody should feel pressured to donate. If you don't want to donate, then don't. I expect nothing of anybody. When it comes to this show If you don't want to listen, don't If you don't want to donate, don't If you don't want to make contact with me, don't And I'm really grateful for anyone who donates And I'm additionally grateful for anyone who listens I'm not just saying it to sound good or kiss ass here I. The only reason I do this is because I know there's people listening I don't need to sit here for hours and talk to myself and the more people that listen, the better I feel. Because it makes it feel to me that people have an interest in what I have to say. So if you are a regular listener to the show, I appreciate that you listen. I really do. I'm not doing it for money, that's for sure. <laughs> All righty. Uh, I'm going to play the Eric ad. I will uh, use my usual mouth rinse. Have a drink. Have a piss. Hopefully I can do all that in the two minutes or so that this ad plays. And then we'll do the final topic. Pretty long show tonight. We're approaching five hours. So I will be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month, knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor, because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money. He's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. 
If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. I'm always amazed at how well I timed that ad. Two minutes, 21, two minutes, 29 seconds is how long it is. And somehow that's the exact amount of time I need to take these breaks. It's so weird. I just, I do what I need to do. I come back and I hear the very end of the ad playing. Somehow I, I just knew when I created it that one day I would need it in the future. Okay. So here's the last topic. And that is Druff's do's and don'ts regarding customer service and billing issues. And this is, I mean, this, this segment's going to be generic. It's not going to be about any specific issue or industry you're dealing with. I might cite examples, I don't know. But it's important to listen to the advice I'm giving here. Even if you think you know it, even if you think you've been successful before, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I don't always know what I'm talking about. With this, I know what I'm talking about. I I know very few people, if any, who have a better record with success in these type of matters than me. It's not something I enjoy doing, but it's something I know I'm good at doing. And everybody has their own way of handling things. You can't do exactly what I do because you're not me. And you've got your own style and your own preferences of the way you handle matters. But at least listen to my advice and believe that it's effective. So let me give you just a generic situation. Let's say you have a bad experience with large company A. Forget the industry. Forget what large company A is. Just say you had a bad experience there. What do you do? Many people think that the proper step is to write to corporate. Write a letter to corporate. Write to them about what happened. You might think be detailed, describe everything that occurred, and then your concern will be addressed. You you probably have a fantasy in your head that as you write this, it's going to be received by someone high up on the corporate chain who's going to read this and go, wow, this customer was really screwed here. I'm going to look into this thoroughly and make sure that their wrong is righted. Well, that's not what happens at all. What happens is that your letter, no matter who you address it to, you can address it to the CEO, it doesn't matter. It, it ends up being opened and read by uh, like a secretary, a, a very low-level person at the company who is assigned to read these letters and then direct them to whichever department needs to handle them. They get tons of these letters. 
Many of them written by crackpots who were rambling and just are not even in the right with what they're complaining about. And then the appropriate department fires off a form letter to the aggrieved customer, sometimes denying them and sometimes giving some kind of a token customer service uh, gesture. A $25 bill credit, a gift card, a coupon for a free product. And then you get that and you, you go, ah, I knew it. My letter, it, it, it reached the right people. Something's getting done. And you pat yourself on the back. That is not the way to do it. That is something you don't do. Writing letters to a company, is, is that's the way to handle things back in 1975. Not, not the way you handle things today. Not, not for a long time, in fact. What about if you call up large company B and somebody answers with a foreign accent? Should you assume, first of all, that just because they have an accent, they're not in the U.S.? After all, the U.S. has a lot of people with accents. Uh, Do you dare ask them where they are? Do you dare ask them if they're in India or the Philippines? Or do you just say, hey, this this is not important. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be a racist. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a xenophobe. I'm not going to look down on other cultures and other countries and assume they're inferior to me. How dare I even ask them where they are? I'm going to let them help me. I'm sure this is a very capable person. Is that the way to approach the customer service issue? No. What about if there is a billing problem and they are telling you that they would love to fix it, but such and such law prevents you, prevents them from helping you. Should you assume that they know their industry better than you, and obviously a large company cannot violate the law, so you should back down, right? Wrong. What about if you can't get any satisfaction from the customer service rep you're talking to? If they're not solving the problem. Well, yeah, you ask for a supervisor, right? That's pretty obvious. Supervisor, manager. But who is really coming on? And what if the person goes to get a supervisor, but then comes back and says that the supervisor agreed with them and that there's no need to speak to them? Do you accept that? No, you don't. And what if the supervisor gives you no satisfaction? Then do you write the letter to corporate? No, you don't. See, these are all mistakes. These are all mistakes that many people make. And there's a few things you have to keep in your mind as you're dealing with customer service problems. And what I'm talking about are legitimate problems where you're getting screwed in some way, where there's a mistake in some way, where something promised to you was not delivered, where you were misled in some way, you were tricked in some way. 
where there's some kind of problem, let's say maybe you need an exception made for something to a policy. The way to usually get this done is to take each individual situation as it's occurring and then try to go through a chain of command there that can help you. And it's also important to get in your head that you're not going to take no for an answer. You're not going to be tricked into agreeing there's nothing that could be done. And that you're never going to accept an excuse like, well, it's the law, or well, our computer won't do it this way, or I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. You'll never take that for an answer. That you'll never pay a bill that's incorrect. You have to get that in your head before tackling these situations. Now, first of all, absolutely, positively, never, 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 never speak to foreign reps. Except with Amazon. Amazon, for whatever reason, they empower them to do things, but they're, they're the one exception. With every other company, if you get a foreign rep ask to be transferred to the United States. Not because you look down on other cultures, not because you're racist, but because these people are not trained or empowered to do anything for you. They have a very strict set of rules. They cannot deviate from them. They also are not allowed to think for themselves. So you could be talking to the smartest, most capable rep in the Philippines ever created. And he will not be able to help you. Because they do not empower him to help you. It's not their fault in the Philippines. It's not their fault in India. It is the fault of the company for hiring cut-rate employees in other countries, paying them very little, and giving them no authority to help you. Now, they're not allowed to tell you they have no authority. They will pretend, and they're told to pretend, that they can do just as much as reps in the U.S. You'll hear, I have all the tools the reps in the U.S. have. No, they don't. Never, They never do. Ne- never true. They may say, give me a chance to solve your problem. Well, if it's a simple question or a very, like, if you ask, uh, what, what was the date you received my payment? Well, they, they can tell you that. They can give you just very basic information they can pull up on the computer, or they can answer very basic policy questions. You know, uh, so, so you know, what day does the bill do every month? And things like that. Can you list what services I have? Yeah, they can do things like that. But, but anything they have to solve, they, they cannot solve problems. Think of them like you think of Google. Google you can use for information. Google cannot solve your problems. I'm saying Google itself, not Google leading you to a web page that can solve I'm talking about you couldn't type anything into Google to where Google could then figure out what to do to solve your problem. Google only regurgitates information it gets from elsewhere. But it cannot make any decisions, right? Neither can these foreign reps. So unless it's a very basic and standard thing, don't even bother to try with them. And don't feel bad. Do not ever feel bad. They're not going to be insulted. They don't care. It's just a paycheck to them. They don't give a crap if you ask to be transferred to the U.S. They're not insulted. You don't have to give it the college try with them to see if they can do it. If you want to waste your time, go ahead, but I, I wouldn't suggest it. If they say you, they can't transfer to the U.S., uh, find out how you can reach a U.S. rep. Ask for their supervisor 
often their supervisor will have the power to transfer you if they can't. Always start with the U.S. because those are the empowered employees who really work for the company you're talking to. These reps in other countries do not work for the company you're talking to. They're working for a third-party company abroad that services calls for the company that you're, you want to that you're dealing with, which is a big difference. That's rule number one. Trust me on that one. Rule number two is you will always do better talking on the phone to live human beings than writing letters. Trust me. Don't write emails. Don't write letters unless you have to. Like airlines, what sucks about airlines is they have... Basically, uh, if you've got a complaint after the fact, if, if it's about booking, you can still speak to someone. But after you've taken a flight, if there is a problem with the flight, you absolutely positively cannot speak to a human being about it. They, they have no customer-facing reps that will deal with customer dissatisfaction after a flight on an airline. So there you're forced to write an email, and you have to adhere to the way you to do it, or otherwise it won't get answered. It sucks, but that's the way it is. But most companies aren't like that. Airlines are, but most companies are not. So you need to speak to a human being, and you need to lay out your case calmly, calmly but firmly. You don't have to kiss ass. Don't, don't kiss ass. Don't come off as too nice. Don't come off as too sweet. Some people say, well, you catch more flies with honey. Well, sometimes, but you know what happens more often in these situations? If you come off too nice, they think they can walk all over you. In the customer service cases, the firm but rational customer gets the most. The complete asshole, loudmouth jerk uh, sometimes doesn't get that much because they don't want to help him to spite him. But the person who's too nice and too polite, they get run over because the person on the other end feels that they can do anything and the, cu- and the customer won't fight them. So what you want is is to be firm, but rational. And you need to speak to a human being who can hear out your problem, and then you have to commit them to solve it. See, an email can't commit anyone to do anything. People read an email, you don't know how much they're reading. They could just read two lines of it. They could skim it. They they could take 10 seconds to read the whole thing and fire you a form letter. You can't stop them. That's, that's the way they're handling it. And by the time you get the form letter back, you can't drag their face over to the monitor to read your letter again. You have no control of the situation. But on the phone, you do. On the phone, they're on the phone with you. They're typically not allowed to hang up with you. So they're stuck listening to you. They're stuck solving the problem. It's also tougher by human nature to say no to a live person on the phone. It's much easier to say No, by email. Because email is impersonal. Talking on the phone is much more personal than email. So email or even snail mail letters are very ineffective with getting things solved. They're also very slow. So you go back and forth and back and forth and it's just one thought at a time basically. And it can take forever to solve anything. On the phone, Whatever they say back, then you have your response back. Then they have their response back. Then you have your response back. And ping pong, ping pong, you've got uh, responses back and forth, and you can start getting things done. Always get someone on the phone. Don't spend too much time with the lowest level rep. The lowest level rep typically is not very empowered. They're also not 
always all that intelligent or able to help you very well. So there's no point to scream and yell at them or to threaten to take your business elsewhere or to demand they fix the problem if they are not able to do it. And you need to get in your head that the person you're speaking to first very well may not have the authority to help you. And they also may not have the customer service skills or the intelligence to understand or want to understand your problem. The higher you go up in the chain, typically the smarter person you will be dealing with, the more authorized person you will be dealing with, the more empowered person you're dealing with. And the more likely it is that that person will take pride in solving the problem. So you want to keep moving up the chain. Now you don't need to go up all the way to the top of the chain as far as you can, if it's a minor problem, but you need to go fast. You need to go past the first level pretty quickly. If you're not getting immediate satisfaction, I mean, immediate. Um, For example, let's say you buy a new phone and they promise to waive the activation fee. You get your bill, there's an $18 activation fee. You want that off. You call up, you say it, the first rep says, oh, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to remove those fees. I'm sorry, nobody can remove those fees. It's, It's a fee we have to keep on there. I'm really sorry, sir, if someone told you the wrong thing. Just stop at that point. Don't don't bother arguing. Don't bother going back and forth and getting pissed and say no. But you pr- you know, but someone else promised me. Don't no. Say okay. I I'd like to I'd like to speak to your supervisor. They may say my supervisor will tell you the same thing. Say that's fine. I'd like to speak to the supervisor anyway. Never believe that story. They'll tell you the same thing. Very very rarely do I come into the situation where really the supervisor tells me the same thing. So then they'll transfer you to the supervisor. The supervisor may be an actual supervisor. They may be a more senior rep. They may be an escalation specialist, whatever it is. That's the starting point. That's the real starting point for getting the problem solved. When going over the problems, make sure you are clear. Make sure you stick to the bigger things that are more important first. Make sure to get those solved. Don't don't give them a laundry list of eight things to fix at once, or they're not they're going to get overwhelmed. Go okay. This is the first thing I'd like to talk about. And then tell them the first thing and solve that. Okay, now that we're done with that, now let's do the second thing. That that's the order you have to do it. What if they refuse? Well, often they have another manager above them. Can I speak to a manager above you? If they say no, say well, is there another time of day I can call? Let's say you're talking to someone. That's, Six at night, you may say, well, if I call tomorrow during the morning at 8 a.m., will there be a manager there? Can a manager call me? Don't always count on the call. You often won't get it, but you can attempt that. Always keep going higher. Now, that's for telephone customer service. For customer service for brick-and-mortar locations of whatever the business is, this tends to be the model. Now, I'm not talking about mom-and-pop place. Like a mom-and-pop store where it's just a a family running it, uh, you really don't have any recourse. You can try to... That's where being nice is more important. That's where trying to be likable is more important because it's just up to the whim of the owners if they want to help you. 
they don't have to adhere to any standards. It's their place. But chain places, small chains, any any brick-and-mortar store, restaurant, whatever it is that you're dealing with that has more than one location, typically they have to answer to somebody. Even the top person there has to answer to somebody. So the order you need to go is first get the acting manager, whoever's the acting manager, the highest person that's present at the moment. You can, you can actually start with the, whoever's like an assistant manager. Let me speak to a manager. If that manager gives you no satisfaction, say, can I speak to the general manager? That's, if the general manager's not in, ask when they will be there and when you can call them. If the general manager gives you no satisfaction, you can, you can still do more. You can ask for the district manager. The district manager, especially for chain places, is a person who manages the general managers. So if a business has 20 locations in your area, forget even 20, let's say there's five locations in your area. Their job is to manage the managers of those five locations. They are much more empowered typically than the general manager, who sometimes is empowered, sometimes isn't. Now, usually you can't get above the district manager, but usually the district manager will solve things. The district manager tends to like to solve things, and a lot of people overlook the district manager. A lot of people don't understand the option to talk to a district manager. And just about any chain store or restaurant of any industry has a district manager. You just need to speak to them. They they tend to be very customer service-oriented, very reasonable, often at least somewhat intelligent, often good customer service skills. Now, you don't go to them right away. You go kind of go up the chain. But that's what you need to do if you need to do it. Also, the district manager has the power to get the help of someone above them even if something you can't directly speak to, if they cannot solve it. I had a problem with AT&T. It's actually my dad's problem, but I was helping him solve it, where they just straight up stole his phone in a trade-in program. They didn't intentionally steal it, but they ended up taking it and not giving us anything back for it and wouldn't acknowledge they did anything wrong. This was actually the fault of the National AT&T Center, not the particular store, but when I couldn't get any help from the National AT&T Center about it, I went to the store where we actually brought the phone in physically. I got a hold of their manager, that store's manager. Then he wanted to help, but he was unable to do so. He got me to the district district manager who tried to help. Again, was a failing in doing so. It actually took the district manager going about two or three levels above him to finally get it forced through to where they gave us the proper credit. But he got it done. I can tell you, most people in my spot would have just eaten it. It was a $600 uh, credit we were supposed to get for turning in that phone, and we got nothing. Most people, after all the effort I put in and failed time and time again on the way there, would have just given up and just grumbled about it. But I kept persisting up the ladder. What about uh, when you're told the law says we can't? Pretty intimidating, right? 
You can't override the law. You can't expect companies to bend the law for you, right? They can't break laws to make you happy. Often that's a lie. Now, you may not know all these laws, but you can do one of two things. First of all, you can just reason it out and see if it makes any sense. And two, you can just bluff them and pretend you know the law really well. It's totally okay to lie in these type of spots. Say, actually, um, my, my brother's an attorney and he works in this industry and he's told me that's totally untrue. You don't have to have a brother as an attorney. There's nothing illegal about saying that. You can just lie if you know they're, if you know they're lying to you. And I can tell you, I have encountered this so many times, including yesterday <laughs> with something, where I was told that they can't do something for me because of the law and they were totally just making it up. I even told, I talked about on Facebook last uh, on the last show how they were refusing to give refunds they were supposed to give by law by claiming that they're, that they're just they can't give refunds after sixty days. That's that's the way the law is. So never trust those answers. And call them out. Sometimes, like if you're told we can't give a credit on this against this uh, charge because it's the law, we're not allowed to give credits against this. Then the answer back is. Okay, then don't give a credit against that. Just give me a general credit on my bill. You always have to think, whatever they say, you think, okay, what's a way to solve this? What's a way to get around what they're claiming they can't do? So let's say, let's take a look at that activation card charge. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. We, we can't give a, a credit on the $18 activation charge. It's against the law. That's not true. But let's say they say that and stick to it. One thing you can say back is, okay, fine. Charge me the $18, but how about just put an, a general $18 bill credit to offset it? That's not against the law, right? And then they don't know, they'll go, ah, ah, they don't know what to say. But that, that's an example of how you can get around of one of those statements, or you can just tell them what they're telling you is not true, because it usually isn't. I remember back when I uh, lived in Vegas, in the apartment complex I lived at, this was right after the crash of 08, where rents just plummeted big time in Las Vegas. And at the beginning of 2009, my lease came up. And I was way overpaying rent by that point because the rents went way, way, way down in Las Vegas for everything. Now, there was nothing I could do until my lease was up because I was on a lease and what I agreed to pay is what I had to pay. But once my lease was up, they gave me a renewal and asked for the same rent. So I went to the office and I said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. I want to pay the going rate of rent. I don't want to pay this rent. This is way, way too high. And they told me that they cannot lower my rent because it would be a violation of fair housing laws. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? They said it's a violation of fair housing laws because um, we cannot give you a lower rent than others who we offered to renew at this price. I said, totally false. That's not what fair housing laws are. Fair housing laws would prevent you from charging extra rent to someone because they're black, or because they're gay, or because they're female, or because they're old. That would be illegal. But if you lower the rent to keep a tenant that you'd like to keep, and it's not based upon 
their ethnicity or sexual preference or anything like that, but just because you want to keep them as a customer, that's totally legal. You have a right to charge what you want. There's no law in the book saying that everybody has to pay the same rent for the same place. And in fact, I am asking to pay the same rent for the same place. I'm asking to pay what people who now come in off the street want to rent for. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking for anything special. I want just whatever some new guy off the street rents an identical unit to mine, I want to pay what he pays. And they said no, and they were refusing. And I said, okay, I'm just going to let you know this. My lease is going to be up in about uh, three weeks. I am not going to pay one penny over market rent. So I know you're having trouble renting apartments. I know everybody is. I know the economy is bad. I always pay on time. I'm a good tenant. I don't cause trouble. Uh, If you'd like to keep me, then lower my rent to the going rate. If you charge me even $1 above the going rate, I'll be moving elsewhere. Up to you. They came back. Yeah, okay, we're going to charge you the going rate. After swearing to me it was illegal to lower my rent. I've had so many of those cases in my life. But it sounds so scary. Oh, fair housing. Oh my God, fair housing laws. We can't violate that. Got to be fair to everybody. Fair housing. He's got to, you know, it's, it's fair if they if they renewed the guy next door for the higher rent. They've got to renew me for the higher rent too, right? No, that's not what fair housing is. So always do a sanity check on what you're told. Don't be scared by claims of the law. In fact, don't be afraid to lie and say that you know that's not true because even if you're wrong, nothing's going to happen to you. And they lie to you so much about this. When I say they, I mean companies, quote, citing the law. There's so many times they BS you, you might as well just call BS on it in, in return and claim that you have credibility because of such and such person you know that's assisted you with this. Don't say you're a lawyer because that's technically not legal. But uh, and they can also look that up if they need to. But you know, your cousin is, your brother is, your best friend is, your girlfriend is, whatever. That's totally legal to say. Uh, do not pay incorrect bills. Do not, do not, do not ever pay incorrect bills. Let's say you get a medical bill and you agree with $500 of it, but there's another 280 you don't agree with. The bill's 780. And they say, okay, send in the 500. We'll discuss the other 280. But we're not going to discuss the other 280 until you send the 500. A lot of people will. And when you do that, you lose all your negotiating power. In general, this is one of Druff's rules. In general, if you have not paid your bill yet, you have much more power than if you have already paid. Businesses, large and small, do not like giving money back. Once they have your money, they don't want to give it back. That's true of huge businesses, small businesses, medium businesses, all businesses. They don't want to give you money back that you've already paid. They hate it. But if you haven't paid yet, well, they know that if you get pissed off enough, you could just hang up on them and say, F you, I'm not paying you a dime. And then they get nothing. And they don't want that. So they have to negotiate with you. Now, I'm not saying every bill you get, you should call up and negotiate with them. That's not going to work. But if there's a dispute, if you're really in the right, you should not pay a penny until the bill is corrected, until you actually see a corrected bill, not just that they say they've corrected it. 
when I've been asked before, why won't you? We look, you know, I've been asked, hey, we agree, we both agree that uh, this much is owed. So why would you not pay the part that you feel is correct? Why not at least pay that? My real reason is because I know it takes away my leverage. But but what I tell them is I don't pay incorrect bills. I only pay correct bills. So if a bill is correct, I pay it. If it's incorrect, it needs to be fixed before I pay it. I just do not ever pay incorrect bills. And that's perfectly fine to say to them. Send me a correct bill. I'll pay the correct bill. It's also good when negotiating with customer service or uh, you know, any business in any way. It's always good to, and I've said this before on the show, to separate yourself from those who look to take advantage of them, the bad guy 23s of the world. It's always good to separate yourself from those people and make it clear that you're not trying to take advantage of them. It's always good to say things like, I only want what's fair. I always pay my bills. I always pay all my obligations, but I need I need you to be fair to me, and I want to be fair to you. You may think this sounds cheesy and trite, but the truth is using that language actually makes them want to help you more because they think you're going to be reasonable, and you should be reasonable. You shouldn't just say that and then be unreasonable, but this kind of separates you from the, the crazy customer who calls up and, and says things that are totally out in the weeds that uh, there's nothing they could ever do. It's also good to sometimes point out that you're not a certain way. Oh, I know you get calls from people who demand such and such, but I'm not one of those people. I, I totally understand how frustrating it must be to deal with ones like that, but this is not me. I just want this to be corrected. I just want something correct. There's also nothing wrong with Get it with demanding full clarity. I once had it where I called up the cable company because there was $14 too much on my bill. Just out of nowhere, there was $14 that shouldn't have been there. It was kind of weird. I forgot how it showed up, but it was $14 too high. I think it may have been some proration error. Whatever it was, I called up. It was definitely an error. I knew for sure. I called up, told the woman who was the rep about it, and she said, well, it's probably this. I said, it's not that. Well, it's probably proration. It's probably tax. She just, she, it's probably, 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 she guessed about five different things what it probably is and wanted me to be happy with that. And I said, no, I don't want probably. I need to know for sure why is my bill $14 higher than it was last month and the previous month? Why is it $14 higher? She says, I can see your bill generated the next month. It's, 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 it's back down to what it was the previous month. So the, that 14 uh, is an anomaly. I go, good, take it off then. No, I can't do that. I'm not paying it. And so I nailed her down on telling me why. Tell me specifically exactly why I'm paying that extra $14 this month. Not probably, not a guess what it is, 100% what it is. And justify it and, and make, it, make sure it all adds up right. Well, she couldn't. So I asked her to speak to her supervisor. By this point, it became a battle of egos. And she thought to herself, screw this guy. I've told him several times what I think it probably is. He won't listen to me. I was right, by the way. And this was later verified. But uh, she was mad. So she decided to leave me on hold 15 minutes while she pretends to go get the supervisor. 
And then she came back and said, yeah, I just talked to the supervisor and he said I, that uh, I'm correct that uh, this $14 is a valid charge and we will not be taking it off. Is there anything else we can help you with? I said, really? The supervisor said that? She said, yes. I said, okay, let me speak to him. Well, now she knew she was in trouble. She couldn't connect me to a supervisor or else uh, I would reveal that she lied about having talked to him. So <laughs> she put me on hold to go get him and left me on hold for 90 minutes. Would have been longer too. She just left it there. Then I left it there. I turned on the TV. And I was watching TV for 90 minutes where I hear the whole music in the background just to see how long it would be. I timed off 90 minutes and hung up. Called back the cable company the next day. Said, do you have a record of this call? They said, yes. I said, can you pull the record and see how long it was? I said, yeah, we pull it up. Yeah, we see it's over two hours. I go, does that seem alarming to you why a call would have been two hours? Yes, it does, they said. I said, okay, I want you to connect me to this woman's direct manager. I want him to explain what happened here. Because I'll tell you what really happened. And then she can explain why why the call took two hours. So they got me her manager. He was very nice. He was very... He, he agreed the $14 is wrong. He explained to me what it actually was. It was some kind of error. He fixed it. And I said, okay, well, can you look into what happened here? It looks like I was put on malicious hold for 90 minutes to punish me. Plus, she pretended to have talked to you, and you admitted that she never did. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to her about that. I said, no, 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 but I was put on malicious hold for, for 90 minutes. I think, you know, don't I have the right to find out you know, what happened to me here? Was I really put on malicious hold? Can I at least find that out? He says, yeah, I'll I'll get back to you. Well, he didn't call me back. I called and left him a voicemail. He didn't call me back. I called and left him another voicemail. He didn't call me back. So I left him one more voicemail, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I have your boss's information, which I got by calling a different department. I'm about to leave a message to your boss and tell him that you're attempting to cover this up because one of your employees put me on 90-minute malicious hold. You have... 24 hours to call me back. Goodbye. I got a call back in 45 minutes. He apologized for not having called me. Told me that uh, he was very busy. I told him I didn't believe that. I said, for whatever reason, you're protecting this employee here. So he he said, look, um, what can I do for you here? I go, well, I'm really mad about this here. You know, first this happens, and then you try to all all this. I just wanted the fourteen dollars corrected at the beginning, and then you you know, then she did this to me, and then I complain about her, and you try to cover it up, and you won't call me back, and and he says, yeah, no, no, I understand why you're bothered about this. Is, is there anything we can do? I said, well, why don't you see what you can do? He gave me a five hundred dollar bill credit. <laughs> My biggest customer service credit ever. Never, I've never exceeded that. I've never done better than that. He gave me $500 off my bill. I didn't pay the bill for a few months because I had a $500 credit. So he wouldn't get in trouble for this and she wouldn't get... For whatever reason, it was important to him that she doesn't lose her job. She was. She sounded old, so I think he just felt bad for her. Like, not really old, but she. he kind of sounded like he was in his 30s and she sounded like he was in her 50s. I don't think they were banging, but... Whatever it was, she probably had some emotional issues, and he got you know he felt bad for her. He knew if he knew if he had to process my complaint, she'd get fired. Whatever the hell it was, but uh, you know I was persistent. I got a five hundred dollar credit for it. That's not common, but that shows you what happens when you're persistent. But don't ever take 
advice. Don't ever take uh, answers like, it's probably this, I think it's that. No, you need to know what it is. What if you are mistreated by an employee of a company on the phone or even in person? What do you do? Well, if it's just a minor thing where someone snaps at you a little bit because they're in a bad mood, just let it go. But if someone really fucks with you, such as long malicious holds, cold transfers to places you don't want to go just to get rid of you, uh, screwing with your account in some way, extreme rudeness or yelling at you, or other inappropriate behavior beyond just kind of mild rudeness. Uh, if you, The way to get that addressed is not to send a letter, not to just call up and complain to the first person, but to ask who is this person's direct supervisor and then speak to them. And then tell them the story. And when you tell the story, make sure you're truthful, but you keep to only the most damning facts of the whole thing. If you start going to a whole story of a bunch of minor details, they're going to tune you out. you got to stick to the main things that happen. Um, someone, sometimes people come to me for advice of what to do when they have their situations. Uh, I, there's a woman I've known for a long time. She's a friend of mine, and she came to me with a number of complaints about her her daughter's preschool, and the director there was terrible, which is not uncommon. Directors at preschools are often terrible for whatever reason. I don't know. I I ran into terrible preschool directors, as have like several people I know. But uh, she had a a particularly bad situation, and uh, the... The complaint she had at the time was that uh, the class got full. I think her daughter was four. And the class of the four-year-olds was full. And there are too many kids. I think even too many for state law to where they could have in the, in one class. So they chose her daughter to move with the two-year-olds. <laughs> they moved her with two-year-olds and then the woman wouldn't budge and was very nasty whenever she complained. It also was affecting her daughter's desire to eat. She wasn't eating lunch because she was mad about about being with babies. And anyway, it's not important, but she was very upset about the whole thing. And she says, what do I do? So I said that, uh, so, so when she had gone to, but one of the things she went, when she had gone to the preschool director and complained about the eating thing, um, the director made some comment about uh, how she was too skinny and that that her daughter wasn't eating because of her because she's the because she, you know she's not an anorexic you know she's seen you be you know, eat like an anorexic so what do you expect something really nasty like that so that's really bad that's really nasty and insulting so i told this woman i said go to the ownership of the preschool or whoever's directly above her. And there are a bunch of other little complaints she had 
that she felt like there were passive-aggressive things against her. I said, don't put all that... She was going to write this long complaint letter that just was rambling. I said, no, 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 no. Go directly to the owner, talk to the owner, and stick to two big things. One, your daughter was force-moved into a class of two-year-olds, and it was affecting her, and it was you know, turning her more immature. It was, it was causing eating problems, it was, you know, that, and then that she wouldn't budge as far as moving her back. And that when you attempted to complain about it, she made nasty comments insulting your weight. Stick to those two things and talk about how you couldn't believe it that you were in, that you're you know that she was attacking the way you look and and you know stick to these two things only. Forget everything else because they're going to tune you out. So what about this? No, no, stick to those two things. Those are two egregious things. Stick to them. She went there. She complained. She gave, she stuck to the two things I said to stick to. The owner went to the preschool director. Actually, who stupidly admitted that both these things were true, and she got fired. Problem was solved. So that's that's the way you got to handle these things, and and you shouldn't you shouldn't seek to get people fired. You shouldn't enjoy to get people fired. This shouldn't be something you do every time you have a problem with someone at a company. But if there's something malicious or very insulting and nasty that occurs, yes. That person's boss should know about it. And don't feel bad if they get fired because it's not your choice. If you tell the boss a true and correct account of the experience you had, then you haven't done anything wrong. Because all you're doing is relaying the truth to the boss about what is going on at their business. That's all you're doing. And then they can decide what the proper course of action is for their own business. If you don't do that, you're enabling the person who screwed with you to do it to others. Now, that's not to say for every minor mistake you should go tattle to someone's boss. But I'm saying when someone is especially nasty or difficult with you to the point of maliciousness or extreme rudeness, yes, the boss should know. But tell the true and correct version. Don't embellish. Don't uh, don't lie. If the truth isn't enough to get them in trouble, then don't complain. But often the truth is. Often people who don't have their boss right there with him, right there with them at the time, think that they're the kings of the place. Uh, back to getting satisfaction with anything that's uh, customer service related. You know, I, was, I was kind of veered off to talk about how to deal with problem employees. And by the way, if you're bored with this segment, you can turn it off because it's going to be the last thing we talk about. Uh, definitely try to come up with your own solutions to things. Don't wait for them to solve all your problems. I always like to joke on this show, but I joke, but it's true that a lot of times I know the most, uh, I know more than Caesar's employees about Caesar's. It's true. I've had to solve so many of their problems. Like they, they can't figure something out. I go, no, I think this is happening because of this. And they go, then they look into it and they go, oh yeah, you're right. That is why this is happening. Like they, they, they wouldn't solve it if I hadn't pointed these things out. Like I, I, but you don't even have to have like massive knowledge of the company like I do of Caesar's. 
you can often solve things by just using common sense and thinking, well, can they do this to solve it? Can they do that? Throw out suggestions. Say, is this possible? If not, why not? Why can't you do this? Don't ever let technicalities trip you up. Um, there's a restaurant I go to for takeout a lot. It's a small chain. And every time around the holidays, kind of like early December, they sell gift cards at a discount. It's a good deal if you're going to eat there going forward, right? So I always buy a bunch of them for the upcoming year. Well, it just so happened I was on, I was gone during the time that uh, they were selling these. They were selling them for about a week, and I came back literally the next day. So I went down there the next day, and I said, I'd like to buy these discounted gift cards. Sorry, the thing ended yesterday. And I said, I know that, but I wasn't here. I buy these every year. I'm a good customer. I've spent thousands of dollars here. It's been one day. Can you please make an exception for me? And sell me those gift cards. I'm not coming this a month later. I'm coming this a day later. And I just physically was not here to do it. And there's no other way to buy them. First person I talked to wasn't sure about this. I don't know. I don't think we can do it. Hang on. And the guy said, well, then I need to to speak to the manager who, who refuses this. And if I was willing to go all the way up to the ownership and say, you're about to lose me as a several year customer over this because I feel my business isn't being appreciated. Well, I didn't have to go that far. The, uh, the acting manager thought about it for a second and said, uh, I don't know, okay, fine. <laughs> they did it. So yeah, the policy said the day before it was over, but I was a good customer. I asked them to make an exception. There's many cases you can ask for an exception. In all industries. Don't just believe the hard rules can't be changed. If you have any questions, by the way, about any particular customer service experience, I could answer it on this show. I can even answer it privately for you. You can text me, 775-372-8355. You can post it on the forum. One final thing I'd like to say here. Just a general rule of thumb. If you think you were misled or cheated or what was described to you is not what you got, don't ever back down. Always demand satisfaction. It's probably not your fault. You're probably right. You can ask them questions like, what wrong did I do as a customer to make this happen? What more could I have done? How could I have stopped this? And if they, typically their answer will be, well, there was nothing you could have done. They say, okay, well, then it's up to you to fix it. But don't let them bully you or convince you to believe that you were the stupid one and you just didn't understand. Now, if you look into it and you see there's something you just truly didn't understand, then okay. If you thought you're buying something that's a service that's, if you thought it's fifty nine ninety nine turned out to be eighty nine ninety nine. Easy, you misread it. Don't complain when when you get the bill for eighty nine ninety nine. 
if you go back and see you just misread it. Okay, that's your fault. But if they say fifty nine ninety nine and there's this tiny, tiny, tiny print at the bottom that has all these crazy terms to get it, and the tiny print says actually it's eighty nine ninety nine unless this, 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 and this. And no one told you this when you signed up, and they go, "Oh, well, you should have read the fine print at the bottom." That's where that's where you say no. A reasonable person would have been tricked by this. You need to honor it. I know now. Next month I won't get it for for uh, again and expect that price. But you need to fix it the first time. But usually, what you think you're buying, what you think you're getting, is what you should get. And if you don't, it's usually their fault, not yours. And remember that. Another thing to remember. In general, you should not have to pay more than the average guy off the street, like I talked about in that rental story. I once had it where I bought some furniture. And at this furniture place, which is a chain place, they had a weird sale where you could get like what was it now? I'm forgetting. It was uh, something like up to two items for 20% off. And this wasn't like, it's not like at the grocery store where they expect you're going to buy a ton of stuff so it makes sense to only give you two items for 20% off. Like that, that makes more sense because they know few people are going to come in and just buy two items. But this is furniture, okay? This is not something where you're going to come in and go, yeah, oh, like 20 pieces of furniture, please. And you're not going to do that usually. So. So this is why it was stupid. Usually people go to furniture stores to buy, you know, not very not very many pieces. So it was something like where you're limited to two pieces for 20%. And then after that, you don't get the discount. So I said to them, I want to buy five things, but I want 20% on everything. Well, you can't do that. I said, well, this doesn't sit well with me that I buy these first two things. And if I want to get a third thing, the guy next door can buy the identical item for cheaper than I can, even though he's never shopped with you before, and I've shopped with you many times and spent a lot of money here. So why should the why should just anyone off the street get a cheaper price than me, who's the good customer, for the identical item? And then they said no at first, and I said back, "Oh wait a minute, I've got you know what about my girlfriend who lives with me here? What if she buys it? Oh yeah, they said yeah, she can do that. I said, so you're going to really put me through this hassle." That I've got to split the order, and what? I got to now to have my mother buy the buy the buy the fifth piece. Like, do you understand how absurd this is? I go, and so I said to the manager, "This is up to you to make this work." They said, "Well, we've got our policies dictated from above." I go, "Look, this is up to you or your district manager to make this work. To use a common sense solution. I'm not going to pay more than the average person on the street would pay for the same item." just because I've already bought two things from you. I should, I should get a better deal because I've bought more things, not a worse deal. So make it work. If you don't make it work, I'm buying nothing. Next day they called me, they made it work. So, do, you know, when, when, even if it's policy, if something just defies common sense, just, don't just fall for it. And if you didn't get what you expected, demand a refund. Demand something to be fixed. It's your right. one other thing I thought of, just keep popping in my head. If you're having a very hard time reaching anyone of consequence, sometimes you can't get past a foreign call center, they just can't ever transfer you, they claim you just got to keep calling back and trying, 
one unexpected way to get a hold of someone useful, it doesn't always work, but you should try it if you're having trouble getting a hold of an American that's authorized to do anything. Try Twitter. Believe it or not, you can direct message companies on Twitter and ask for someone to call you. I've actually solved a few things that way. After I was banging my head against the wall trying to reach the right person and on Twitter, I direct messaged them, explained it, and while they didn't help me on Twitter, they had someone call me who did. Doesn't always work, but it's 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 another way you can do it that you probably wouldn't think of. That's all I can come up with at the moment. But really, I'll answer questions for you guys if you have issues in any industry. I'm, uh, I've been around for a while now, so I've dealt with a lot of things. And it's just an area where I have talent. Um, I actually learned this from watching my parents. They were good at it too. But I, I actually got to be better at it than they were. So they actually, uh, they, they'll come to me now to, if they hit a wall with something, they go, you want to try this one? And then, and then I'll try it and get it done. They're usually pretty good though. But I learned from watching them. I, I watched that, you know, nobody screwed with them. Nobody uh, got away with anything on them. And I watched as I was a kid. I kind of emulated it and then uh, kind of made my own version of it. And uh, it's pretty effective. And it's satisfying. You know, yes, it's a waste of time sometimes. Yeah, you spend it. It takes a lot of energy. Yes, I understand it if you don't want to waste a long time arguing over $12. I understand that. If, you, if it's not worth your time, then don't do it. But there's a certain satisfaction when you're getting screwed in some way and you can unscrew it. At least to me, there is. And I've had a number of people contacting me on Poker Fraud Alert with questions of how to handle things. Now, I'll come to people sometimes if there's an area they're good at and I'm not that good at or that knowledgeable with, and I'll say, you know, what, what do I do here? So there's a lot of times I need help, too. But this is an area that I'm good at. All right. What I'm good at also is talking for long periods of time. Even when I have LPR. It's a six-hour show. I hope you guys are happy. But this is it. But we are going to be on Wednesday for the foreseeable future. Wednesday, March 13th is the next show. Um, you know what? I'm not sure about that. Jeez, I, I know I promised it's going to be on Wednesday from going forward, but there's something I might be doing on that. I said that date out loud, and I go, oh no. <laughs> I don't think I can make March 13th. Well, then it might be March 14th, but then we'll go back to Wednesday. I promise, okay? If we don't do March 13th, we'll be back... We'll go to March 14th, and we'll go back to Wednesday again. Calwatt's not going to be happy, but... Uh, 
you know, what's one more week? Thank you, Trader Risky, for the time you were on the show here. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin, for the $100 donation for our free roll. And you know what? I When I came into the show tonight, I was uh, not in a very good mood. And I, I said, I'm not going to come into the show all pissed off. I'm going to be... Uh, just do the show normally. A lot of times I do this show and you could never tell if things are going well or poorly. When I had the health problems, I, I, I made that clear, but about things that are not health related, like I could have like a lot of stressful stuff going on before the show and then you'll never be able to tell when I do the show. I could have a horrible poker session, you'll never be able to tell when I do the show. But tonight was one of those nights where I, I wasn't very happy coming into the show. And uh, the show actually made me happier. I was happy to be here, happy to do it, and I think that's where I got the energy from, was just kind of as a nice escape to do the show and make me feel a little bit better and a little bit more upbeat. Thank you for listening. It'll be Wednesday or Thursday next week, the 13th or 14th. Check Twitter, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Shalom.